You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Understand the risk to our country. Freedom brings people together. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. Hey, welcome to We Are Libertarians. My name is Chris Spangle. You're listening to episode 312 of this esteemed weekly program, a bi-weekly program. And uh, it is December 4th, 2018. My co-host is Harry. I have no idea what he's doing over there. Complaining about something as usual. Follow this chord here, and that'll help you out. We're going to talk about the death of George H.W. Bush. We're going to talk about the mortality rate dropping for the second uh, year in a row. First time in like 100 years. And we're going to talk about the Paris riots. So uh, those, those Frenchmen lit over there. All right, we'll be right back after these messages. Warning. This show is for adults, produced by semi-adults, so the language is sometimes strong and offensive. Uh, I don't know what I said. Uh. Welcome to We Are Libertarians, where our goal is to help you sound smarter while talking to your friends. We examine current events from a libertarian perspective while treating modern politics with all of the irreverence it deserves. There has been lie after lie. We toss out the screaming heads, put people before political parties, and give context to the news to make you think. Now, here's our host, a 15-year veteran of politics and media, Chris Spangle. All right, crisis averted. Harry can hear now. He is uh, he's have, having trouble putting it in the hole over here. Uh, so I, I did a League of Liberty podcast. So if you're a Patreon subscriber of my show, of the Launchpad Media with Johnny Rocket, his uh, network, your Patreon subscriber, Lions of Liberty, or the Lava Flow podcast. Uh, we've done 11 episodes now. There's a super podcast, uh, and it is basically the four of us. It's a super group of libertarian podcasters. Uh, several years ago, we were talking to Being Libertarian about actually going on to their platform. I think it was different management at the time. And we were like, this doesn't sound like a good deal for us. Why don't we just start our own little cooperation i guess you should say and so you know we trade out spots which you'll hear later and we promote each other and we're in like a nice little group and we do a a monthly show where it is the four of us uh chit-chatting and i did that last night it was a lot of fun if you're a five dollar a month patreon subscriber then you're gonna hear that show if you are a ten dollar a month and you can watch it there's actually video now uh roger and i got along and it was a nice little uh fun show um, but it always throws off all my equipment, Harry. Harry Price, how are you? Going good, going good. So that's why you've destroyed this entire side of the uh, Destroyed studio. is a hard... Something was unplugged, and dainty little fingers over here was like, uh, um, help me, I can't plug this in. Mr. Technology for a major multi-location company can't figure out how to plug in a, a cord. Correct, correct. That's uh, right. Like I manage the IT department, so I don't really touch the stuff anymore. Right? Yes, you're more of an in a managerial yeah, role. Yes, exactly. Uh, I more point. I write the sheets of paper on how they're supposed to do it. Well, we appreciate Harry being here because Harry took a big promotion at work. Uh, he started that job mm-hmm. less than a year ago. Correct. Like six months ago. Yeah, it seems like. And he came to me about a month ago and said, "Listen, I'm probably going to take this promotion. I may have to quit the show." 
And I was like, uh, well, I don't think that's going to be, uh, that's not going to work for me. So you're not going to be able to take this promotion. And uh, he said, okay. And so you took the promotion anyways. You did the exact opposite of what Dear Leader commanded. Well, first off, when I walked into the meeting <laughs> about the promotion, I, uh, I said I didn't want it. But if they were going to get somebody to run the IT department, I basically gave a roadmap of who this person should be. Right. And right. what's the plan going forward for the next four months in the IT department for the next quarter and what should happen. And then they like, then they asked me like, well, why why can't this be you? Right, because dear leader told me I can't. And then they said, what? Who is that? <laughs> yeah, they're like, who's that? Well, he's this guy. He's he does the a- president of all libertarians. How yeah. have you not heard of him? <laughs> he hosts a highly uh, highly listened to, moderately respected podcast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And they took that information, and then um, they presented me with zeros, and then I took it. <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't even get mad, but uh, fortunately, Harry has carved time out of his busy schedule. Yes. Uh, so he, he will still be here. He will still be a part of us. Uh, you know, uh, I'm losing a co-host a year now. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't lost me yet. Yes. Yet? Why'd you put yet in there? Well, you know, I'm just... I still haven't gotten my 2019 contract approved. The last, you know, we're still in talks with wall management. I'm still trying to get that approved. I mean, wall management's it's... much, much tougher than who you work for. <laughs> wall management refuses to listen, especially if they have not had their nap. I know. It's rough. <laughs> going so late. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, Harry, Harry is, uh, he's a mess most of the time now. He's, he, he's here, but he's, he's a mess. Because we got so many people at different locations, and you know, you think Slack will tell them like, "Hey, these are my time zones. I'm active between these different times." They don't understand that, right? A lot of these other people in different time zones. So I actually put on the calendar at work like wall time, right? Like so, like it just flat out says I'm on air from six p.m. to ten p.m. every Tuesday, right. and then I carved out um, small steady time for like just studying for like one, so I could finish my degree program and wall study time. You know, which most of everyone does like approve on it. I understand. I put notes like, hey, if it's an emergency, you can interrupt me and stuff like that. Some people do respect that. There are some people in other time zones, which I won't talk about the bad about them. They don't care. People in California don't care. And it's I'm not saying this is who California in your case, but I'm saying in my experience, people who work in California and Pacific time people in general I feel bad for them in some ways because their TV starts at like 4 p.m. or whatever. Yeah. But they have no sense of respect for our time. I'm sure they feel that way in the morning. The Eastern people call all hours of the morning. Leave me alone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They hate it when I message them at 10 a.m. Right. Or sorry. Sorry. I'm in 7 a.m. their time. Right. Uh, I had a. I've been having an issue at work, and I had programmers who were in Pacific time, and they had to be up at three this morning. Mm. So uh, went above and beyond the call of duty. So well, we, they keep do, they want to do these um, bi-weekly meetings to, with the whole company, but they want to do them at four o'clock on a Friday. Right. So I'm drinking a beer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now Reinhold was supposed to be with us tonight, but Reinhold uh, has some sort of issue and uh, some sort of. Uh, I think a fecal issue that might I don't know if that one just made that up. <laughs> he wasn't feeling well, so he's like, I don't want to give you this to you and Harry. I was like, stay home, don't come here, don't listen, people, 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 listen up. If you are sick, don't go to work. Yes, don't, don't be the hero. I want to. You are correct. 
No. Did I play the hero a few weeks ago? I sure did. You shouldn't have. I, but I, it was awesome. I had to. We had a machine that went down. Right. And everyone couldn't, we couldn't get a hold of anyone. Like I was down. I was telling I was puking all night. Right. But with that, every hour that machine was down, it was $10,000. Ooh. Yeah. See, that's a hero. So I had to come in and play the hero. Right. I'm talking about <laughs> the guy or gal out there who just, you know, they they can't do anything without me. I've got to go. I've got to oh, be yeah, there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no. Just go no, home. Go home. Nobody just, needs you. Yeah. If you've got a machine like that, you have the skill that needs it to do. Because the thing is, like, I had the skill to do it, but I needed one more other person. So we were basically, like, so the other guy, you know, he was there and I was there. So it was the two of us. We got the machine going up. And, you know, and the, as soon as I got it done, I went to my office, went underneath the desk, and I, there I just stayed for, like, you know, I just drank NyQuil underneath the desk until I felt good to drive home. <laughs> Aww. It got, yeah, it was so bad. Like, my like yeah, my boss in California, like, do you want me to call you an Uber? I will pay for this Uber to get you home. I don't know. All right, let's let's get started with the show. We got a jam packed show today, and uh, I had two topics that I actually dropped off of the list because it's like there's no way we're. Gonna, I, I had like six topics, and you know us. If we did six topics, we'd be here till midnight. So I decided to just drop those off. The border crossing uh, has kind of been covered in the daily, and then Mueller we're going to cover for a couple weeks. So I think we could get to six topics the moment Stone finally does move to Indianapolis and yes. becomes full time producer, and he sits there and he keeps us on. You know, somebody to keep time. We need yeah. somebody to keep time and say, "Hey," because uh, that's it, we, you have a big clock right in front of you in radio, and that really helps you. But we're talking about George H. W. Bush's passing today. Uh, we're going to talk about the mortality rate dropping and why that may be. Um, we're going to talk about the book the book club that we formed. If you're a reader, then you're going to want to join the book club. You can uh, find us on Goodreads, which is a great site, uh, and you can join the group there. Or you can go to the show notes or the website and find the, the book club link. Our first book is Ben Sass's Them, and uh, I purposely chose a non-libertarian book for a reason but it is a book that i've been i'm about halfway through it is fantastic and it fits into the mortality rate stuff and it talks about community and so i think for the first book we wanted to do um a, a book about community and uh, it's very interesting i uh, got an email from a listener who wants to start maybe a book club podcast so we may do that too as well uh, so lots of cool stuff a lot of great ideas coming in as nice. we as we encourage you to give back to We Are Libertarians, if you get something out of We Are Libertarians, uh, this this book club was started by Hody, for instance, and uh, Hody's doing a lot. So somebody may want to step up and run the actual discussions around the book club and mm-hmm. organize the conference calls, the the online chat that we're going to have about the books, which we're then going to publish uh, for Patreon members. You know, we put a lot into this. There's, I, I had my annual review today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, went really well. Good. I was told that I was. Uh, you. He goes. You could look at it that you're difficult to manage because you're so. Well, let's say independent minded. <laughs> 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 he goes. But more, it's just like put the white fences up and stay in between these lines. And it's. And it's true. And I. You know. I told him. I was like. You realize I run like twenty, forty people. I manage twenty to forty people that that contribute to weird libertarians. Yeah. There's a lot of people that put, go that put their time and effort into this now, and have always put that much time and effort into it. 
and they get a lot out of it. I mean, you being a part of We Are Libertarians, what value have you gotten out of it? I got your friendship. Um, well, what else? <laughs> <laughs> About that. <laughs> 2019 contracts changing. <laughs> Try to butter you up. Um, <laughs> let's see. I love the discussions and the group and the friendship that I've brought from just being a part of uh, We Are Libertarians. The intellectual stimulation. Yes. To be able to, to sit there. Sexual and, stimulation. No, none of that. None of that. <laughs> All this right. Is, you know, yeah, I'm sorry. There's none of that. <laughs> okay. There's like one close, but, you know, he, you know, he doesn't like, you know, shaking it for <laughs> but me But seriously, what have you gotten out of it? Uh, yeah, but the intellectual stimulation there, because I really do love playing video games and stuff like that and be able to have these, like, discussions, especially when you're sitting there waiting and stuff like that, just having these discussions. That's what I've gotten out of the community. Right. Yeah, and I mean, you get friendship, you get intellectual stimulation, you find like-minded people where, where I, I often call this the island of misfit toys here in the libertarian movement. Mm-hmm. And boy, did I really feel that way this week as, uh, you know, John Ulrich, who is a very, I would say, right-leaning libertarian, is mm-hmm. in a group with very left-leaning libertarians, and he feels at home. And it's because everybody has, we set a certain tone and demand certain things from our community. You know, and you go in other groups and you're just like, oh, this is just virtue signaling to see who's the most pure and I can't take it. Um, but the the community is really strong. And so because Harry gives his time, he gets value back out of it. And that's part of it. So if you're good at something or if you have an asset or if you have a skill set or uh, you just love the show and, you, you know, give to Patreon. Mm-hmm. That's the easiest and cheapest way. To mm-hmm. give is mm-hmm. to give money because then that keeps uh, me flush with resources. Like, for instance, I've just updated our wish list, which you can find at the website. I need a few microphones, uh, USB microphones, to send out to some of our daily hosts. You know, if you're like, I don't have the time, but I've got 70 extra bucks laying around for my Christmas money and I love the dailies and I want them to sound a little bit better, then that's one way that you can give back. You can do it that way, you can do it on Patreon. Um, but if you have some extra time, I have some fantastic notes. We now, we're now up to like 10 people contributing in our uh, prep team, and they're having a great time. I'm having a great time talking with these folks and putting together this stuff. And, uh, you know, we've got some really great shows on impeachment coming up, both the history and the legal aspects of it. And it just adds a new dimension for me as a host because I'm seeing all kinds of new stuff, like new angles that I wouldn't have thought of. But. The, these 10 people did so uh it's it's a time commitment but it's not overwhelmingly it's not burdensome by any stretch of the imagination but uh you know several of you have written in and said hey i want to do this or you've just done it and you've started promoting it which is ideal yes you don't even need to run it by me just do it yeah do grow it. the we are libertarians community grow the we are libertarians podcast by just promoting it i am done with trying to promote this show. This is your responsibility now. My job is to come here and give you consistently good content that makes you think and makes you sound smarter when you're talking to your friends. My my time after seven years of promoting the show, I'm done doing it. Like, I will go, I, I just, I want to focus on bringing you great research shows. And growing the platform is now the audience's responsibility. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Makes so, sense. It's yeah. it's just I have to choose what I can devote my time to, and I think that giving you a good show is better, you know, than than me going out and saying please listen, please listen. Please it's listen. more effective if the audience goes out and says please listen to this show because I really like it. Yeah, 
Yeah, you are, yeah. If you're listening to the show, you're, welcome to the marketing team. Right. If <laughs> if you if my voice is hitting your eardrums right now, you are responsible for growing. We are libertarians. A share on Facebook or Twitter. A personal recommendation on those social networks via email. Texting it to a texting it to a friend. Writing a review on on iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher. That costs you nothing. At least give just back that, okay? That's all I'm asking for. So it's the holiday spirit give. Yeah. So, uh, and we'll keep this going. We'll keep doing this and we'll keep growing. And, uh, and, and it's just going to get better and better and better. And there's many things that I'm talking with the team about doing. And we're going to do it. And I'm going to, I've got some exciting things that I'm not going to tell you about, Harry. Ooh. So uh, it'll just be a surprise. All right. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. So, Stone going to pop out of the closet. No, Stone is not going to pop out of the closet. Dang it. He's triggered right now. Awesome. Harry, what are you doing? Playing Deep Space Waifu. <laughs> <laughs> is this an actual game? Sure is. I'm going to do it. I'm putting on one hand mode. <laughs> okay, don't do that in the middle of the studio. What? It's, it's How, so what are you trying to get yourself a waifu? Yeah. Yeah, well, you defend your waifu and you try to undress her with the with the gun. It's really cool. All right, well, I have no idea how to turn this into an ad for our Patreon, but I'm going to. How how do waifus and Patreon go together, Harry? Well, you know, if you like your waifu and you want to support her, you should also support We Are Libertarians. Why? Because if you don't, you know, your uh, your 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 waifu gets you know attacked by bombs or things like that, and you got to be able to defend her. <laughs> Please support our waifus. <clears throat> All right. Well, with this madness going on in the background, let me tell you about our Patreon. We let me tell you about our Patreon. Long ago, opinion journalism only existed in newspapers and magazines, but the internet has given rise to new voices like We Are Libertarians, and we are here every week, every day now, day in day out, talking about current events and giving you arguments for your friends and family. And uh, we have a, we have a big network. We have like twenty to forty people involved in We Are Libertarians, and all those people need equipment. They need software. They uh, we really need your support. And uh, if you want to support independent uh, media, then you you have to actually put your your wallet where your mouth is. Let me say that. So become a citizen, five dollars a month, and get our bonus content, CD quality, and commercial free shows. And before anyone else, at ten dollars. Nobility get to access the exclusive Facebook group and a notification to join the live stream and chat with us during the show. Members at the Royal Court get a $25 poster and a free, and they get free shipping in the new We Are Libertarian store. You can also join the Emperor's Circle at $100, and you get to sit in on our co-host strategy calls or our editorial meetings, and you get private access to Dear Leader and a guest spot on the show. And we mention your show every single week. So this is the number one way to help the show. So join now at wearelibertarians.com or patreon.com slash wearelibertarians. Harry, how many waifus did you catch? Just one. Right now I'm defending her. Almost at the boss level. Five stars right now. Let's talk about George H.W. Bush. Now, Harry, I was hoping that the oldest member of We Are Libertarians, Reinhold, could be here tonight, but he's sick. Uh, He's not the oldest. (laughs) I just like teasing him. Uh, but I think Reinhold, I don't know if he served under H.W. I know he was in the military, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was under Clinton or Bush. It was not W. It was before that. It could have been Bush. So I was hoping to have him here, but the next best thing is Harry. Uh, 
What do you remember about George H.W. Bush? Let's see. Um, now, this is going to be a tough one because you got to understand, I was born in 85. Right. So he vice president then. You would have been in kindergarten. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. The, well, here's what I remember about George H.W. Bush. Okay. Not going to do it. The only thing I can really like my, Dana Carvey. I, I can't even remember that. Like my earliest memory of George Bush is the Simpsons episode uh-huh. when he moved next door to the Simpsons. Right. Yeah, and they did that uh, a Dennis the Menace style episode. Yeah. So H W was, I mean, for I think for most of us millennials, he's not somebody you really remember as president. Right. I have very fond memories of that time. I was in third grade watching the inauguration of Clinton, mm-hmm. uh, and I definitely became politically interested under H.W. Bush. I think it was the, the Desert Storm Wars where I was kind of like, ooh, what's going on with all this? And that's when I really started watching CNN and kind of paying attention. So I would have been seven, eight, nine, ten somewhere in there. I don't know how old a uh, first, second grader is. Um but, you know, H.W. was sort of the first politician that I really, like, remember. Okay. Um, so I think that I have some fondness for him because of that. Like, that was always one of my favorite periods of childhood. And it's sort of like you're your most idealistic as a kid. You know, so I do have some fondness for him. And he seems like a jovial, genial person. You know, he's sort of been like a non-threatening grandpa. Uh, you know, all through the years. I mean, even needling his son about winning his war in Iraq. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, you as a kid, you remember seeing like Barbara in school, and that was like an iconic look. Look, like what is up with that lady with her big white hair and pearls? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so I never had sort of the visceral disgust or dislike of either the person or policies that I did for W or. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't really for Clinton cause I didn't really, I wasn't sophisticated enough yet, Right. but I definitely did for W towards the end as I became a li- more and more libertarian, definitely for Obama. I have some of it for Trump. Um, Trump is hard to, for me to hate because I can't take him seriously. Like W and Obama were effective. <laughs> so that makes them much more of a threat than, than Trump. Like Trump's just sort of. Anything he's screwing up is just sort of like by buffoonery, right? And it lets you and it lets you breathe. It like, oh god, there are some checks and balances, <laughs> right? Woo. <laughs> so HW, I just don't I, like. I see all these people posting stuff online, and they're my age, and they're like, he was a warmonger. He was one guy in a libertarian group called him. He was the equivalent of Stalin. And you're just like, really? Like, you're just, you're amping it up to look good for the other anarchist in the group. Like, stop. Um, so, I, I don't, I didn't know much about his policies until prepping for the show, really. You know, mm-hmm. he just kind of seemed like a warm, nice guy who loved his family. I watched the 41 documentary on HBO. Yeah. Uh, if you watch that, and I would recommend it, I think it's kind of an interesting look at this guy. It's hard to believe that he killed Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> when you watch this documentary, it's the head of the CIA, yeah, right, and he continued to do, you know, all his deep, you know, briefings, CIA briefings, <laughs> probably up until last year. Yeah, well, so here's the that's part of the conspiracy theory is that he doesn't know where he was when Kennedy was killed, and it's because he was, you know, Prescott Bush, his dad, 
was uh, the Bush family made their money by laundering allegedly uh, allegedly laundering Nazi money through Mexico. And uh, dad bought him some oil wells, and uh, Prescott Bush set up the CIA with the Dulles brothers. Allegedly. Okay, that's true. That's not, that's actually, yeah, that's verifiable. And then, so the the Alex Jones conspiracy goes that George H.W. Bush was a CIA asset his entire life because he he worked with his father's friends, the Dulles brothers. Mm Mm-hmm. And he was on a ship outside of Cuba because he was the one running all the CIA's operations in Cuba mm-hmm. in in the fifties and sixties, and uh, the operation for the killing of Kennedy for the CIA was named after the boat or the plane or something. And there so there's like a tangential connection there with a it's name. And Bush was the one that sent Howard Hunt and all these other people to go actually assassinate Kennedy. He was the one that managed the operation, and in exchange for doing this, he would be able to to be president, or else he would spill the beans of what he had done. Correct. Yeah. And he used that to leverage to become vice president. Right. He was a nobody. He was like a one-term congressman when he became uh, CIA director under... uh, We'll take a look at his record with this uh, eulogy from Nick Gillespie and Reason. Um, but he was relatively unknown when he became the CIA director in the 70s under Ford. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he ran the CIA. I mean, he had a long career in civil service. Uh, and it's sort of like, well, you know, the white privileged people of this country, the elite, should give back and be a, a part of public service. But when you hear people say that he killed Kennedy, that's the conspiracy theory that they're referencing. I don't know that I buy it. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I <laughs> makes do. It's a good, great movie. It makes a great explanation. So. Um, but yeah, the HBO documentary 41 is really interesting. He's a very likable guy, uh, very genial and, um, very devoted to his family. Yes. Um, so let's, let's give you some of the details of George H.W. Bush. Uh, Nick Gillespie wrote a great article. Um, and so, you know, when somebody passes away, there is, um, two ways to handle it. And I think Nick Gillespie struck the right tone. We'll talk about the other way after this. But, you know, what he did is he's like, here's the good points about the guy. Here's the, here's the points where I disagreed with him. Here's his legacy for all. I think it was very well balanced. So uh, let's take a look at this. George H.W. Bush, who served one term in office from 1989 through 1993, is dead at the age of 94. By all accounts, he was an exceptionally kind and decent and thoughtful individual in his service as a Navy pilot in World War II. He was awarded the Distinguished Navy Cross and was shot down over the Pacific. And he reminds us of a time when seemingly casual superhuman heroism by young 20-somethings was the order of the day. So there's actually like a video or a photo of him being pulled out of the Pacific after being shot down and it surfaced during the 1989 race. Mm. <laughs> and so in 1988, yeah, and it was like sealed the deal. All the Dukakis people were like, oh, man, we're not going to win now. Yeah, just like the other angle of the JFK shooting that he showed Reagan. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, just to be clear, we don't believe that is the yeah. conspiracy. We're just, we're just, just relaying joking that. around. Yeah. Yes, we're just, yeah. Sorry. So, um, yes, Jenna Bush may be listening. Okay, and and you know we have, and I'll talk a little bit more about this, but um, you know I host a series on the podcast called The Swamp with mm-hmm. um, 
Rob Cortell, who was his issues director in his 79 campaign, he's going to the funeral. So we're going to have an episode here in the in the future uh, with Rob talking about you know I mean, his friend. So that'll be kind of a cool look inside HW's world. Um, it's so it's neat to know somebody who is that like kind of close to to all yeah. this. Um, yet, from a specifically libertarian view, there is little to celebrate and much to criticize regarding his presidency, with at least one notable exception. He did nothing to reduce the size, scope, and spending of the government or to expand the ability of people to live however they wanted. If he was not as harshly ideological and dogmatic, especially on culture war issues, as contemporary conservatives, neither did he espouse any philosophical commitment to anything approaching free markets and free minds. There's a reason he did not elicit strong negative responses or inspired enthusiasm. He lacked what he called the vision thing. So this became a big thing in 92 when he ran against Clinton. The vision thing. And, uh, you know, George H.W. Bush was seen largely as a, a civil servant. Now, how, how do I explain this? So if you... If you think of it in British terms, it's it's much starker in Britain than it is here. Uh, in Britain, you know, somebody who's a great visionary uh, like Winston Churchill mm-hmm. is n- may not necessarily be a civil servant, although he was his entire life. Somebody like a Gordon Brown or a Theresa May is a civil servant. Somebody who kind of worked in government their whole life, was very involved in every level of government, and when they arise to the level of prime minister, they're civil servants. They're not necessarily visionary leader leaders, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was listening to the commentary ma- uh, podcast, commentary magazine podcast, and they were talking like, "We have too much vision now. We're like on a, we're vision junkies." And in many ways, Trump is like the exact opposite of George H. W. Bush, where he was so good at running the bureaucracy because he was so experienced in the bureaucracy that he was obsessed with waking up, making sure that by the end of the day, his schedule, his inbox was cleared. He was working at the task of gover- of f- functional government. Right. And he lacked a lot of vision as a president. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Clinton comes along, this natural <laughs> politician, who is just a natural visionary who says this, you know, we need this thing. He just, he was such a, Clinton was such a great politician. It's, it's... It, <sighs> Hillary Clinton and his own infidelities really uh, they they have diminished the popularity and the positives of of Bill Clinton's presidency. And I don't mean positives from a libertarian or or, or a political standpoint. I mean from his skill set. Like he was mm-hmm. gifted in a lot of certain ways. And so you know Hillary Hillary running I think has kind of tarnished that reputation because. Instead of just doing what H.W. did, which was fade into the limelight, W. has faded into the limelight, you know, or yeah. faded into um, the background. Correct. And so the longer they're away, the more people start to, over time, go, wow, I remember that guy. I like that time in politics. It was mm-hmm. better than it is now. You know, I like the Bushes a lot better than I liked them when they left office. Mm-hmm. Um, and Clinton has not had that same thing happen uh, because he's never gone away. And o- Obama is going to have the same problem because he can't help himself. Right. He can't help himself. He's always like, he was campaigning. <laughs> right. Can you imagine if Bush would have campaigned? No, neither Bush. Neither Bush. He, yeah. He went out for Jeb for one appearance. His own brother, H- or W, did. Right. Uh, so, so in many ways he was... 
the exact opposite of what we like now because H.W. was he was just he was a gentleman he was a civil servant he was uh, he was dedicated to the myth of the American government wholeheartedly yeah and uh, he he just didn't he didn't buy into a lot of the personal attacks and the BS mm-hmm. and it's the opposite of what what you know Trump is a big picture guy right, yeah you know how weird it would have been this whole you know this funeral if Jeb would have won. How oh, weird yeah. this would have felt. That would have been weird, yeah. Yeah, it would have been like very like, you know, like dynasty royal style because she's like <laughs> this whole family, three of these people, same family, been president. It's like that's weird. Right. Would have been weird. Please clap. Yeah. <laughs> so, Gillespie writes, he had no overarching theory of the future, no organizing principle to guide his policy making. That's not necessarily the worst thing in a president. We don't need a maximum leader after all, but it also means us, uh, he squandered an opportunity to set the coordinates for a post-Cold War world in the direction of maximum freedom. And I think that's a good point. I think had somebody other than H.W. been president, somebody committed to the ideas of liberty, like Ron Paul, for instance, who ran in 1988 uh, on the Libertarian Party ticket, then the post-Cold World, Cold World War... A Cold War world would have been a lot more free than it has turned out to be. Um, in his post-presidency years, Bush emerged as a genial, even comforting, distant presence on the political landscape that continues to drive towards absolute demonization, polarization, and even the most trivial differences. Um, he, that's the role he was perfectly suited to play as a one-term president who was the father of a very controversial president. He was non—he was a non-threatening loser to Democrats and Republicans alike. A Napoleon in exile who had no chance of coming back and taking power. Um, he lacked the moralizing overbearing of Carter and the doltish qualities of Ford. Um, so, you know, he, Gillespie notes some of his achievements. Um, he had been a two-term vice president. He headed up the CIA. He was a liaison to China in the early 70s when it was being opened. And he was an ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, he ran the Republican National Committee, and he served in Congress from Texas for two terms. So that's a, I mean, that's probably one of the more qualified people to be president, uh, and <laughs> that's part of why he wasn't good at it. <laughs> <laughs> if anything could qualify you to represent, you know, yeah, three hundred million people. So he really was. I mean, H.W. was somebody who was a functionary president. And I think in a lot of ways, a lot of Americans are probably going to feel nostalgic for this because they kind of would crave that right now. There's, there seems to be such dysfunction that they want somebody who seems like they're competent at just like enough with all the big grand plans. Like, just do your job right, please. Like, it's like the, like the guy who comes in, it's your boss who comes in, who just constantly messing things up and is constantly dysfunctional and constantly running things into the the red and he has an idea every second but then like you're just like can you just like stop can you just like sit down and fill out the paperwork that I gave you you know i think that's how kind of voters feel at this point it's enough vision a little more functional correct yeah know? yeah i have that issue i have a lot of visions a lot of goals but at work i keep it to like i can only work on three different tasks at a time three vision tasks at a time if I want to work on another one, I have to finish it. Right. You know, and, it's, you know, it's, you know, it's a struggle. You know, from a libertarian perspective, he, he was behind a lot of a lot of things that we weren't crazy about. Uh, he, 
appointed William Bennett, who you may have seen. He's a conservative commentator as the first office of the National Drug Control Policy. Uh, he created this office, basically a drug czar. After Lynn Bias died, John Belushi died. Um, you know, so Bennett publicly <laughs> said there's no moral problem with beheading drug dealers because you know they're bad people doing bad things. Uh, so <laughs> that's that's rough. Um, he, less than a year into his presidency, he ordered Operation Just Cause, an illegitimate invasion of Panama that burned down entire neighborhoods of the capital and killed hundreds of people to call her a single two-bit narco trafficker. Trafficker, excuse me. Our former and ally, uh, Manuel uh, Noriega. Noriega. Yeah. Noriega. So then there's the Defining Ford Policy Act of his presidency, the Gulf War, Operation Desert Shield, pitched as an effort to restore internationally recognized borders after Iraq invaded Kuwait. The Gulf War ultimately solved no problems and instead set the table for the quagmire in which we're still mired. Uh, so it was actually partly his administration's fault. And this is something I did not know. I learned this week. Um, in the summer of 90, Saddam Hussein met with U.S. Ambassador April Glaspie about the tensions between Iraq and Kuwait. Mm -hmm. Glaspie said the following, We have no opinion on the Arab-Arab conflicts, like your border disagreement with Kuwait. While there remains an argument over whether Glaspie was following Bush administration orders or injecting her own interpretations of U.S. interests, Walt, uh, Stephen M. Walt writes, it is clear from the cable that the U.S. unwittingly gave a green light to Saddam, who moved uh, into evade Iraq a week or invade Kuwait a week later. Um, so he assembled a truly international coalition of 28 countries. That included Arab, Muslim, Israel, uh, all, all these different European countries um, to push the Iraqis out. Um, so, it Jonathan Rausch noted uh, that uh, after the nine eleven attacks, the goal the goal of the Gulf War for Bush and Arab allies alike was not to impose a new order on the region, but to restabilize the old one. Strategically speaking, that meant caging the overweening Saddam, not toppling him. Moreover, until 1990, Saddam had been a savage bully, but one America had done business with. It was reasonable to expect that after fighting, he might settle down, play by the rules, and pocket billions in diverted development aid like any self-respecting kleptocrat. It didn't turn out that way, Gillespie writes. The U.S. did nothing to aid the immediate post-war popular uprisings that Bush himself cheered on, that inflamed the local populace. Saddam did not become someone we could do business with in any meaningful way, and the region was hardly stabilized by the first Gulf War. There's also the, uh, you know, hey, leave Kuwait, nothing's going to happen to you. And then they left Kuwait, and Americans just dropped bombs on mm. and just massacred the Iraqi army. Uh, and listening to uh, Ben Shapiro's recap... He was, he was like, I, you know, I certainly disagreed with H.W. on a lot. He was a good man. I, I disagreed that he didn't move into uh, Baghdad and immediately overthrow Saddam. I'm like, okay. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Isolationist uh, Ben Shapiro. Right. <laughs> oh, man. That's um, so. Talk about empire building. Damn. Yeah. So and then after that, he um, he started pr promoting the New World Order. Uh <laughs> <laughs> 
So, let's see. There's a strong case to be made that the relative ease of the immediate and overwhelming military victory of the U.S. in 91 emboldened Clinton to become more promiscuous and over, about overseas inv- interventions, mm-hmm. a tendency that Bush, too, also betrayed. So, kicking, quote-unquote, Vietnam syndrome, or a sense that the United States was relatively impotent when it came to shaping world events via military intervention, continues to be a high cost for Americans and foreigners alike. Um, so... He effectively invented the role of the U.S. as the world's policeman, a role that persists that presidents, with the possible exception of Trump, continue to glory in. Um, so we are the head of the international order. He was the person that helped. Um, anytime there was a local uprising, for instance, his CIA, while he was president, would go in and help uh, speed things along. So Reagan, Reagan and Bush really. Um, you, you could say, like, for instance, in Serbia, mm-hmm. um, I'm, I was reading this book about the, the group there, I think it's Serbia, where it, it was a revolution to try and overthrow over, uh, Milosevic. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no, 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 this was Clinton that did this. I'm sorry. Yeah, this, yeah okay. I was like, I'm trying to remember in the 80s. Yeah, Milosevic was late 2000s. But, for instance, this this group, yeah. Optor, which always did all these crazy stunts uh, around 99, 2000 yeah, okay. to, to throw out Milosevic, uh, the United States was the one that basically gave them the money to create like these big foam bridges and use satire effectively to deleverage Milosevic's rule. You know, so Bush did a lot of that when he was president. So as you had the Vaclav Havels of the world overthrowing their their particular countries, the the United States was helping fund the end of the Cold War and trying to bring about a more liberal order mm-hmm. in the United States. So but because we kicked ass so much in 91 that gave Clinton and Bush too, and Barack Obama the the idea that the American military just can't be defeated. Uh, so he is best known on the domestic side from read my lips, no new taxes, uh, and breaking that promise. Uh, in 1988, he promised that he'd, he'd not raise taxes. But in the 1990 budget deal that he did with Democrats, he um, promised spending cuts of $2 for every dollar in tax increases. Um, so the main provision increased the top marginal income tax rate from 28 to 31 percent, and even critics of the plan agree it generated of a, t- a total of about 137 billion in new revenue. And champions of the plan credit was setting the stage for the budget surpluses of the late 90s. So it's it's a w- w- right. So the reason that um, Clinton had such a good economy was basically they they started to cut the budget. And they raised taxes, and they tried to balance the budget. And we actually had a balanced budget under Clinton. Like, we had no deficit at one point. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, which is crazy to think that yeah. we had that in the 90s. Still had debt. Right. Still had debt. Just the right. deficit was... Exactly. ...went down. So we weren't... We weren't uh, explain the deficit. <clears throat> the deficit is basically the what you owe after taxes had... Um, what is it? Uh, taxes in versus what you've got to spend out with... with um, uh, compulsory spending and all your spending, so the money that you really have to borrow to make up for all the debt that you did not pay off. Right. And but it also is like so they did um, they raised taxes, cut spending. Then you at the exact same time you had the um, the internet really did at that time started to kick off. So you had a lot of different small businesses kick in too. Yeah. 
that came out of nowhere. That's, you know, and they were all coming in, paying money and putting money and hiring people into the system. Yeah. Also, you also, at that time, you had a lot of companies who had a lot of, like, um, faux funny accounting um, because this is all before Enron really started bring, uh, really just, you know, bring, you know, really started bringing up everything down and right. then still continues to bring things down. What is it about? Like almost 20 years later. So, yeah. So, uh, 1990 in Reason Magazine, Charles Oliver uh, wrote that the need for a budget deal occurred because the government was overshooting mandated deficit reduction targets set in the mid 80s by about 60 billion out of a budget that was only $1.2 trillion. Um, and he asked, what happened if government were to spend too much money? And he writes, all that happens is that federal spending will automatically be cut across the board by that amount. Since the federal budget is over $1.2 trillion, it will only have to be cut by 5%. Does anyone really think that there isn't a 5% amount of fat in the federal budget? Of course, Congress can avoid automatic cuts by making reductions of its own. There are plenty of targets for the budget acts. The Bush administration already plans a 2 to 5% reduction in defense spending which they did, and they actually cut the military. They were reducing what um, what uh, Reagan had put in place to try and drive up the amount of spending that on the military that the USSR was spending to help collapse them quicker. Um, right. And Thomas Knapp uh, from the great Rational, Re- no, Rational Review, News Digest, mm-hmm. wrote that he was let go out of the military at that time, and that was fundamental to him being becoming a libertarian. Um, oh, yeah, because that's supposed when everyone's complaining about the basis closes. Yes, like yes, exactly. Uh, so, and it was David Stockman who actually wrote the book. I've got it over there. Uh, the Triumph of Politics, who was the budget director for Reagan, mm-hmm. and he said they were all about cutting government spending, but then when he started advocating cutting defense spending, he was iced out of the White House <laughs> <laughs> by all the conservatives. Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman Colin Powell, he writes, uh, excuse me, there's a cat that will not get <laughs> off of me right now. Uh, she loved you. I know, but I have a show to do, and I can't have this cat climbing all over me while I'm doing it. Uh, Joint Chief of Staff Chairman Colin Powell has said that the Pentagon spending could be cut by 25% without hurting America's defenses. Could you imagine a a Joint Chiefs saying, yeah, let's cut the budget 25%. It'll be fine in this day and age. Some outside experts put the figure closer to 50%. Still taking Powell's estimate but speeding up his timetable slightly, we could cut defense spending by about $75 billion next year. That's $62 billion more than is currently planned. We could scale back domestic spending, too. Congress could cut farm subsidies, slow the cost of living rises and social programs, and even eliminate controversial government agencies, such as the National Endowment for the Arts, which is still something we debate. Trump threatened to do that, and everybody lost their mind. It all depends upon Congress and the president agreeing to use the peace dividend to reduce the deficit, not spending that money on new social programs. We know how that turned out, Gillespie writes. It remains unclear whether Bush's breaking of his tax pledge was the reason he ended up losing to Clinton in 92. For some of 91, Bush basked in the post-Gulf War approval ratings above 90%. You heard that right, 90% approval ratings for a president. But a recession caught in part by tight money, fallout from the savings and loan scandal, fear of new taxes, and a tight money supply, and also Ross Perot, clearly drained support directly from him in the general direction. 
Bush will be remembered as a decent man, but the reverberations of his domestic and foreign policy failures leave little for libertarians to cheer. He also uh, was responsible for the Americans for Disabilities Act. Um, Something that uh, I hate to criticize because I think that the ADA does make life easier for people who have different challenges. But it is fundamentally unlibertarian because it is the federal government saying to private property owners what they can, what they have to do uh, with their private property, or Correct. else. Correct. Yeah, it does help a lot of different people out. But there are some industries that automatically go ahead and just do that anyways, and just just help standardize everything. Yes, it does does freaking suck to have that bill there. But it's just, but you know, for the people that that use some of that, it does. It does help for them to help, so they know they're walking in and they they know they're getting a standard. Yeah, um, I'm not saying I support that. <laughs> I'm just saying like I can understand it. No, I think it. what you're saying yeah. is you're a decent person if you make it easier for yeah. everybody to come in your business, but you don't want the barrel of a gun pointed at your head if you don't do it. Yeah, correct. Um, like the I like doorknobs in my house. I have doorknobs in my house, correct? But I have the full function of all my hands, you know. So when you go into business and you don't see any doorknobs anywhere, there's all these like these ones there to help people who don't have full function of their hands. They're there to help people out. It's also neat because also you know. But you've probably used that benefit too. Simple fact that if you ever carried in a bunch of stuff, you had to open the door with that. Right. You know, you've you've used these functions too. It's very very convenient. Yeah, so he had uh, he he was really the type of person who took all these ideas that were happening at the state level that uh, he he added to the federal government. He was all about bipartisanship, and that's why he's beloved by elites because he he grew he grew the size and scope of the federal government uh, while he was president of the United States and through his life. Um, but he also advocated for so. Here's the thing. As a libertarian, I love my country. That does not mean that I love my government. That doesn't mean that uh, I have to... Um, the pledge, for instance. I think making children say the pledge every morning before school is indoctrinating people into into the ideas of patriotism. And I think that uh, it is everyone's right to opt out or, or have their kids opt out of saying the pledge every morning. It doesn't mean that I don't love America and the people that live within it and its founding ideals, but I think we get confused the idea of loving our country and loving our government. And I don't love the government, and I think when people try to tie those two things together, I think it, it becomes uh, a real problem. And, and I think that there is um, there are people that like George H.W. Bush, who were true believers, like John McCain, who were true believers in all of the mythology of America and how great it is and how great our government is and how the government is uh, us doing things together, doing big things together that are to solve big problems. And I think that they just have a completely different view of the role of government than we do. Um, you know, and But I go back and forth with... One question, but let, let me talk about George H.W. Bush's. I think this clip. What in the world is happening here? Oh, sorry, I hit the, hit the button on my sound machine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, one of the questions, and Harry, that I that I want to cover here after I play this clip is: Can you separate a person's political positions or their actions in office from their personal character and their level of decency? 
Um, but I want you to listen to a clip that um, I first heard on Ben Shapiro's recap. And I thought it was just a great example of why people like this guy and why people are going to crave what he brought to the table. This is in 1979. He ran in 1979 against Ronald Reagan, Bob Dole, and uh, several other conservatives. Um, John Connolly of the Kennedy assassination. And the issues director for that campaign for HW was our friend Rob Cortell who is on the Swamp uh, program with me. He was the uh, person who ran the issues, um, so the policy director in modern parlance for HW and also for Gerald Ford and his re-election campaign uh, in 76. So somebody who was really right at the, you know, in, in the bus with HW Bush. So I'm excited to hear what he has to say about him. But this is the man that he was working for in 1979. Uh, this is H.W. Bush in a debate, and he's uh, being questioned about his toughness. Among uh, even your friends of the minority who know who you are and who admire you in the party, one of the things that is always comes up is that maybe George Bush is too nice a guy to be president. Maybe he's not tough enough. Yeah, uh, I've heard if that. you can't take out after a, what about the tough enough question? And, and well, start tough out, enough is don't I don't equate, take out after I don't these equate other guys. toughness with just attacking some individual. I don't attack. I, I equate toughness with moral fiber with character, with principle, with demonstrated leadership in tough jobs where you emerge, not bullying somebody, but with the respect of the people you led. That's toughness. That's fiber. That's character. I've got it. And if I happen to be decent in the process, that should not be a liability. What was the second part? Mr. Bush, it's... uh, Well, I'll take the second part. Is Ronald Reagan too old? No. Let the voters determine it. Let the press determine it. Just like on the Democrat side, there's all these extraneous issues. Let the people decide it. Is is John Connolly too slippery? No. Is Bob Dole too mean? No. What's the difference? The difference is the breadth of record and that my overall performance and conviction about this country, about our ability to solve problems, our ability to restore the credibility in the United States has been diminished under President Carter. I believe I can do that better than anybody else. That's the difference. So that was George H.W. Bush. You can uh, see the video of that. It was kind of a cool setup. It is like an hour-long sit-down. I just have that little clip uh, in the show notes. But it's like three reporters, three old, like, whiskey-drinking, old-timey reporters sitting there just throwing questions like this mm-hmm. back and forth with, with Bush and the candidates. I'd love to see that. Yeah. I mean, because you're getting real responses from a candidate in that type of debate. But you'd never see a modern politician actually agree to do that. No. You know, that's the difference of the, the politics then versus now. Um, you know, but... but That's like the Ross Perot debate when he brought out signs and stuff like that. You don't charts. see that. In, yeah, char- yeah right. charts and stuff. Yeah, sorry, yeah. You don't see that anymore. I, I don't think that anybody can disagree with uh, that style of politics. Here's a guy who's like, yeah, I'm mean, but I'm effective, and I know what I'm doing, and yep. I, I have uh, principles, but it doesn't mean that I'm going to be a jerk. And I think that's the direct opposite of Donald Trump. Donald Trump, you know, listen to... Just listen to the beginning of this again. Let me see if I can get it kind of... You know, I don't want to beat up on people. Always comes up is that maybe George? What about the tough enough question? And, and well, tough out, enough is I don't equate, I don't equate toughness with just attacking some individual. I don't equate toughness with attacking some individual. It's a complete opposite of where our politics are now. Right. You know, and uh, I think that's why people are looking back at this guy and going, "Ah, eh, I miss that time in politics." 
I, I miss when at least our politicians pretended. <laughs> like, <laughs> pretended uh, to be like professionals and adults. I don't the think, adults. Yeah, I don't think that that was BS with him. I think he was genuinely that person. But uh, yeah, I mean, he, he it's 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 tough when you've got a politician who thinks toughness is just being a dick to everybody. I don't think someone you know thinks that way or could be president. But, but. So it, my first thought, and and it kind of ties into this. My first thought when Bush died was, oh yeah, that makes sense. He was ninety four, and he had Parkinson's, a, a variety of it, and he you know his wife passed away, and my great grandparents died within two weeks of each other. It is a an actual medical condition that you can die of a broken heart. Um, you know his. His last words, you know, on the phone, Jim Baker talking about his last words with his kids and telling W that he loves him. And, like, you hear Jenna Bush on NBC or on Instagram or W or any of these, any of them talking about the Bush family. Like, Mm -hmm. you kind of go, eh, I wish my family were like that, you know? So there are are parts of it where you're just like, ah, that seems like a nice family. That's very sweet. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And it humanizes them where I don't think you have that same sort of vibe with a lot of politicians like do you look at the the clinton family or the trump family and go yeah that seems like a really warm family i'd want to be a part of <laughs> yeah that's all calculated <laughs> right. <It's>, yeah <laughs> right yeah. um so i think that's one reason that the obamas and the bushes appeal to us a little bit is that they do seem somewhat human um but my second thought was my god the libertarians are going to be dicks again <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> and I was right. I was proved right. By oh. <laughs> I know you're not on had, Facebook, but I was. And I bet you had to dig for it, though. <laughs> Here's my thing. Um, even it, I made this. I made a status. Uh, I posted a little ditty on Facebook, and someone Good. was nice enough to share it to the Liberty Memes Facebook group, mm-hmm. which is much much larger than my group, yeah. um, which. I'm angry about get to work people. Invite your friends to our group. But it, it, it was basically this. A, a former co-host, um, Greg, uh, used to say, I, I, I was very anti-Trump in 2016-2015. Um, and then one day he goes, you know, you're, you're not helping you think by taking this strong, aggressive, personal stance towards Donald Trump, you think that you're you're helping your cause, but you're not. What you're doing is you're alienating all these people that are drawn to politics by Donald Trump because they see you acting this way and they go, I don't ever want to take a look at libertarians. They're all a-holes. And, and I think he was totally right about that. Uh I would say the same sort of about Ocasio-Cortez. I think the joking goes too far. I think it gets too mean. I think, you know, when we talk about politicians that our friends and family like in mm-hmm. a very negative, hateful way, they start to go, yeah, but I like that guy. Why are you being such a dick? Right. And it's something called the libertarian macho flash. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael Cloud, I've actually posted the article at wearelibertarians.com. We'll put it in the show notes. And it is the idea, this has been a problem from the very very beginning, that you're just going to, it's this macho flash that you're just going to be as ag- as aggressive as possible with the message. And they're going to be so overwhelmed by your passion or anger that they're going to change their mind, when in reality they just think you're vulgar or they think that you're weak-minded or they think that you're unstable. 
and they are also turned off because you were insulting them. And so you actually, by macho flashing, completely turn off the audience you're trying to reach. And it, it it is very common when one of these guys dies, like McCain or Bush, to see that. I see a lot of people posting things that are very good at virtue signaling a certain purity to their fellow libertarians as opposed to realizing that their friends and family are going to read that and they've just been pushed further and further away from the libertarian party or the libertarian ideology or anarcho-capitalism or voluntarism. I, I think we have to think about the way that we talk about political figures, about the country, about these symbols, um, of which I think presidents are avatars, they're symbols for a certain thing. You have to remember your friends and family still buy into this mythology. You know, you were a, I was a Republican at one time, right? Yeah. And I liked George W. Bush at one time. <laughs> right. And so there still is a piece of me that has some level of affinity for him. And I think there are people who were liberals or Democrats that are now libertarians have a certain affinity for Barack Obama. Mm. Or And, you know, I think we, we don't realize that when we go out there and we act tough and we, um, we macho flash, we're really turning people off because there's so many new people in politics now. Uh, I would also say that a lot of people do it about Gary Johnson or Bill Weld, mm-hmm. and there are way more Gary Johnson libertarians than there probably are Rothbardians. Yes. Uh, good. Thank goodness. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but uh, and and here's why I say that. I think that it takes a certain level of dedication to sit down and read Mises or Rothbard or really get in depth into the philosophy and economics. I think that's a very narrow piece of the the world's population, and I'm glad those people do that and that they exist and that they encourage others like myself to like, hey, go read this. I'm about halfway through for New Liberty. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's great. Great read. Right. But most people are just kind of casually libertarian, and they liked Gary Johnson, and they voted for him. And so when you come out and you go, Gary Johnson's a fucking dick, they hear, I'm a fucking dick, or you're a fucking dick. And so they 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 are totally turned off by you as a messenger because you have decided to beat up on an individual that they like or a concept that they like exactly and you turn away the casual libertarians and right. the casual libertarians it's what helps bring in donors this helps brings your money in you may hate them you can hate their freaking guts but if you actually want to like win races and stuff like that they need things to be easy they need to be easy adoption to it right. but if you make this like nope if you want to get into our system, you got to read these ten books here. Be this pure to join to put that symbol next to your name. Well, you're not going to get an adoption. Just like you know, like, just like Bitcoin didn't really start getting adoption until it started becoming easier and easier and easier and easier. And the more easier it become, the more people can have cryptocurrency now. I mean, being friends with Harry, somebody who is an anarcho-capitalist. I mean, how, whoa, 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 whoa. All right, whoa, how would you label? Whoa, how would you label just, yourself? Just anarchist, just anarchist. Okay. Just, or anarcho-monarchist. Okay. Yeah, Afro. Sorry, Afro anarchist. <laughs> okay, but just anarchist is fine. Would you say voluntarist? No. Why not? Not a voluntarist because not. I'm not. That has a lot of strict rules to go with it. Okay. You know, like the, I couldn't be a, really could be very hard to be a voluntarist and be like on a political. Give care about the political spectrum. And then I couldn't vote or not vote or do a lot of different things in the system. 
Yeah, so by being um, a radical person that is also my friend, Harry has taught me a lot about the more radical elements of libertarian thought, of how we view the world. He's taught me to be better, uh, a better black man. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> it's fun, yeah. isn't it? And I think that you, somebody like yourself or like myself, we think of it in terms of the long game. I'm not here to get your scalp and head back to the camp and show all my friends that that we have another one. Mm-hmm. I've recruited them. It's not this immediate pressure. It's about the long game. It's about answering questions. It's about having a softer, more persuasive approach. And so, yes, George W. Bush or and George H.W. Bush both and Barack Obama and Donald Trump and all these people, Ocasio-Cortez and Sarah Palin and take your pick, Bernie yeah. Sanders. Right. They have millions and millions and millions more people liking them than that than like libertarians. Correct. It's a much bigger pool. And a lot of those people start out of casual Democrats, casual Republicans. Right. Oh, I'm Republican. And then Do you go to the meetings, are you actual voting are you party member? No. Right. Until they come and become one. Thomas Knapp was a Republican. Um he is one of my favorite I would say radical libertarians. I get the Rational Review News Digest every day in my email box. I think you should go to rationalreview.com and sign up uh, and get this great publication that Thomas Knapp puts out, K-N-A-P-P. And here's a guy who was a Republican who was serving in the military under George Bush who was really excited and voted for Bush because he said, read my lips, no new taxes. And then George Bush raised taxes. And then he said, wait a minute. Maybe, just maybe, and now here he is, 27 years later, one of the leaders of one of the, he's one of the more radical people that I follow in the libertarian movement, and it's, and it's because the Republicans, they didn't need, he didn't need some screeching libertarian Mm -hmm. picking on the guy that he liked, he just needed time (laughs) to let that person screw up, to let the Republicans and Democrats do what they always do, which is grow the size and scope of government. Mm -hmm. And then they need a friendly person to stand by them and go, did you see that? That's what I've been saying. Yep. Yep. It's the same thing like uh, with the LP here in Indiana, to go after the Republicans on raising the gas tax. Right. Raising the gas tax. Well, to your local, gas tax is here. And then, well, we won't open a toll roll on an I-70 and I-65, even though we know it would make money. And this is how it's going to be going going forward. So they're going to put a toll road on I-70 right. It's coming. So, you know, it's more of a, like, run on that issue, that they're going to raise this. This is what there's going to happen. And right. Let them, you know, all, you know, no matter what district you're in, make that their issue. Make, put it, make that an issue and hang them on it. The state is going to state. They're yeah, going to do state. what they do. Yeah. They took the survey. They understand exactly how much money they could bring in putting a toll road on I-70 and I-65. Right. So you just need to be a friendly voice that is sitting there going, you see that? I've been telling you this. Or, you know, I think most of us serve as the type of people in uh, in our friends and family life, especially this time of year, you've got that uncle like, hey, what do you think about that? You know, and that's what this show's about. That's, Mm -hmm. what do you think about that? And I think, you know, and this got shared to the Liberty Memes group. Mm -hmm. And it devolved into, oh, we can't talk about politicians now. Or, oh, you like George H.W. Bush? Or, don't you realize George H.W. Bush is the same as Stalin? Whoa. <sighs> no one yeah. is the same as Stalin, every, except Mao. Every, every person who's ever been elected to office is an evil person because they use the force. 
And and it just get it got to a level of absurdity by the end of 100 comments that I couldn't take it anymore. I was ready to quit. Yeah. I was ready to change the name of the show so I wouldn't be associated with libertarians anymore because it's not what I was saying. What I was saying was something very nuanced. And it was that, uh, hey, don't be a dick because if you're a dick online, your friends may not want to be libertarians later down the line. Yeah. Yeah. You lose the argument when you uh, compare, you know, something to Hitler. When you compare something to, st- you know, to someone to Stalin, you you just need to uninstall. Yeah. Just uninstall the internet. Just no, there, there is just no doubt off. that. Just uh, get off. I think what, what um, Nick Gillespie did was a very reasonable way to handle this, which is here's a guy who he, a lot of evil things happened under him. He mm-hmm. was responsible for a lot of evil. Yes, lots of evil. Um, and here the, he didn't, but he didn't frame it that way. He framed it like, here's the reasons that he just wasn't a good libertarian politician. Mm-hmm. Here's where we disagreed. But he seemed like a good guy. Removed, the, removed his emotion, presented right. facts, and right. let you draw your own conclusion. Right. And so, uh, but that that leads me to the next thing that I see in these groups is there there is a I'm I'm really worried about the libertarian movement uh, because I see what's happening to us is what's happening in other uh, movements as well. You see it in the conservative movement; it's a little more you know visual there, where you have the Weekly Standard, National Review, Republicans, and then you've got your um, CRTV. Mm-hmm. Conservatives or your Tommy yeah. Lawrence, you know, you've got you've got this split in mm-hmm. in terms of substance and style, and uh, a lot of this is a style argument. I think that if you post something nice about George Bush but want to end the state, I don't think that that means that you're less of a libertarian. You know what I mean? Like, or it, it, it's it's about how you choose to go about it. Yeah, it's the aesthetics. It's uh, I don't know if you've seen the contrapoints video on aesthetics. I'll sh- share it to you in the uh, Omega chat room. Uh, I'll put it into send it to me and I'll put it in the show notes. Show okay, notes. sorry. Yeah. People going to screech uh, sharing a contrapoints <laughs> video though. By the way, right. I don't care. I I, <laughs> I will get to that point. I will get to the point where I uh, I'm done. I'm done with it. Uh, <laughs> All right, be careful. It's contrapoints. I don't care. I, I, also, I like if anyone's like close to Natalie Wynn, I would love to have Natalie Wynn here on Wall. That'd be amazing. So, so I'm just I'm I'm worried that we're getting to a point where. You can't have reasonable thought. Uh, you know, I, I, like this Swamp episode, um, Rob Cortell has become a good friend. I think he's an interesting person to talk to. I think the episodes with him are it make you it makes you think about things in a different way. Um, it humanizes people who work in Washington D.C. Uh, that these are these are rational people doing rational things to them, but maybe not to us. Uh, and you know, if I post a show. Where this guy is on a libertarian network praising H.W. Bush in these certain ways, uh, it it it's it's technically bad for the brand, <laughs> and it grieves me that we can't have discussion in the libertarian movement without somebody seeing just something as um, fleeting as a title, and then that just becomes their whole assumption about a brand. Uh, I want to present a lot of different sides and a lot of different points of view and i'm just i'm just making the assumption that you're intelligent enough to sort out what you can consume or what you believe or not like having on someone who talks about george hw bush who as a personal friend does that make the network less libertarian well in the eyes of some sure but i don't care anymore because there's a tension between 
Um, what is this? Oh, it's just a time clock. A time clock. Where are you going? Oh, okay. All right. There is a tension between what I want to uh, do on this program, what I think is interesting to me, what I think is interesting to libertarians of a certain variety, what I think is good public discourse, and what is acceptable in certain Facebook groups or in the online Facebook world. And I think when these groups, and I, I, I'm, I'm really, I think Facebook is it's when they introduce groups that they really started to develop the problem because it develops these little echo chambers where people use guilt and shame and these subtle little nudges to think like I do, think like I do, think like I do. Um, you know, and it it's groupthink. It's not individualism. And I, if you don't want to listen to something, don't listen to it. That's fine. But if you're going to tell people not to listen to something because you don't want them to hear it because you think they're actually stupid and you need to control what they think, you're not libertarian. Plain and simple. Um, so, um, and I think that's part of the problem with modern political analysis. It, it's it's black and white. It's anti-intellectual. It's anti-left or anti-right versus solutions. And I think our audiences want us to validate what they believe instead of validating what we believe, right? So let me explain that. I think audiences just want to listen to something that validates what they think, and that's not what I'm here to do. So if you're here just to have your thoughts validated, that's not what I want to do with this program, and it's not something I will ever do. And if it means I'm never popular in the libertarian movement, I just plain don't give a fuck because the libertarian movement is wrong for being anti-intellectual. And someone said recently that I don't understand the libertarian movement. I don't care. <laughs> I, have tens, I have tens of thousands of people in my audience, so I must be doing something right. Uh, and so I just want to say to you, if you find yourself contributing to this siloing of, of, of opinion and uh, this gang-like behavior of you know, misinterpreting what other, some other libertarian said, like, just stop. It's the same reason why you disagree with uh, the whole national anthem, because it's not that you hate the country, not that you hate the songs or the pomp and circumstance that, you know, a lot of stuff that goes with being an American. It's the when you're in it, you get that group think and you stop questioning your government. Right. That's the issue. And that's the exact same with issue you're seeing with liberty movement yeah. is that you're not questioning anything. You're just parroting things that are going on or you know, all around just, you know, doing that group think, well, they all think this way, so this is what I'm doing. It's like, so like, you know, like, they all hate feminists, so I should hate a feminist too. Why? You right. ever listen to one? Ever listen to one that wasn't an asshole? You ever had a conversation with one? Yeah. I had a conversation with one last night, and sometimes it feels tense. Right. I wasn't necessarily tense. I don't know if they're tense, mm -hmm. but we're disagreeing, so it feels like, uh, I'm not people-pleasing right now. We're not agreeing, yeah. you know, but okay. at the end of the day, it's like, all right, I see your point of view and you're right. And mm -hmm. hopefully you see my point of view and you think that there's some valid arguments here. Yeah. And I think that Carly Jepsen, <laughs> that's Carly Rae Jepsen, um, she was on the Glenn Beck podcast, which is really good. And I'm going to recommend Glenn Beck to you because I don't give a fuck what you think because you're wrong. I've Glenn never Beck. seen <laughs> I've never seen a difference in reality as to what the person says on the air versus what people's opinion of uh, of this personality are. Like it's amazing. Glenn Beck is uh, 
consistently having libertarians on. He is uh, moving in a libertarian direction. And Glenn Beck once said on air, I want to come to the Libertarian Party convention in 2016. And Libertarian Party leadership wrote him and said, no, don't come. And you know what? It was years before he ever he had somebody like an Austin Peterson or a Larry Sharp on because he was so pissed off by that. It was a dumb move. Right. Here's a guy who speaks to tens of millions of people and you don't eh, you're not libertarian enough because once you had this belief that I disagreed with. And who even cares? <laughs> who cares? It's media. You are you trying to fundraise? Do you want more than five thousand dollars in your right. campaign bank? We have people involved in We Are Libertarians who was like, yeah, I'm a libertarian because I heard Glenn Beck and I heard him say the word and then I looked up the beliefs and then I realized he wasn't as libertarian as he said and, oh, my God, I'm more libertarian than I think. and, and like Exactly. It, conversation it, is what actually grows things. I think, like, um, like think about, like, sometimes I get upset when I do hear, like, uh, Crowder even calling himself a libertarian. I right. like some of his stuff, but not all of his stuff. I disagree with him more than I agree with him. But... And I get upset sometimes when he calls himself, look, I'm a libertarian conservative, stuff like that. Which, but the thing is, at first I get upset at him saying that, then I start saying to myself, how many people are think that him will say that term, oh, I'm this, and then eventually does, like, decides to duck, duck, go, you know, libertarianism, and go like, wait a minute, and stumble on a book, and pick up a book, and pick up something else. And right. And listen to, like, wait a minute, he's not really libertarian. Yeah. People, there are people who who are obsessed with this show in 2014. Or 2013. And they don't listen anymore. And it's because they grew out of it. They changed. Happens all the time in media. Yep. You know, I was a huge um, Rush Limbaugh fan. Yeah, ditto hits, checking in. I still will listen to Rush occasionally to see what he's saying, but I'm just like, ugh. Like, I feel that way about Ben Shapiro. Like, I think Ben Shapiro is right on a lot of stuff, but I think he's abysmal on things like immigration. I think when he does an immigration show, he is telling lie after lie after lie. Um, Sounds like an isolationist, and he tried to make libertarians sound like isolationists. Here's a guy who calls himself a libertarian, and Ben Shapiro, in the definition, the classic orthodox definition of libertarian, is not a libertarian. No. Um, And I don't want to pick on Ben Shapiro, because I think that, at the end of the day, I think he's an ally in a lot of ways. He is. You know, here's somebody who believes... Yeah, he believes in individualism. He believes in shrinking the size of government mm-hmm. and where we can agree and work together we ought to and where we disagree we ought to politely disagree right you know i think because he thinks different things than me i'm not so insecure about my own beliefs that i need him to believe and validate what i believe yes. and i think that's what it comes down to people are insecure in what they believe because they're not doing their homework and so they need to control other people's messages yes and it's it's comes down to control you have to stop being controlling, um, you know. And, and I think there is uh, there's certainly something for purity and making sure that we're attentive to standards, that we're attentive to what we believe and uh, what we're saying, and measuring issues to you know that that classic orthodox libertarian line. But at the same time, you don't need everybody to agree with you. Yeah, and that's why, like this whole thing of a, this, it's a good you know moment to watch of how libertarians react like from Bush's death right. and doing all this going on. It's, right. you know, you see that like division, the unnecessary division. Right. Unnecessary. You know, because yep. uh, it's going to keep happening as more and more people, because it's, it's, you know, get of that, you know, generation, that 80 generation there, you know, it's going to happen. More of them are going to go. 
I, I want to kind of uh, so take it as a learning moment and move on. I want to kind of illustrate this with uh, with Ben Shapiro because I think our audience, a lot of our audience, probably listens to Ben Shapiro. Um, you know, another reason I don't want to beat up on the guy. Uh, I listen to Ben Shapiro every single day. Um, I <laughs> there are days where I I just can't do it, and there are days where I'm like, yeah, right on. Um, but I listen to him. I listen to Democracy Now. I try. I think Shapiro is good at articulating some things. But I think he is a good example, and I want you, when you listen to Ben Shapiro, to think about some things. And I, I would, uh, if Ben Shapiro were to ever listen to this program, I hope that he would take a lesson away from this. Because I think that he is sometimes part of the problem in that he is promoting anti-leftism as opposed to conservatism. I tune in because I want to hear what Ben Shapiro thinks about things and what solutions he has for certain problems. But a lot of times he just engages in straw men, which is creating the notion of this person elevating a person to, I, you know, this typifies what all people on the left believe, right. uh, you know, for instance. And so let me let me just play this clip because it was uh, very indicative. There's the points that he makes that I agree with. There's points that the person he's talking about makes. Uh, and there's things that I disagree with. But I think. In this episode about George W. Bush that I listened to, this typifies kind of what Ben Shapiro does that I think is hurtful to public discourse. George H.W. Bush is the kind of man who devoted his life to public service. Donald Trump is the kind of man who has devoted his life to, you know, to, to business and, and fame. None of that is specifically a rip on Donald Trump, but the contrast is not kind to Donald Trump between George H.W. Bush and Trump, which is, of course, exactly why the press is making that contrast in the first place. Don't trust the press when suddenly they start telling you that a Republican is wonderful. Because the only Republicans that, pres- that, that the left thinks are wonderful are ones who are out of office or dead. I mean, <laughs> it's not a bad point, but again, the press, the left. It's the basic rule of thumb here. And every so often, every so often, they sort of let the mask slip. Franklin Foer let the- they ask slip over at the Atlantic when he suggested that George H.W. Bush was not a man of courage, right? He actually did not. Here's how he concluded his eulogy of George H.W. Bush. And this is a rare example of honesty from the left on how they actually felt about George H.W. Bush. Well, all people on the left are not honest. (laughs) It's a rare example of people on the left being honest. It's alive. Here's what Franklin Foer, who's disgusting, said over at The Atlantic. He's a disgusting person because he said something I disagree with. Obituaries present George H.W. Bush as the last of the Republican moderates. In reality, he's an archetypal representative of the modern party, a man whose sense of duty failed him when it came to resisting the rise of racially revanchist libertarian forces. He embodied an establishment that wrote a very nice thank you note. That's right. Uh, All libertarians are racist. The libertarian strain in the Republican movement is racist. Uh, So, yeah. A disgusting phrase, a disgusting thought. But good manners are hardly the same as moral courage. Prudence is sometimes hard-hearted. Those who are mourning the passing of the old establishment should mourn its many failures, too. That's how the left really felt about George H.W. All all members of the left felt this way about George H.W. Bush. <laughs> all of them. All of them. And I'm, I'm assigning the word all, but that's in the mind of the hearers. What Ben doesn't understand is that people are hearing all. Uh, and so let's continue. Don't let them put on the mask of mourning in order to pretend that George H.W. Bush was something different for them than Donald Trump. You and I, we can see the differences between George H.W. Bush and Donald Trump, which were many and myriad, some in favor of Bush in terms of character, some not in favor of Bush, maybe in terms of policy. But for the left, the only reason that they are now donning the mask of mourning when it comes to George H.W. Bush 
is so that they can attempt to proclaim that Donald Trump is significantly worse by any sort of comparison. Uh, and they did a study like it, the coverage of H.W. is paired to Bush at the same rate. Like it's all about Trump. Everything is about Trump. And uh, Ben Shapiro is right on the media a lot of times. Uh, and I do do that with the media. The media thinks. But there is a lot of groupthink in the media in, in these major publications. But I do try to specify. Um, you know, And I think it is difficult when you do a program like this to not straw man a lot of times. But I think Ben Shapiro does it a lot. And I think it is a dangerous temptation for any commentator to take their opponents and straw man them and say all statists think. All liberty, all libertarians think. All libertarian party members are X. All conservatives are this way. All liberals are this way. All Antifa members are this way. All state is going to state. All right. So we have to be careful and not lose the complexity of the world uh, through just what is easy and convenient to understand and convey. Is our brain kind of quickly folding things down to make it easily understandable because we've got a lot of information we're trying to process and it doesn't want to use a lot of energy because we don't want to die. Um, but I think that is that is a serious problem that I find with um, with a lot of different people. And I think he is, he is exemplifying here what a lot of libertarians are doing. They're kind of saying all, you know, like... I, all, all anarchists are this way, or all uh, minarchists are this way, or all libsocks are doing that. You know, and we're just kind of strawmanning a lot, and we got to be careful with it. Are those dry, boring, run-of-the-mill political talk shows putting you to sleep on your commute or at work? Are you ready for some fun? Look no further, blast off with Johnny Rocket is a Seattle-based podcast expressing viewpoints of free markets, voluntary exchange, badass music, wicked banner, and of course, drinking. The Blast Off doesn't shy from the truth, but always brings the party. Let's rock and roll, Raylene. Bring it on, Johnny. You can check us out at thelaunchpadmedia.com forward slash blast off. Again, that's thelaunchpadmedia.com forward slash blast off. Launchpad Media. Always launching ideas in your direction. Mortality rate is like the average lifespan. So we'll explain it in a moment. But here's what Ben Shapiro thinks he's doing with his program. This is why you know, so much of my message is concentrated around what can you do in your life to make your life better. You want to make your life better? Go do it. And if there's an obstacle, then let's talk about the obstacle. But if you are spending all your life focused on everything around you and why it's bad, and you're doing that because you lack a sense of purpose, you're not going to be happy. You're going to despair. You're going to feel like there's no one there to pick you up. We all have to be together to pick ourselves up. And I don't mean through government. I mean through shared values and shared community and a social fabric built up over the course of 3,000 years of Judeo-Christian history. It's, it's, this is tragic, tragic stuff. I totally agree with him on the second part, but he thinks his show is picking people up. And a lot of times, I at the end of listening to a Ben Shapiro show, I'm angry, and I am mad at the left or the media. And uh, I, I don't think that his message a lot of time meets that mark of what he wants his show to be. And I am it's something that I want my show to be. I want you to be enriched and happy and more informed when you listen to my show, not angry or pissed off. Uh, I want you to be contemplative, contemplating life in a different way. 
Um, you know, and I think that's what we all strive for. Uh, but I heard th- about the mortality rate story f- on that episode, and it's tragic, Harry. Um, life, expect- life expectancy has been going up since the Spanish flu, the great influenza at, right after World War I. And, it, you know, your average lifespan has continued to increase until the last three years. And two out of the last three years, the mortality rate has declined. And for a, an Im- immensely wealthy capitalist country like this, uh, then that, that's pretty remarkable. I'm not surprised. Why are you not surprised? Um, we live in the land of excess. Um, not the land of uh, minimal food or just enough food and leaving aloneism. So right. we're not going to we're not forcing people not to do things. So yeah, they're going to die early because you could eat all the cheeseburgers you want, and we're not going to force you to work out. I feel personally attacked. <laughs> you know, uh, Chris Fit is not going to force you to you know, put that Chick Fil A and iced tea down. You know, uh, lemonade. Oh, sorry, sorry. Chick Fil A sandwich number one, <laughs> large large lemonade, pepper jack cheese. Uh, so here's the story. This is uh, from USA Today. Uh, suicide and drug overdoses continue to rise in 2017, helping drive the number of U.S. deaths to the highest total in more than 100 years, the CDC says. Uh, tragically, this troubling trend is largely driven by deaths and from drug overdoses and suicides. Life expectancy in the United States of America in 2017 fell to an average of 78.6 years for the total U.S. population, down from 78.7 in 2016. Is that white people or black people? Uh, that's just overall. So, I so don't is know. Is that white people or black people? Uh, it's people, Harry. Oh, We're so. all one color. I'm triggered. Uh, so, overall, more than 2.8 million Americans died in 2017, 70,000 more than in 2016. Vietnam deaths of soldiers was 75,000, so 70,000 more died in 2016. Heart disease, cancer, and unintentional injuries, chronic lower respiratory diseases, and stroke are the leading causes of U.S. deaths. Uh, In 2008, suicide is ranked 10 and has grown at an alarming rate. In 2016, suicide became the second leading cause of death for ages 10 to 34 and the fourth leading cause for age 35 to 54. So in 2016, the second leading cause of death for 10 to 34-year-olds was suicide. Oh, yep. So uh, last year, 47,000 people committed suicide at a rate of 14 per 100,000 people. So think of it this way. A football stadium full of 100,000 people, 14, people of the, 14 of those people are going to commit suicide. Now... Divide that by 360 million. <laughs> okay, so that is up from 10.5 in 99 and 13.5 and from last year. So there is a, a, a serious problem with deaths of despair, drug overdoses, and suicide. Uh, that is the subject of Ben Sass's book, Them, and uh, why this is happening. And that is why we're reading this as our first selection in the We Are Libertarians book club, which you can join on Goodreads or at the website. And it's another way that we're trying to foster a community because we want to talk about why this is happening. You had something to say, Harry? Oh, just make sure you get all your smut off your Goodreads before you join up because people <laughs> like to stare at you. I almost joined up. I was like, whoa, I can't <laughs> see these books. Um, we're a close family. But, yeah, if you want to join the book club and read along with uh, your fellow uh, We Are Libertarians fans, then please do. Um, and that's going to be a, a recurring theme here on the show 
create community, face-to-face community. This is unfortunately not something we can do face-to-face, but if we get enough people, we can spin it off into cities. Um, or you can create a local libertarian book club for your for your own community. We'll help you figure that out with our template. Um, but why are we miserable, Harry? Why do you think that deaths of despair are rising? Why are why are opioids and drug overdoses and suicides increasing in a world where we have access to everything? Everything, yeah. World of excess. Yeah. One thing is um, you've noticed the age group that it has in. So yeah. a lot of these groups are that. Uh, our millennial mindset of people. So a lot of them are hindered with all this debt, possible medical uh, possible medical debt, and then school debt, then not be able to get work from that, and then seeing that possibility of everything they, they were told they could get with their degree and what they have, yeah, not having it. Right. They aren't getting any of it. They aren't getting anywhere. They're not making their foothold that they're expected or the expectation they wanted to get, and no one's willing to help them. Some of them are a lot of the... People who are the suicide rates or drug deaths are, um, you can look into some of the figures and some of them are single fathers. A lot of them are uh, uh, are fathers who aren't able to see their kids and it's heartbreaking and they kill themselves. Aren't 75% of suicides men? Yeah. Majority, yeah, yeah. Majority of suicides are men. Women attempted probably more, but men finished the job. Don't look at me. I'm not going to make a joke. It's just the way it is. Yeah. Um, a lot of some people like suicides that call for help, possibly when it comes to women, but men really do kill themselves. Not saying that women don't, but it's just this is suicide is more of a male problem than a female problem. Yeah, I think, and we've talked about it before. Like, if you're 35, if you're my age, mm-hmm. and you move to a new city, and you're not political and you're not religious, how do you make friends? Right. I don't like to go to bars. Yeah. How how would I make friends? What would I do? Volleyball. Oh, you're too short. Um, bask- oh, snaps. Um, what's 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 a sport for short people? Right, the, uh, a meetup I think is a, a way. The, uh, um, yeah, but that's you can play kind of you can play video games either because there's not right. really a male Bumble, so you can actually meet with guys to go hang out. And do there stuff. is now. Yeah, you is can there? actually meet oh, nice. meet friends on Bumble. Yeah, um, for the for the uh, guys, guys can do that. Actually? Yeah, because our our oh, I think right. about when I was kids, like my parents. Um, their friends were made up of the people that were in our neighborhood. Yeah. You know, this was like 1995. <laughs> like, this wasn't that long <laughs> ago. You know, they, they were hanging out at the community pool making friends with neighbors, you know. And I think now people are going to the pool and reading on a device, mm-hmm. and they're not wanting to talk to other people. Correct. I think, th- did you see the Buddha Box episode of South Park, This new, the newest one? No. Harry, it was art. I mean, if you have Hulu, you got to go watch it. Um, it was amazing. Let me see if I can, let me see. I think I, I got it on Black Friday for ninety nine cents, but I still haven't used it. It is so good. Um, but yeah, I see that. Um, but a lot of that, yes, male loneliness also drives a lot of guys to suicide. Um, the absentee father one—that one's the roughest. That's when the um, mother uh, uses the. Uh, kids as weapons and separates them from the father right and they commit like i was very upset at the snl skit of like this is dad's christmas and they made fun of a lot of these dads who are trying hard and stuff like that to have a good christmas stuff like that it's like well, they're doing decorations all this stuff like that but you've got to understand like that that guy is probably like zapped of all, most of his income to pay for the house that you just left from yeah so here listen listen to this uh clip from the buddha box the premise is basically all right Cartman can't get off his phone, 
and he wants to stand his phone, but people keep bothering him. So he gets this box. Can I take your order? Ignoring Excuse him. Excuse me. What would you like, sir? Can you wait? Isn't that your job? Aren't you a waiter? Hey, could you turn your phone down, kid? This is a restaurant. It just so happens I have anxiety. That means I have trouble being around assholes who won't leave me alone! So, so basically the premise is he just wants to be selfish and be on his phone all the time. So he uh, he becomes an asshole. And so I, I can't – and the doctor goes, just say you have anxiety. <laughs> so it, it's pretty interesting. Um, but I, I do. I think it's a lack of – it's an erosion of institutions. I think mm-hmm. the, the breakup of the family cannot be ignored. And I think we want to ignore it because it seems socially conservative. You know, like you if you talk about – the breakup of the family, then, oh, you're Jerry Falwell. And I think that's a very uh, sadistic rhetorical trick by society. The, the people that want to, I think, see the breakup of the family. Uh, well, yeah, but the family also helps with, like, the helps lift a lot of people out of, out of poverty. Right. Two low income workers living together, you know, does, you know, make you one powerful, one middle income person. Right. You know, two people making $25,000 a year combined together is a $50,000 worker. Yeah. I think economics can't be ignored in this. Yeah. I mean, if you're looking at the wage growth, like Mark Blythe, I posted it on WeirdLibertarians.com. You look at wage growth and then they get to mm-hmm. 72 when they take us off the gold standard and wages go flat, but mm-hmm. inflation goes way up and uh, productivity goes way up. So we're working more. Right, which but, we shouldn't be. Yeah. Right, and we're getting paid the same as our, our parents. Like, millennials make 30% less than their parents at the same age, mm-hmm. which is tremendous. And so you've got student loans, you've got financial pressures, you've got the family issues that you either came from or you're in the midst of. Correct. You've got no institutions to really help you, no so you know private institutions, cultural mm-hmm. institutions, the, the sense of community is completely gone. Um, I think we've got a real shitty soup. And then I think then you add on top of this, this anxiety-inducing device and social media attached to it. And I think it really just drives people mad. I yeah, think there are days – I think it drives people literally mad. There are days that I feel crazy when I'm on my phone. The podcast Sovereign Tech. Uh, references they call it the lead pipes of the internet um, back in the roman empire they used to uh, people would have to show of wealth to have indoor plumbing they had indoor plumbing but they used lead lead pipes which right. was of course lead poisoning lead to bring down and what they could but they wouldn't get rid of them because it's such a status symbol of what they were doing these st- the status this amazing thing of indoor plumbing is literally killing them yeah the lead pipe of the internet yeah it's literally killing you you know that's why a lot of people who invented this stuff don't use it yeah. Not on face. You think Mark Zuckerberg uses Facebook? Really, use it? Who's Mark Zuckerberg talking to? Yeah, he's not using Facebook. Right. A lot of them have flip phones. I don't, I don't care. There are no social networking site. So that's going to kill you. Well, <laughs> right. I think another issue is that we're looking to government and politics to solve every societal ill, and that just leads to chaos. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, that's a, and it's just chaos and mismanagement. Yes. And and it's sold a battle of lies because people are just going to sell something that's going to make them more money. It's the re- main reason why a lot of them you see like pushing everyone to go college because that was their stick. That's helped them kept them fundraising. That's their thing that kept them in office. Right. They didn't really care about you. What degree you got? So so what? 
you spent f- five five years in college and you got out with your communications degree. You know what you're qualified for? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. You know, I got somebody who's like, well, I'm going to try to be a broadcaster. It's like, what's your communications degree? Yeah, I have more mic time than you. And I bet I, if I apply for a broadcaster job, they consider me over you. Yeah. <laughs> My mic skills suck. <laughs> uh, so let's move on to the Paris riots. Um, someone asked in the in the group here, what do I think of Jordan Peterson's book? I've only read the introduction, so I can't really say. Um, but maybe we'll make that a future selection in the book club. Lobster Daddy. <laughs> I've read part of the lobster thing, so I get that at least. Um <laughs> I, l- I like these uh, French riots. I used to read about a lot. They, they know how to riot. Yeah. Okay, so the Paris riots, uh, <laughs> the yellow vest, the gilets jaunes. I have no idea how you say it. <laughs> what are you laughing at? Your French is terrible. Of course my French is terrible. You should try my French kiss. Uh, so <laughs> No, because I see the food you eat. How dare you? What does that mean? I see your food. Yeah. I was eating a grape. Yeah. I had a grape before we started. Sure. sure what does yeah. that have to do yeah, with it? He, it was prunes. He was eating prunes. Probiotic prunes. I have some every morning. Great yep. source of fiber. B vitamins. Gets you ready for the day. Helps you go regularly. Is your gut biome good? Oh, it's the best. I take probiotics, too. Good. What does that even mean? That what, I see what you eat. Yeah, see what you eat. I what see, is that? I've seen that but fridge. The, that fridge is full of vegetables and fruit. Yeah, I see that fridge. You're making no sense. You've lost your damn mind. What are you? What do you even... All the things I've lost, I miss my mind the most. (laughs) I'm done with you. Uh, You know what? You're fired. Get out. Sweet. Oh, thank goodness. (laughs) I already get the door on your way out. (laughs) It's time to shake up your podcast feed, folks, by subscribing to Lions of Liberty, the only libertarian variety show out there. Spend Mondays with me, Mark Clare, as I feature in-depth interviews with great names in the libertarian community and fun roundtable discussions. Electric Liberty Land with me, Brian McWilliams, every Wednesday, your weekly dose of comedy, culture, and liberty. And Felony Fridays with me, John Odermatt, where I expose injustice in the broken criminal justice system. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and at lionsofliberty.com. An overview of the of the Paris riots. Um, the And I'm going to butcher his name, but thanks to Brian Wolgamuth from, uh, for putting this prep together. Uh, I appreciate it. It's great prep. Um, so the overview, the popular protest initially against rising fuel prices in Paris has evolved from a tax protest against Macron and his policies, which appear to be elitist and business uh, driven. So uh, a lot of what's boiling down, you've got these guys in yellow vests because in did you know in France you are legally required to have a yellow vest? One of those safety vests in it's your high car. visibility vest. Yes, I know about it because Top Gear made fun of that. Yeah, yeah, when that came in a lot because it's it's stupid, right. stupid stuff. So you have to. I mean, it's a good idea to have one, but you shouldn't be forced to have one. Uh, and so people are wearing these vests to protest fuel prices, which are rising because of the um, because of the climate change um, battle against climate change, essentially. And so two major tax increases on diesel fuel, a new tax raised diesel to over $7 a gallon, and there's another planned increase in 2019, are affecting millions of French drivers, both personal and professional. And Macron actually came out today and said they're delaying the 2019 ha- tax hike for six months, essentially until they can figure out how to fool you into allowing you to do them to do this. Yep. 
so we're going to delay to figure out how we can compromise on this means we're going to delay so we can figure out how to uh, sell this to you. So Macron spearheaded the diesel tax campaign to make diesel or petrol, either way, gas, prices similar, to combat air pollution and global warming. And so the increased taxes and prices affect mostly rural drivers and companies which do not have access to subways or bus routes. So people in the country who are who are struggling uh, have almost no way to really afford. I mean, think about seven dollars a gallon of gas. That's yeah. a tremendous amount. It's two dollars right now in Indiana. So imagine what that's going to do to food. Food yeah. prices well, alone. It's like thirty eight dollars a pound for beef right now in Canada because of these because of climate change. Yeah, but let's set it up. Let's let's talk about the um, future shithole, which is France. Sorry, <laughs> did I say future? Current shithole, which is France. Um, France, for the longest time, has been a gigantic shithole in the EU, and it's just finally showing its ass because no one really wants to work in France. They don't want to. They haven't wanted to work for years. That's why they've imported so many different people to work for them for lo- for low labor. Um, the other thing, to, this is not the first time they've raised gas taxes and stuff like this has happened. Uh, there's been in the 90s and early aughts, uh, the truck drivers would protest this type of stuff coming in and they would literally take their trucks and block off traffic going in, down into Paris. Block right. it off. These uh, different, like, um, France have been losing their wealthiest uh Earners and big high earners for you know for decades now. As people as they keep hot entering higher and higher taxes, and people are moving out, right. so they're leaving only the massive socialists who live into the city and the farmers who have nowhere else to go because this is their farm and they've been there for centuries. Right. It is disgusting what they do into France, but it's a good you know thing to show like what. The, the type of disconnect you can get for people who live in a city and people who don't. It's the same thing that happens in Indiana. The people who live in the massive donut of Indiana 465 sometimes forget that what they do here affects somebody out there in rural, in the rural county, especially if they use that diesel fuel or something like that for just getting to work, moving things for their job. They usually work with their cars or they use it to heat and turn things on. Right. And that's the biggest issue. Because if you live in this city, yeah, you can get around without using a car. It doesn't affect them that much. They get nuclear power, so they don't have to worry about a diesel generator or anything else getting them power. Yeah, so it, it comes down to the privileged person's favorite uh, mm-hmm. scheme, which is global climate change. It used Correct. to be called global warming. Now, let me be yeah. clear. I believe it, that the oceans are rising, at the, that the... Um, Ice caps in the poles are melting. It is just indisputable that this is happening. Even Rush Limbaugh now says it's happening. Uh, and so the only way for this to really – I mean, I saw an interview with Elon Musk once, and he said the only way to combat climate change is a cap-and-trade system, which is you have to cap – you have to financially penalize people for doing uh, for you, doing behaviors that would affect the rise of climate change. So you have to have – uh, a financial penalty against companies or countries that um, then use too much CO2 or are polluters, and then you can make a market out of that so you can recover some of the money. But see, to do what with? Right. So the elites can have it. Yeah, to do what with. Uh, right. And so people who, talk, people who talk about climate change are really people who are the privileged in society. And I think most of us listening to this, I think we're, we're part of the American elite. What, if you can believe it or not. Yeah. I think yeah. most people You're who, in the 1%. Right. Of the world, anyways. People who live in crushing poverty don't give a crap about climate change. Right. 
They don't care. It's like, oh, the ice caps are melting. I'm trying to live. I will burn right. with everything I can get my hands on. Right. And so that's why 28,000 yellow vests took part in the first day of protests on November 16th, blocking roundabouts and motorway toll booths nationwide in France. On November 24th, yeah. they were about half the size, but they turned violent. And unlike Union-led demonstrations, the amorphous nature of the Gilets Juanes protest, the Yellow Vest protest. Juanes? That's what I heard. I Listen, I went on YouTube to watch pronunciations on this, and that's what they said, man. Gilets? Sounds just like that. Uh, protests also make it more difficult for the government to negotiate with them. Uh, so what do we have to do to calm you people down? And uh, the culprits of these violence do not want change, Macron says. He tweeted out, they want no improvement. They want chaos. They betray the causes they claim to serve and manipulate. They will be identified and held accountable for their actions before the court. Now, here's the problem with any use of any violence ever. When, when violence or vandalism or property destruction became, becomes the nature of the protest, that's what gets reported. If you had 240,000 people around the Eiffel Tower peacefully saying, we don't want this to happen, politicians would be scared. But the second somebody lights a car on fire, politicians are like, yes, we have an out. And so in the military. Right. So violence never, ever, ever, ever improves a situation in any way, shape, or form. Um, so we're all about nonviolent protests. So instead of learning the lesson here that Macron uh, is seeing – these these violent revolutionaries and the crazy thing about this yellow vest revolution is that it's people from the left, the far left, and people from the far right who are working together and coexisting in this uh, this um, what it appears to be a violent overthrow. <laughs> um, so so yeah, diesel prices are already at, at an all time high. Yeah. And the protest began when rising world oil prices combined with an increase this year of 7.6 cents per liter in taxes on diesel pushed prices at the pump up to record highs. Another increase of 6.5 cents a liter planned for early next year is designed over time to align diesel and petrol prices as part of an effort to reduce diesel consumption and thereby curb pollution. Mr. Macron explained, I'd prefer tax fuel to tax fuel than work. Those who complain about higher fuel prices also demand action against air pollution because their children get sick. And so he's saying, I'd rather tax fuel than to raise income taxes. So I'm raising the use taxes. Uh, but this is a very stupid uh, move by Macron because people don't like to pay taxes. So you take it out of their payroll so you never see it missing. Well, the other thing is, uh, if you really want to do climate change, you want to get them off using their diesel electric and moving to an electric or a different type of car, are these taxes going to do that? Is there a right. sunset clause? Did you explain it to them, like, this tax will be on for 10 years when you project that by this time we could go to a an entire electric grid and we can get rid of your diesel cars for you? Right. No, no, no. This is the tax. This is what we're going to bring the money in because we don't want you using your diesel. Right. Uh, so go ahead. Which, you know, like to these people in the rural counties, like, because even out here in Indiana, like they raised, right now gas prices are very, very low right now here in Indiana, and they did raise the gas tax. But you barely have to feel it that much because gas prices have been so low. But the moment the gas prices go back up, it's going to be the exact same way because everyone who uses a diesel truck, rotary owner, or anyone who enjoys a nice muscle car is going to be upset the moment gas goes back up. Right. 
you know, and force like until you're being forced to drive smaller, smaller cars, which is the main reason. If you want to know why Ford and all these other manufacturers had to shut down all these plants, the cafe standards, you raise gas prices up and but you force people into these smaller cars that they do not want. They want large cars. So it forces them to buy SUVs and trucks. Well, only a few plants need it needed to make just SUVs and trucks. So guess what? We're closing the plants down. Hope you, I, like, hope you like your guess. I don't have a new. I have a 2014, and so the first time I got in a rental car and it shut off when I stopped, I was like, "What in the hell is, is going that cool? on?" That's no, cool tech. I hate it. That's awesome tech. That is an amazing piece of technology. I was so freaked out. Uh, thanks, Obama. Well, no, it, it it does it freaks you out, but it's a, but it is a really neat trick that someone made to get get past the cafe standards. Right. So. Let's here. Here's another couple quotes from Macron and what he's saying. How can workers find their place in globalization, which has caused rampant inequality? France, like many other nations, is asking itself that question. So some say we should close ourselves off. We prefer to respond without abandoning our values to build even more. Uh, we need to build an even more common European identity made of dialogue between our imaginary uh, lines and uh, his his popularity has plummeted 20 percent uh so who is actually protesting uh thousands of police have been deployed and benjamin vrignod a 21 year old protest protester from charts <laughs> i don't think that's how you say that but that's how i'm gonna say it it is going to trigger trigger a civil war and me like most other citizens we're all ready uh 21 year old laura corandinier they take everything from us. They steal everything from us. Uh, so uh, far-left leader Jean-Luc Malacon explained to the BFMVT uh, the historical importance on this issue in the Gallic mindset. We tax When tax is no longer agreed to, it's the start of revolutions in France. Uh-oh. So when people are don't agree to pay their taxes, then revolutions start. The gallows are coming back up. Yeah. With 72% for the yellow vest, the attitude of the French is unchanged within 15 days. A Harris poll today, particularly interesting in that respect, says that uh, here are the different party breakdowns of party sympathy for the yellow vest protesters. Uh, The center, 26%. The center right, 54%. The center left, 85%. The Socialist Party. Uh, the far right, 90%. And the unsubmissive France Party, the left wing, 92%. So it's made up of a broad coalition of people. Seventy-five percent of cars have their yellow uh, their yellow jacket on the dashboard as a sign of solidarity, or possibility of having their car windows smashed, which is also true. Uh, so, so it's had a huge impact. Four people have died. Hundreds have been arrested. There's another protest planned for this weekend. Uh, it is uh, it's it's lit, fam. So yeah. uh, stick to. Uh, a lot of it, and you'll have to go watch that Mark Blythe thing that I posted. If you're a podcast person, Raw Audio Politics is one of our podcasts, and I put the audio of it in there at least the first 40 minutes. I mean, he makes gr- he nails the problems. He nails what's wrong. And then in the last four to five minutes, he just is like, yeah, I'm a Bernie bro. And you're like, oh, man, Mark. <clears throat> but uh, he nails it. And, and he, hold on, Harry, he basically just says, you you have income inequality where the rich keep getting richer and the poor keep getting richer, but the middle classes are not growing in Western countries. And then you have jobs leaving, you have wage stagnation, you have 
you have people being jealous of things on social media, for instance, and, and people just there is a there is an anger within people. And uh, I think that's why Trump and Bernie Sanders and all these various groups around the world start to actually nail it. Uh, and I'll, I'll end with uh, a clip in just a moment, but you were about to say something, Harry. I'll just say, like, um, France is the socialist country that most, most people, uh, most socialists don't want to talk about or bring up about. Right. You know, there's a lot of examples of some nice things that happened in France, but it's all more bad than there is good. Right. And that's the, you know, and, it, and it's one where, like, they want to talk about Scandinavian countries. Like, okay, no, 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 let's leave it alone. Let's talk about an actual country that talks about socialism all the time. Let's talk right. about France. And we'll talk about what happened when they started the raising the taxes on, the one, on their 1% and what the hell happened. They yeah. left. And, you know, and it's showing itself. It's really showing itself. Well, people, and, I, and I've expressed this on the show, you know, like after the tires thing, it's just, it's like, you know, my car engine light went on today. And it's just like, fuck. I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm not taking out credit to fix a thousand. How many thousand dollar expenses can one person have in a year? And why does this cost a thousand dollars? This shouldn't cost it. You know, and I was talking with my dad. And my dad finally uh, relented and said, yeah, you guys are getting screwed. You know, because people don't get that. Like, uh, you, you look at the millennial generation uh, you know, there's an article today blaming us for the death of tuna. And there was this Fed report uh, that I posted on my personal Facebook that you can go find where basically millennials make 30 percent of what their parents did. And they aren't killing these industries because they don't like this stuff or their patterns have or their tastes have changed. It's that they're broke. Yeah. And so I'm fortunate that I dropped out of college because I got into the workforce two years before the collapse. You know, like I know uh, people who quote unquote did it right and finished their degree. Um, you know, I was eighteen on nine eleven. You know, fr- our generation went and fought two wars. One of them completely illegitimate. The other just sort of illegitimate. Uh, <laughs> then, uh, we're still there. A person who is seventeen years old and can go serve in Afghanistan has no idea. He was not born on nine eleven. A person who is 17 today can go serve in a war that was started by an event he was not alive for. Um, mm. Then people graduate in 2008 to no jobs. Boomers don't retire, so their wages are lower. If they do get a job, they're underemployed. Yep. Uh, you know, right out of high school, there's a recession because of 9-11. Right out of college, there's a recession. And everybody just, I think at the millennial generation, we just feel screwed. And, mm-hmm. and it's kind of hopeless. And it's and, and then on top of that, you've got these hundred thousand dollars student loan payments. Yes, you know everybody has ten to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of student loan debt. You don't, but that's because you're annoying. And so <laughs> the the reality is that everybody is living off of credit right now to make it to make it stretch. I know because you're annoying. You're not, but everybody else in the real world is uh, living off of. Uh, they're just stretched on credit. And so what happens when the next crisis hits and the credit bubble bursts and the Fed can't inflate all those bad assets away? I mean, it's foolish for us to think that 2008, the Fed just bought all those bad assets, printed all that money, and nothing bad is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Silly. Yeah, it, 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 is, it is scary. Just, just like Because if something like that happened again, a lot of people's finances have not recovered. Right. 
They haven't recovered. Or we work in it, uh, a lot of people work in industries that are only bought up because the economy is good. Like even my job, my job is only good as like because I work in mass customization because people have extra money, they want something custom. Right. You know, and you know, I have, you know, there's, I'm not kidding myself. Like a recession happens that I know something bad is going to happen at my company because of the way it's set up. Yeah. You know, we will have to tuck her down. You know, yeah. so I'm trying to make sure like I, my department stays, you know, cash positive as best as possible, you know, and sure we keep value driven because, hey, I can run this thing in the red and just keep doing thing and building and buying stupid stuff. But the, but the moment something bad happens, in the economy is like, who's going to want custom T-shirts? The economy is softening. You have two generations now, which are the biggest in existence, the, the millennials and the Gen Z, the Zoomers. As they're now called, Zoomers. Zoomers. Zoomers is a nice, easy name. Uh, and so you've got Y and Z. Mm-hmm. Um, you know why they're all twenty-one? Like these kids just want to riot and blow stuff up. You know they're not. They, they don't, don't have anything. Uh, they don't have anything. And that's not true because these Antifa kids. It's been it's been proven in study after study that these are all just kids. People on the far right and the far left who are fighting. Th- th- these people are all middle class suburbanites. These mm-hmm. are people who just. You you have the privilege to go and protest like this when you're from a rich or middle class family. Mm-hmm. Uh, frankly, you know these Antifa kids are 21 and from wealthy families, um, so they're they're idiots. But <clears throat> um, can you please take this cat? Hipsters got to do something on the on their right. days off. But y- you have. I just look at the entire economy and I go, it's all fake. It's a house of cards. What does anybody do? <laughs> what does anybody really do? Yeah. You know, I think people go to work and they just kind of sit and look at their screen and pretend they're working. And we have millions of people in this country doing that. Mm-hmm. And they're barely making money. They're overextended on credit. And when reality catches up to us and we have a real good wallop and we have a depression, mm-hmm. it- I, th- I think it's... We're not going to come back from it. We're going to have more and more automation. Yeah. And then you're going to have 50% unemployment in the millennial and Gen Z generation. Mm-hmm. And men, and, and men specifically, and men are already upset, and men are violent. And it's, it's uh, you look at the Arab Spring. Uh, Ten years ago, I remember Glenn Beck talking about the coming, the book, The Coming Insurrection. Mm-hmm. And then he said, there's going to be violent protests from leftists. They're going to start these fires and, and places. You're going to see the Middle East finally erupt. You're going to see a caliphate develop out of that. And everybody called him nuts. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, hmm, maybe he wasn't as nuts. And I, and I remember him saying when the Tunisian fruit vendor lit himself on fire, he goes, watch, this is the beginning of the end of the global, the global system that we have built because it's unsustainable. And I think he's exactly right. I think we're looking at the beginnings of Western countries starting to have their Arab Spring. Uh, it, it is, it, it is going to be a bumpy ride, I think, for the next twenty years. I'm Get co- your brass now. Yeah, right. Buy your guns and your your stuff now. Well, yeah, I, it is because you see so many different of these uh, Silicon Valley, California companies that get start up, and they don't produce they don't produce anything. They don't have anything. You're, you're telling me Facebook has the same market cap as GE? Yeah. They don't, te- they don't produce anything. Tesla has the same market yeah. cap as GM. Correct. And a lot of those dating apps and stuff like that. Like when I went out to California, I was seeing like, wow, why does Bumble have this shop here? 
It's just a dating app. You don't have anything. Why do you have this physical location? It's the most one of the most expensive cities to be in. This is the dumb move. So they have like a storefront. Yeah, yeah. Oh, just their office. Just their office. Oh, it's like, okay. This is dumb. This is dumb. Facebook. You, Facebook goes. Dumb. To, Facebook goes down tomorrow. What do they have? A bunch of computers that you can't resell. Right. Bunch of computers you can't resell. Right. Because who's gonna? They could be resold, but you you're not gonna get you're not gonna get crap for them. Right. You're not gonna get crap for them because there's so many. There's so no, many. There's no real no, supply chain. Right. No one needs right. any. And the person that really hurts from that from those going down, Dell, CDW, right? You know, whoever like sold those or sells those computers like that, and that type of bulkness, they get hurt, right? Uh, so they're going to make sure those don't stay in. They, those have to leave the country, right? Um, so they don't have any, but it's stuff like that. It's like, why are you in one of the most expensive places to be? You could be anywhere in the world. A lot of these vanity, like I was sitting there, like when I was in California, downtown San Francisco, I was like, well, there's so many people that have these headquarters here out of vanity reasons. And then it was, and I can make understand, makes complete and total sense that Salesforce, they actually have a product and got the hell out of San Francisco. Yeah, they're here in Indianapolis. Yeah. yeah. Now, the, do they still have a tower and stuff in there? Yeah, that thing is vacant. I rent that sucker out. <laughs> right. It's a vanity thing, and they're ready to jump ship at any moment. In San Francisco? Yeah, oh, yeah. They're ready to jump ship and come into India at any moment. They've ready to jump ship so fast that they have influenced the Indiana uh, tax system, so uh, software as a service is uh, not taxable here in Indiana. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Okay? They're ready to jump. When Mike Pence tried to do the religious freedom law, Mark Benioff was one of the few people who spanked him, mm-hmm. and one of the many people who spanked him, I should say. And uh, that was the one that everybody listened to. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're re- yeah. Salesforce is the, be the first ones to jump. They'll be like, "Oh no, sell that." Well, people think that um, Purdue and other countries. People think Purdue's an Ivy League school because it's it's up in La- West Lafayette and it's an, an engineering school. And mm-hmm. we have Rose Holman, yeah, which is another great engineering school. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of intelligent talent here in the state, right? And so, right. and the type of talent that wants to stay in one spot, work at a company, and just do good code—that wants to start a family, right. not just like I'm just doing code because I just fresh to college, just let me do code. Right? No, you want the coder that's going to like, hey, I've got bills to pay, I've got a family to feed, I need benefits, I'm just going to come in here and code for ten years. Right? Cool. That's what you need, and that's what a lot of like that's what Salesforce is finding out. You know, you right. need you need coders like that. Yeah. So. um Let's end this segment with the uh, a prophet, a prophet of the 20th century, Mr. George Carlin. But there's a reason. There's a reason. There's a reason for this. There's a reason education sucks, and it's the same reason that it will never, ever, ever be fixed. It's never going to get any better. Don't look for it. Be happy with what you got. Because the owners of this country don't want that. I'm talking about the real owners now. The real owners, the big wealthy business interests that control things and make all the important decisions. Forget the politicians. The politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. You have no choice. You have owners. They own you. They own everything. They own all the important land. They own and control the corporations. They've long since bought and paid for the Senate, the Congress, the state houses, the city halls. they got the judges in their back pockets. And they own all the big media companies, so they control just about all of the news and information you get to hear. They got you by the balls. They, they spend billions of dollars every year lobbying, lobbying to get what they want. Well, we know what they want. They want more for themselves and less for everybody else. But I'll tell you what they don't want. They don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. 
That's against their interest. That's right. They don't want people who are smart enough to sit around the kitchen table to figure out how badly they're getting fucked by a system that threw them overboard 30 fucking years ago. They don't want that. You know what they want? They want obedient workers. Obedient workers. People who are just smart enough to run the machines and do the paperwork and just dumb enough to passively accept all these increasingly shittier jobs with the lower pay, the longer hours, the reduced benefits, the end of overtime, and the vanishing pension that disappears the minute you go to collect it. And now they're coming for your social security money. They want your fucking retirement money. They want it back so they can give it to their criminal friends on Wall Street. And you know something? They'll get it. They'll get it all from you sooner or later because they own this fucking place. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. (laughs) You and I are not in the big club. By the way, it's the same big club they use to beat you over the head with all day long when they tell you what to believe. All day long, beating you over the head in their media, telling you what to believe, what to think, and what to buy. The table is tilted, folks. The game is rigged. And nobody seems to notice. Nobody seems to care. Good, honest, hard-working people. White collar, blue collar, doesn't matter what color shirt you have on. Good, honest, hard-working people continue. These are people of modest means. Continue to elect these rich cocksuckers who don't give a fuck about them. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't care about you at all. At all. At all. Yeah. You know? And nobody seems to notice, nobody seems to care. That's what the owners count on, the fact that Americans will probably remain willfully ignorant of the big red, white, and blue dick that's being jammed up their assholes every day. Because the owners of this country know the truth. It's called the American dream, because you have to be asleep to believe it. That was 2008, believe it or not. And uh, that was George Carlin... I love comedians because I think comedians can tell, well, they used to be able to tell hard truths to people in a way that they would accept. And uh, George Carlin was way ahead of his time, and that is, um, uh, I think it just articulates the way that people feel 10 years. I mean, I remember the first time I saw it, I was just like, oh, man, that's that's uh, that's crazy. But now you look at it and you go, shit, that is exactly how I feel. Uh, and so how do you combat it? How do you fight it? You have to be an independent thinking person and you have to pay attention because exactly what he said about media. Have you noticed that in the Arab Spring, uh, it is amazing, the flowering of democracy that is taking place with the use of social media. People are using Twitter and tear gas to change the world. More at 11 o'clock tonight. What a beautiful thing. Uh, Wolf Blitzer screams as his tiny little pink nipples get hard as he's shouting about the flowering of democracy in the Middle East. Fast forward uh, six years to the Yellow Vest movement and the rise of uh, populism in Western countries. And it's, we need to shut down this fucking social media thing because it's killing democracy. (laughs) The elites in media, the elites in politics, the elites in government, the elites in the banking system, the elites in business want social media gone because it gives me and Harry the ability to talk to you and they can't have that shit. So... How do we fight it? You continually spread the message about this show. You start your own projects. You be courageous in the face of feeling judged when you have a truth to say. You share information that you think is important. And if you get shut down, then so be it. You move to the next platform. You have to start creating the world that is sustainable for yourself. 
You have to focus on the individual, yourself. You have to focus on those around you. You have to focus on creating a world for those around you in your community that is sustainable and that is self-reliant. And we have to start taking care of each other. And we have to stop focusing on what 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 these... <laughs> you know who's ripping you off, so stop playing their game. And uh, I think that we have to start um, taking care of each other and building communities around not only our ideas, but we have to start living them out. Yes, exactly. So, uh, Harry, are you a prepper yet after that? <laughs> Um, Next question. All right. (laughs) But yeah, it's yeah, and that's why they're very scared of all the other alternatives and going after different things and demonizing things. That's why when anything went too far, you know, it had to be shut down. You are correct because it did allow people to talk, understanding that like the Silk Road was a very very dangerous thing to the system. It under it showed people like whoa 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 if you just let commerce. It's nothing violent in the drug deal. It's nothing. Money is being changed hands. Who's bringing the violence? Right. The governments. Governments are bringing the violence. And the gangs are responding with the government's violence. Ross Ulbricht is running something called Silk Road, right? Was. Was running something called Silk Road. Yeah. It was a dark web trading post. And uh, the government just felt it had the authority to lock him up for doing something they didn't like. For li- uh, Yeah, double life sentence. Right. Um, for running a website. Never right. touched the drugs. He just took the money, ran the site. Right. Uh, a lot of people go like, well, he you know, did a murder for hire charge. Never been proven and it was actually thrown out and it wasn't even brought up in his case hearing, but was used to uh, for his sentencing. Right. But it was never got to defend himself against that charge. And the charge was eventually dropped without, with prejudice in his case. Yep. You know, But he's still serving a double I sentence based off of something that, wasn't, that he couldn't defend himself against. So the system is bull crap. If you want to know, like, it, uh, where somebody was like, where my faith in the system died, it died a long time ago, but it really died if you just look at it, what happened to the Ross Ulbricht case. Yeah. I, I mean, you look at what's going on with the Mueller stuff right now. Yeah. Uh, the These are all processed charges. Like, yeah. they, they have some proven collusion. While we were sitting here, um, uh, Mueller recommended, after extensive cooperation with his investigation, no jail time for uh, Michael Flynn. But, you know, if you believe some of the stories about um, why uh, Michael Cohn just had to plead guilty mm-hmm. in court, it's that he basically said a flippant comment of, you know, when did you when did you end this Russia deal? He said, uh, I think it was January 2016. Right. And it happened to, and then they found emails and mm-hmm. communications after that. Right. And so I think it was turned into you're lying, and you're now going to plead guilty to this in court. Uh, so. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, this is your plea deal, right? Because you, you lied to a federal agent. You lied to a federal agent. It was actually July. Uh, okay, you made him. You know, and they tripped court, Jerome Corsi up, who's an idiot, who's mm-hmm. just stumbling his way and doesn't. Like, why is this guy on TV? He's the dumbest. He must have the worst counsel if he has any. Uh, I mean, Roger Stone is doing it the right way where he's just, he's basically making the argument. And he's right. Like, you're just going to criminalize politics? You're going to criminalize political gossip? Because that's what this is. Yeah, that's what you're doing. 
does it make any of it right? Mm, no, but it, it, everybody does it. So now everybody, there's a standard for everybody going to jail. It's just going to be used against people that the the, the system doesn't like. Uh, so that's why I'm generally against this entire investigation because I don't think there was any collusion, but I also think that there is a lot of precedents being set uh, that are criminalizing just standard parts of of politics. Um, I just think the whole thing is it's it's you, you have to just. All I can say is this: if the Russian government is so powerful that they could collude and get Trump elected the heck are you going to stop anything else <laughs> right what are you, what are you gonna right. do what are you gonna do right <laughs> like fool. really really what are you gonna do and if there was okay let's say all right let's let's play a game let's say russia did collude with with them right how's Mo- if Mueller really did find something putin would just take him down he already owns the president right you could just get you can get hit by a bus very easily. <laughs> and it's he not is, like the Russian government's not beyond poisoning someone outside. He is not saying that should happen. I'm he not is, saying that should happen. Right. I'm just saying I don't put it past Putin for taking out somebody who, you know, is getting ready to open their mouth. Right. You know, Putin be like, oh, shouldn't open his damn mouth. Or <laughs> should look, shouldn't open that door. Yeah. You know, that's why I said it's like it's, it's bullcrap. It's like because united states we play these games like we play this game of civility and not hurt anyone to do so like those are the games that we play inside the united states now granted changes to some of the um smaller um races they do some of that boss hog crap where they will like hurt people like feed them the gators yep feed them, or um snapping turtles um then there's but over there in russia they, they do the poisoning and the invading of <laughs> territories, and yeah, they do it. Kinda, <laughs> they do it as a message. Yeah, yeah, or just I don't know, kill a you know uh, a journalist in an embassy. Yeah, that, uh, <laughs> yeah. <concern. laughs> Are you tired of banging your head against the proverbial wall of politics and getting nowhere toward actually making your life more free? Are you tired of interview podcasts that have the same guests as every other libertarian interview podcast out there? Are you tired of hearing the same news stories that you can hear on the mainstream media? Then you need to listen to The Lava Flow, where we don't do politics and we don't do the major stories that exist only to divide you. We talk about news that affects you and your freedom, and we work to find solutions that can actually help you to be more free. Check us out at thelavaflow.com. Let's wrap up with a listener letter. Uh, we're not going to have time for the other two subjects I had planned or the Stone's fault. or the undercover news. Stone, uh, Stone's fault. I'll still put the undercover news uh, stories, which is uh, the so. Indiana Solicitor General got laughed at by the Supreme Court over... Um, it basically, here's the reason headline. It's constitutional to seize a car for driving five miles over the speed limit here in Indiana, according to the Solicitor General. And then a fake news alert. Like, Creighton brought this to my attention. Uh, phrases such as bringing home... All right, let's get back to some boring subjects. Understand the risk to our country. Freedom brings people together. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. Hey, welcome to We Are Libertarians. My name is Chris Spangle. You're listening to episode 312 of this esteemed weekly program, a bi-weekly program. And uh, it is December 4th, 2018. My co-host is Harry. I have no idea what he's doing over there. 
complaining about something as usual. Follow this chord here, and that'll help you out. We're going to talk about the death of George H.W. Bush. We're going to talk about the mortality rate dropping for the second uh, year in a row. First time in like 100 years. And we're going to talk about the Paris riots. So uh, those, those Frenchmen lit over there. All right, we'll be right back after these messages. Warning. This show is for adults, produced by semi-adults. So the language is sometimes strong and offensive. Uh, I don't know what I said. Uh. Welcome to We Are Libertarians, where our goal is to help you sound smarter while talking to your friends. We examine current events from a libertarian perspective while treating modern politics with all of the irreverence it deserves. There has been lie after lie. We toss out the screaming heads, put people before political parties, and give context to the news to make you think. Now, here's our host, a 15-year veteran of politics and media, Chris Spangle. All right, crisis averted. Harry can hear now. He is uh, he's have, having trouble putting it in the hole over here. Uh, so I, I did a League of Liberty podcast. So if you're a Patreon subscriber of my show, of the Launchpad Media with Johnny Rocket, his uh, network, your Patreon subscriber, Lions of Liberty, or the Lava Flow podcast. Uh, we've done 11 episodes now. There's a super podcast, uh, and it is basically the four of us. It's a super group of libertarian podcasters. Uh, several years ago, we were talking to Being Libertarian about actually going on to their platform. I think it was different management at the time. And we were like, this doesn't sound like a good deal for us. Why don't we just start our own little cooperation i guess you should say and so you know we trade out spots which you'll hear later and we promote each other and we're in like a nice little group and we do a a monthly show where it is the four of us uh chit-chatting and i did that last night it was a lot of fun if you're a five dollar a month patreon subscriber then you're gonna hear that show if you are a ten dollar a month and you can watch it there's actually video now uh roger and i got along and it was a nice little uh fun show um, but it always throws off all my equipment, Harry. Harry Price, how are you? Going good, going good. So that's why you've destroyed this entire side of the uh, Destroyed studio. is a hard... Something was unplugged, and dainty little fingers over here was like, <laughs> um, help me, I can't plug this in. Mr. Technology for a major multi-location company can't figure out how to plug in a, a cord. Correct, correct. That's uh, <laughs> Like I manage the IT department, so I don't really touch the stuff anymore. Right? Yes, you're more of an in a managerial yeah, role. Yes, exactly. I more point. I write the sheets of paper on how they're supposed to do it. Well, we appreciate Harry being here because Harry took a big promotion at work. Uh, he started that job mm-hmm. less than a year ago. Correct. Like six months ago. Yeah. It seems like. And he came to me about a month ago and said, "Listen, I'm probably going to take this promotion. I may have to quit the show." And I was like, uh, well, I don't think that's going to be uh, – that's not going to work for me, so you're not going to be able to take this promotion. And uh, he said, okay. And so you took the promotion anyways. You did the exact opposite of what Dear Leader commanded. Well, first off, when I walked into the meeting about the promotion, <laughs> I, uh, I said I didn't want it, but if they were going to get somebody to run the IT department, I basically gave a roadmap of – who this person should be, right? and right. what's the plan going forward for the next four months in the IT department for the next quarter, and what should happen. And then they, sl- then they asked me, like, well, why, 
why can't this be you? Right, because Dear Leader told me I can't. And then they said, what? Who is that? <laughs> yeah, they're like, who's that? Well, he's this guy. He's he does the a- president of all libertarians. How yeah. have you not heard of him? <laughs> he hosts a highly, uh, highly listened to, moderately respected podcast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep, and they took that information, and then um, they presented me with zeros, and then I took it. <laughs> And I couldn't even get mad, but uh, fortunately, Harry has carved time out of his busy schedule. Yes. Uh, so he, he will still be here. He will still be a part of us. Uh, you know, uh, I'm losing a co-host a year now. <laughs> Haven't lost me yet. Yes. Yet? Why'd you put yet in there? Well, you know, I just I still haven't gotten my 2019 contract approved. The last, you know, we're still in talks with wall management. I'm still trying to get that approved. I mean, wall management's it's- much, much tougher than who you work for. <laughs> wall management refuses to listen especially if they have not had their nap i know it's rough (laughs) going so late (laughs) yeah so uh yeah so harry harry is uh he's a mess most of the time now he's he's here but he's he's a mess well because we got so many people at different locations and you know you think Slack will tell them, like, hey, these are my time zones. I'm active between these different times. They don't understand that. Right. A lot of these other people did different times. So, so I actually put on the calendar at work, like, wall time. Right. Like, so, like, it just flat out says I'm on air from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. every Tuesday. Right. And then I carved out a um, small, steady time for, like, just studying for, like, one so I could finish my degree program and wall study time. You know, which most of everyone does like approve on it. I understand. I put notes like, hey, if it's an emergency, you can interrupt me and stuff like that. Some people do respect that. There are some people in other time zones, which I won't talk about the bad about them. They don't care. People in California don't care. And it's I'm not saying this is who California in your case, but I'm saying in my experience, people who work in California and Pacific time people in general I feel bad for them in some ways because their TV starts at like 4 p.m. or whatever. Yeah. But they have no sense of respect for our time. I'm sure they feel that way in the morning. The Eastern oh, yeah. people call all hours of the morning. Leave me alone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They hate it when I message them at 10 a.m. Right. Or sorry. Sorry. I'm in 7 a.m. their time. Right. Uh, I had a, I've been having an issue at work, and I had programmers who were in Pacific Time, and they had to be up at three this morning. Mm. So uh, went above and beyond the call of duty. So well, we, they keep do, they want to do these um, bi-weekly meetings with the whole company, but they want to do them at four o'clock on a Friday. Right. So I'm drinking a beer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now Reinhold was supposed to be with us tonight, but Reinhold uh, has some sort of issue and uh, some sort of. Uh, I think a fecal issue that might I don't know if that one just made that up. <laughs> he wasn't feeling well, so he's like, "I don't want to give you this to you and Harry." I was like, "Stay home, don't come here, don't listen, people, 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 listen up. If you are sick, don't go to work. Yes, don't, don't be the hero." I want to. You are correct. No, did I play the hero a few weeks ago? I sure did. You shouldn't have. I, but I, it was awesome. I had to. We had a machine that went down. Right and. Everyone couldn't. We couldn't get a hold of anyone. Like I was down. I was telling. I was puking all night. Right. But with that, every hour that machine was down, it was ten thousand dollars. Ooh. Yeah. See, that's a hero. So I had to come in and play the hero. Right. I'm talking about <laughs> the guy or gal out there who just you know. 
they they can't do anything without me. I've got to go. I've got to oh, be yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. yeah no. Just go no, home. Go home. Nobody Just, needs you. Yeah. If you've got a machine like that, you have the skill that needs it to do. Because the thing is, like, I had the skill to do it, but I needed one more other person. So we basically, like, so the other guy, you know, he was there and I was there. So it was the two of us. And we got the machine going up. And, you know, and then as soon as I got it done, I went to my office, went underneath the desk. And I, there I just stayed for, like, you know, I just drank NyQuil underneath the desk until I felt good <laughs> to drive home. Aww. It got, yeah, it was so bad. Like, my like yeah, my boss in California, like, do you want me to call you an Uber? I will pay for this Uber to get you home. I don't know if, <laughs> All right, let's let's get started with the show. We got a jam packed show today, and uh, I had two topics that I actually dropped off of the list because it's like there's no way we're. Gonna, I, I had like six topics, and you know us. If we did six topics, we'd be here till midnight. So I decided to just drop those off. The border crossing uh, has kind of been covered in the daily, and then Mueller we're going to cover for a couple weeks. So I think we could get to six topics the moment Stone finally does move to Indianapolis and yes. becomes full time producer, and he sits there and he keeps us on. You know, somebody to keep time. We need yeah. somebody to keep time and say, "Hey," because uh, that's, it, that's we, you have a big clock right in front of you in radio, and that really helps you. But we're talking about George H. W. Bush's passing today. Uh, we're going to talk about the mortality rate dropping and why that may be. Um, we're going to talk about the book the book club that we formed. If you're a reader, then you're going to want to join the book club. You can uh, find us on Goodreads, which is a great site, uh, and you can join the group there. Or you can go to the show notes or the website and find the, the book club link. Our first book is Ben Sass's Them, and uh, I purposely chose a non-libertarian book for a reason but it is a book that i've been i'm about halfway through it is fantastic and it fits into the mortality rate stuff and it talks about community and so i think for the first book we wanted to do um a, a book about community and uh, it's very interesting uh, i got an email from a listener who wants to start maybe a book club podcast so we may do that too as well uh, so lots of cool stuff a lot of great ideas coming in as nice. we as we encourage you to give back to We Are Libertarians, if you get something out of We Are Libertarians, uh, this, this book club was started by Hody, for instance. And uh, Hody's doing a lot, so somebody may want to step up and run the actual discussions around the book club and mm-hmm. organize the conference calls, the, the online chat that we're going to have about the books, which we're then going to publish uh, for Patreon members. You know, we put a lot into this. There's, I, I had my annual review today. Mm-hmm. And it uh, went really well. Good. I was told that I was. Uh, you. He goes. You could look at it that you're difficult to manage because you're so. Well, let's say independent minded. <laughs> 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 he goes. But more, it's just like put the white fences up and stay in between these lines. And it's. And it's true. And I. You know. I told him. I was like. You realize I run like twenty forty people. I manage twenty to forty people that that contribute to weird libertarians. Yeah. There's a lot of people that put, go that put their time and effort into this now, and have always put that much time and effort into it, uh, and they get a lot out of it. I mean, you being a part of We Are Libertarians, what value have you gotten out of it? I got your friendship. Uh, well, what else? <laughs> <laughs> About that. <laughs> 2019 contracts changing. <laughs> Trying to butter you up. Um, <laughs> let's see. I love the discussions and the group and the friendship that I have brought from just being a part of uh, We Are Libertarians. The intellectual stimulation. Yes. To be able to, to sit there. Sexual and, stimulation. No, none of that. 
none of that. All this right. Is, you know, yeah, I'm sorry. None of that. <laughs> okay. There's like one close, but you know, he, you know, he doesn't like, you know, shaking it for <laughs> but me But seriously, what have you gotten out of it? Uh, yeah, but the intellectual stimulation there, because I really do love playing video games and stuff like that and be able to have these like discussions. Especially when you're sitting there waiting and stuff like that, just having these discussions. That's what I've gotten out of the community. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you get friendship, you get intellectual stimulation, you find like minded people where where I I often call this the island of misfit toys here in the libertarian movement. Mm -hmm. And boy, did I really feel that way this week as, uh, you know, John Ulrich, who is a very, I would say, right leaning libertarian. Is in a group with very left-leaning libertarians, and he feels at home. And it's because everybody has we set a certain tone and demand certain things from our community, you know. And you go in other groups, and you're just like, "Oh, this is just virtue signaling to see who's the most pure," and I can't take it. Um, but the the community is really strong, and so because Harry gives his time, he gets value back out of it, and that's part of it. So if you're good at something, or if you have an asset, or if you have a skill set, or uh, you just love the show and, you, you know, give to Patreon. Mm-hmm. That's the easiest and cheapest way to mm-hmm. give mm-hmm. is to give money because then that keeps uh, me flush with resources. Like, for instance, I've just updated our wish list, which you can find at the website. I need a few microphones, uh, USB microphones to send out to some of our daily hosts. You know, if you're like, I don't have the time, but I've got 70 extra bucks laying around for my Christmas money and I love the dailies. And I want them to sound a little bit better. Then that's one way that you can give back. You can do it that way. You can do it on Patreon. Um, but if you have some extra time, I have some fantastic notes. We now we're now up to like ten people contributing in our uh, prep team, and they're having a great time. I'm having a great time talking with these folks and putting together this stuff. And uh, you know, we've got some really great shows on impeachment coming up, both the history and the legal aspects of it. And it just adds a new dimension for me as a host because I'm seeing all kinds of new stuff, like new angles that I wouldn't have thought of, but the, these 10 people did. So uh, it's it's a time commitment, but it's not overwhelmingly, it's not burdensome by any stretch of the imagination. But, uh, you know, several of you have written in and said, hey, I want to do this, or you've just done it and you've started promoting it, which is ideal. Yes, You don't even need to run it by me. Just do it. Grow the We Are Libertarians community. Grow the We Are Libertarians podcast by just promoting it. I am done with trying to promote this show. This is your responsibility now. My job is to come here and give you consistently good content that makes you think and makes you sound smarter when you're talking to your friends. My my time after seven years of promoting the show, I'm done doing it. Like I will go. I, I just I want to focus on bringing you great research shows. And growing the platform is now the audience's responsibility. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Makes sense. It's it's just I have to choose what I can devote my time to. And I think that giving you a good show is better, you know, than than me going out and saying, please listen, please listen. It's more effective if the audience goes out and says, please listen to this show because I really like it. Yeah. Yeah. You are. Yeah. You're listening to the show. Welcome to the marketing team. Right. If you, if you if my voice is hitting your eardrums right now, you are responsible for growing. We are libertarians. A share on Facebook or Twitter, a personal recommendation on those social networks, via email, texting it to a texting it to a friend, writing a review on on iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher, that costs you nothing. At least give just back that. Okay, that's all I'm asking for. So it's the holiday spirit. Give. Yeah. 
So, yep. uh, and we'll keep this going. We'll keep doing this, and we'll keep growing, and uh, and and it's just going to get better and better and better. And there's many things that I'm talking with the team about doing, and we're going to do it. And I'm gonna. I've got some exciting things that I'm not going to tell you about, Harry. Ooh. So uh, it'll just be a surprise. All right. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Is so, Stone going to pop out of the closet? No, Stone is not going to pop out of the closet. Okay. He's triggered right now. Awesome. Harry, what are you doing? Playing Deep Space Waifu. <laughs> is this an actual game? Sure is. I'm going to do it. I'm putting on one hand mode. <laughs> okay, don't do that in the middle of the studio. What? It's, it's How, so, what are you trying to get yourself a waifu? Yeah, yeah. Well, you defend your waifu and you try to undress her with the with the gun. It's really cool. All right. Well, I have no idea how to turn this into an ad for our Patreon, but I'm going to. How how do waifus and Patreon go together, Harry? Well, you know, if you like your waifu and you want to support her, you should also support We Are Libertarians. Why? Because if you don't, you know, your uh, your, your, your waifu gets, you know, attacked by bombs or something like that, and you've got to be able to defend her. <laughs> Please support our waifus. <clears throat> All right. Well, I, with this madness going on in the background, let me tell you about our Patreon. We... W- let me tell you about our Patreon. Long ago, opinion journalism only existed in newspapers and magazines, but the internet has given rise to new voices like We Are Libertarians. And we are here every week, every day now, day in, day out, talking about current events and giving you arguments for your friends and family. And uh, we, have a, we have a big network. We have like 20 to 40 people involved in We Are Libertarians, and all those people need equipment. They need software. They uh, we really need your support, and uh, if you want to support independent uh, media, then you, you have to actually put your your wallet where your mouth is, let me say that. So become a citizen, $5 a month, and get our bonus content, CD quality and commercial-free shows, and before anyone else, at $10, Nobility gets to access the exclusive Facebook group and a notification to join the live stream and chat with us during the show. Members at the Royal Court get a $25 poster and a free and they get free shipping in the new We Are Libertarian store. You can also join the Emperor's Circle at $100, and you get to sit in on our co-host strategy calls or our editorial meetings, and you get private access to Dear Leader and a guest spot on the show. And we mention your show every single week. So this is the number one way to help the show. So join now at wearelibertarians.com or patreon.com slash wearelibertarians. Harry, how many waifus did you catch? Just one. Right now I'm defending her. Almost at the boss level. Five stars right now. Let's talk about George H.W. Bush. Now, Harry, I was hoping that the oldest member of We Are Libertarians, Reinhold, could be here tonight, but he's sick. Uh, he's not the oldest. <laughs> I just like teasing him. Uh, but I think Reinhold, I don't know if he served under H.W. I know he was in the military, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was under Clinton or Bush. It was not W. It was before that. It could have been Bush. So I was hoping to have him here, but the next best thing is Harry... Uh, what do you remember about George H.W. Bush? Let's see. Um, now, this is going to be a tough one because you got to understand, I was born in 85. Right. So, he vice president then. You would have been in kindergarten. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. The, well, here's what I remember about George H.W. Bush. Okay. Not going to do it. 
The only thing I can really like <laughs> my, Dana Carvey. I, I can't even remember that. Like my earliest memory of George Bush is the Simpsons episode uh-huh. when he moved next door to the Simpsons. Right. Yeah, and they did that uh, a Dennis the Menace style episode. Yeah. So H.W. was, I mean, for I think for most of us millennials, he's not somebody you really remember as president. Right. I have very fond memories of that time. I was in third grade watching the inauguration of Clinton, mm-hmm. uh, and I definitely became politically interested under H.W. Bush. I think it was the, the Desert Storm Wars where I was kind of like, ooh, what's going on with all this? And that's when I really started watching CNN and kind of paying attention. So I would have been seven, eight, nine, ten somewhere in there. I don't know how old a uh, first, second grader is. Um but, you know, H.W. was sort of the first politician that I really, like, remember. Okay. Um, so I think that I have some fondness for him because of that. Like, that was always one of my favorite periods of childhood. And it's sort of like you're at your most idealistic as a kid. You know, so I do have some fondness for him. And he seems like a jovial, genial person. You know, he's sort of been like a non-threatening grandpa. Uh, you know, all through the years. I mean, even needling his son about winning his war in Iraq. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, you as a kid, you remember seeing like Barbara in school, and that was like an iconic look. Look, like what is up with that lady with her big white hair and pearls? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so I never had sort of the visceral disgust or dislike of either the person or policies that I did for W or. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't really for Clinton cause I didn't really, I wasn't sophisticated enough yet, Right. but I definitely did for W towards the end as I became a li- more and more libertarian, definitely for Obama. I have some of it for Trump. Um, Trump is hard to, for me to hate because I can't take him seriously. Like W and Obama were effective. <laughs> so that makes them much more of a threat than, than Trump. Like Trump's just sort of. Anything he's screwing up is just sort of like by buffoonery, right? And it lets you and it lets you breathe. It like, oh god, there are some checks and balances, <laughs> right? Woo. <laughs> so HW, I just don't I, like. I see all these people posting stuff online, and they're my age, and they're like, he was a warmonger. He was one guy in a libertarian group called him. He was the equivalent of Stalin. And you're just like, really? Like, you're just, you're amping it up to look good for the other anarchist in the group. Like, stop. Um, so, I, I don't, I didn't know much about his policies until prepping for the show, really. You know, mm-hmm. he just kind of seemed like a warm, nice guy who loved his family. I watched the 41 documentary on HBO. Yeah. Uh, if you watch that, and I would recommend it, I think it's kind of an interesting look at this guy. It's hard to believe that he killed Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> when you watch this documentary, it's the head of the CIA, yeah, right, and he continued to do, you know, all his deep, you know, briefings, CIA briefings, <laughs> probably up until last year. Yeah, well, so here's the that's part of the conspiracy theory is that he doesn't know where he was when Kennedy was killed, and it's because he was, you know, Prescott Bush, his dad, was uh, the Bush family made their money by laundering. Allegedly. Uh, n- allegedly laundering Nazi money through Mexico. And uh, dad bought him some oil wells. And uh, Prescott Bush set up the CIA with the Dulles brothers. Allegedly. Okay, that's true. Th- that's that's, that's not, that's true. actually, yeah, yeah that's, that's verifiable. Yeah. And then, Shut so the, the, the Alex Jones conspiracy goes that George H.W. Bush 
was a CIA asset his entire life because he he worked with his father's friends, the Dulles brothers, mm-hmm. and he was on a ship outside of Cuba because he was the one running all the CIA's operations in Cuba mm-hmm. in in the fifties and sixties, and uh, the operation for the killing of Kennedy for the CIA was named after the boat or the plane or something, and there's, there's like a tangential connection there with a it's name. And Bush was the one that sent Howard Hunt and all these other people to go actually assassinate Kennedy. He was the one that ma- managed the operation, and in exchange for doing this, he would be able to uh, to be president, or else he would spill the beans of what he had done. Correct. So, yeah. And he used that to leverage to become vice president. Right. He was a nobody. He was like a one-term congressman when he became uh, CIA director under... Uh, we'll take a look at his record with this uh, eulogy from Nick Gillespie and Reason. Um, but he was relatively unknown when he became the CIA director in the 70s under Ford. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he ran the CIA. I mean, he had a long career in civil service. Uh, and it's sort of like, well, you know, the white privileged people of this country, the elite, should give back and be a part of public service. But when you hear people say that he killed Kennedy, that's the conspiracy theory that they're referencing. I don't know that I buy it, um, <laughs> but uh, I, I makes do. It makes a good, great movie. It makes a great explanation. So, um, But, yeah, the HBO documentary 41 is really interesting. He's a very likable guy, uh, very genial, and um, very devoted to his family. Yes. Um so let's let's give you some of the details of George H. W. Bush. Uh, Nick Gillespie wrote a great article, um, and so you know when somebody passes away, there is um, two ways to handle it. And I think Nick Gillespie struck the right tone. We'll talk about the other way after this, but you know what he did is he's like, here's the good points about the guy. Here's here's the points where I disagreed with him. Here's his legacy for all. I think it was very well balanced. So uh, let's take a look at this. George H.W. Bush, who served one term in office from 1989 through 1993, is dead at the age of 94. By all accounts, he was an exceptionally kind and decent and thoughtful individual in his service as a Navy pilot in World War II. He was awarded the Distinguished Navy Cross and was shot down over the Pacific. And he reminds us of a time when seemingly casual superhuman heroism by young 20-somethings was the order of the day. So there's actually like a video or a photo of him being pulled out of the Pacific after being shot down, and it surfaced during the 1989 race. Mm. <laughs> and so in 1988, yeah, and it was like sealed the deal. All the Dukakis people were like, oh, man, we're not going to win now. <laughs> yeah, just like the other angle of the JFK shooting that he showed Reagan. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, just to be clear, we don't believe that is the yeah. conspiracy. We're just we're just, just relaying joking that. around. Yeah, yes, we're just, yeah. Sorry. So, um, yes, Jenna Bush may be listening. Okay, and and you know we have, and I'll talk a little bit more about this. But um, you know, I host a series on the podcast called The Swamp with mm-hmm. um, Rob Cortell, who was his issues director in his '79 campaign. He's going to the funeral. So we're gonna have an episode here in the in the future uh, with Rob talking about you know I mean his friend, so that'll be kind of a cool look inside HW's world. Um, it's so it's neat to know somebody who is that like kind of close to to all yeah. this. 
Um, yet, from a specifically libertarian view, there is little to celebrate and much to criticize regarding his presidency, with at least one notable exception. He did nothing to reduce the size, scope, and spending of the government or to expand the ability of people to live however they wanted. If he was not as harshly ideological and dogmatic, especially on culture war issues, as contemporary conservatives, neither did he espouse any philosophical commitment to anything approaching free markets and free minds. There's a reason he did not elicit strong negative responses or inspire enthusiasm. He lacked what he called the vision thing. So this became a big thing in 92 when he ran against Clinton. The vision thing. And, uh, you know, George H.W. Bush was seen largely as a, a civil servant. Now, it, how, how do I explain this? So if you... If you think of it in British terms, it's it's much starker in Britain than it is here. Uh, in Britain, you know, somebody who's a great visionary uh, like Winston Churchill mm-hmm. is, may not necessarily be a civil servant, although he was his entire life. Somebody like a Gordon Brown or a Theresa May is a civil servant. Somebody who kind of worked in government their whole life, was very involved in every level of government, and when they arise to the level of prime minister, they're civil servants. They're not necessarily visionary leader leaders, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was listening to the commentary ma- uh, podcast, commentary magazine podcast, and they were talking like, "We have too much vision now. We're like on a, we're vision junkies." And in many ways, Trump is like the exact opposite of George H. W. Bush, where he was so good at running the bureaucracy because he was so experienced in the bureaucracy that he was obsessed with waking up, making sure that by the end of the day, his schedule, his inbox was cleared. He was working at the task of gover- of f- functional government. Right. And he lacked a lot of vision as a president. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Clinton comes along, this natural <laughs> politician, who is just a natural visionary who says this, you know, we need this thing. He just, he was such a, Clinton was such a great politician. It's, it's... It, <sighs> Hillary Clinton and his own infidelities really uh, they they have diminished the popularity and the positives of of Bill Clinton's presidency. And I don't mean positives from a libertarian or or, or a political standpoint. I mean from his skill set. Like he was mm-hmm. gifted in a lot of certain ways. And so you know Hillary Hillary running I think has kind of tarnished that reputation because. Instead of just doing what H.W. did, which was fade into the limelight, W. has faded into the limelight, you know, or yeah. faded into um, the background. Correct. And so the longer they're away, the more people start to, over time, go, wow, I remember that guy. I like that time in politics. It was mm-hmm. better than it is now. You know, I like the Bushes a lot better than I liked them when they left office. Mm-hmm. Um, and Clinton has not had that same thing happen uh, because he's never gone away. And o- Obama is going to have the same problem because he can't help himself. Right. He can't help himself. He's always like, he was campaigning. <laughs> right. Can you imagine if Bush would have campaigned? No, neither Bush. Neither Bush. He, yeah. He went out for Jeb for one appearance. His own brother, H- or a W, did. Right. Uh, so, so in many ways, he was the exact opposite of what we elect now because hw was he was just he was a gentleman he was a civil servant he was uh he was dedicated to the myth of the american government wholeheartedly yeah and uh he he just didn't 
he didn't buy into a lot of the personal attacks and the BS. Mm-hmm. And it's the opposite of what, what you know, Trump is a big picture guy. Right, yeah. You know how weird it would have been this whole, you know, this funeral if Jeb would have won? How oh, weird yeah. this would have felt? That would have been weird, yeah. Yeah, it would have been like very like, you know, like dynasty royal style because he's like <laughs> this whole family, three of these people, same family, been presidents. Like, that's weird. Right. It would have been weird. Please clap. Yeah. <laughs> So, Gillespie writes, he had no overarching theory of the future, no organizing principle to guide his policy making. That's not necessarily the worst thing in a president. We don't need a maximum leader, after all, but it also means us, uh, he squandered an opportunity to set the coordinates for a post-Cold War world in the direction of maximum freedom. And I think that's a good point. I think had somebody other than H.W. been president, somebody committed to the ideas of liberty, like Ron Paul, for instance who ran in 1988 uh, on the Libertarian Party ticket, then the post-Cold World, Cold World War, Cold War world would have been a lot more free than it has turned out to be. Um, in his post-presidency years, Bush emerged as a genial, even comforting, distant presence on the political landscape that continues to drive towards absolute demonization, polarization, and even the most trivial differences. Um, that's the role he was perfectly suited to play as a one-term president who was the father of a very controversial president. He was non, he was a non-threatening loser to Democrats and Republicans alike, a Napoleon in exile who had no chance of coming back and taking power. Um, he lacked the moralizing overbearing of Carter and the dolter's qualities of Ford. Um, so, you know, he – Gillespie notes some of his achievements. Um, he had been a two-term vice president. He headed up the CIA. He was a liaison to China in the early 70s when it was being opened, and he was an ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, he ran the Republican National Committee, and he served in Congress from Texas for two terms. So that's a – I mean, that's probably one of the more qualified people to be president. Uh, and <laughs> – <laughs> That's part of why he wasn't good at it. <laughs> <laughs> if anything could qualify you to represent, you know, yeah. 300 million people. So he really was, I mean, H.W. was somebody who was a functionary president. And I think in a lot of ways, a lot of Americans are probably going to feel nostalgic for this because they kind of would crave that right now. There's There seems to be such dysfunction that they want somebody who seems like they're competent at just... Like, enough with all the big grand plans. Like, just do your job right, please. Like, it's like the like the guy who comes in. It's your boss who comes in who just is constantly messing things up and is constantly dysfunctional and constantly running things into the, the red. And he has an idea every second. But then like, you're just like, can you just, like, stop? Can you just, like, sit down and fill out the paperwork that I gave you? You know, I think that's how kind of voters feel at this point. It's enough vision, a little more functional. Correct, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I have that issue. I have a lot of visions, a lot of goals, but at work I keep it to like I can only work on three different tasks at a time, three vision tasks at a time. If I want to work on another one, I have to finish it. Right. You know, and it's, you know it's you know it's a struggle. You know, from a libertarian perspective, he he was behind a lot of a lot of things that we weren't crazy about. Uh, he appointed William Bennett, who you may have seen. He's a conservative commentator as the first office of the National Drug Control Policy. Uh, He created this office, basically a drug czar. After Lynn Bias died, John Belushi died. Um, You know, so Bennett publicly said there's no moral problem 
with beheading drug dealers because, you know, they're bad people doing bad things. Uh, so <laughs> that's that's rough. Um, less than a year into his presidency, he ordered Operation Just Cause, an illegitimate invasion of Panama that burned down entire neighborhoods of the capital and killed hundreds of people to call her a single two-bit narco trafficker. Trafficker, excuse me. Our former ally, uh, Manuel Noriega. Yeah, Noriega. So then there's the defining foreign policy act of his presidency, the Gulf War, Operation Desert Shield, pitched as an effort to restore internationally recognized borders after Iraq invaded Kuwait. The Gulf War ultimately solved no problems and instead set the table for the quagmire in which we're still mired. Uh, so it was actually partly his administration's fault. And this is something I did not know. I learned this week. Um, in the summer of 90, Saddam Hussein met with U.S. Ambassador April Glaspie about the tensions between Iraq and Kuwait. Mm-hmm. Glaspie said the following. We have no opinion on the Arab-Arab conflicts, like your border disagreement with Kuwait. While there remains an argument over whether Glaspie was following Bush administration orders or injecting her own interpretations of U.S. interests, Walt, uh, Stephen M. Walt writes, it is clear from the cable that the U.S. unwittingly gave a green light to Saddam, who moved uh, into evade Iraq a week la- or invade Kuwait a week later. Um, so he assembled a truly international coalition of 28 countries. That included Arab, Muslim, Israel, uh, all, all these different European countries um, to push the Iraqis out. Um, so, it Jonathan Rausch noted uh, that uh, after the nine eleven attacks, the goal of the, the goal of the Gulf War for Bush and Arab allies alike was not to impose a new order on the region, but to restabilize the old one. Strategically speaking, that meant caging the overweening Saddam, not toppling him. Moreover, until 1990, Saddam had been a savage bully, but one America had done business with. It was reasonable to expect that after fighting, he might settle down, play by the rules, and pocket billions in diverted development aid like any self-respecting kleptocrat. It didn't turn out that way, Gillespie writes. The U.S. did nothing to aid the immediate post-war popular uprisings that Bush himself cheered on, that inflamed the local populace. Saddam did not become someone we could do business with in any meaningful way, and the region was hardly stabilized by the first Gulf War. There's also the, uh, you know, hey, leave Kuwait, nothing's going to happen to you, and then they left Kuwait, and Americans just dropped bombs on them <clears throat> and just massacred the Iraqi army. Uh, and listening to uh, Ben Shapiro's recap... He was, he was like, I, you know, I certainly disagreed with HW on a lot. He was a good man. I, I disagreed that he didn't move into uh, Baghdad and immediately overthrow Saddam. I'm like, okay. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Isolationist uh, Ben Shapiro. Right. <laughs> oh, man. That's um, so. Talk about empire building. Damn. Yeah. So, and then after that, he, um, he started pr- promoting the New World Order. Uh <laughs> <laughs> So, let's see. There's a strong case to be made that the relative ease of the immediate and overwhelming military victory of the U.S. in 91 emboldened Clinton to become more promiscuous about overseas interventions, Mm -hmm. a tendency that Bush, too, also betrayed. 
So kicking, quote-unquote, Vietnam syndrome or a sense that the United States was relatively impotent when it came to shaping world events via military intervention continues to be a high cost for Americans and foreigners alike. Um, So he effectively invented the role of the U.S. as the world's policeman, a role that that presidents, with the possible exception of Trump, continue to glory in. Um, So we are the head of the international order. He was the person that helped... um, Anytime there was a local uprising, for instance, his CIA, while he was president, would go in and help uh, speed things along. So Reagan Reagan and Bush really, um, you, you could say, like for instance, in Serbia, mm-hmm. um, I'm, I was reading this book about the, the group there, I think it's Serbia, where it, it was a revolution to try and overthrow over, uh, Milosevic. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, no, no. This was Clinton that did this. I'm sorry. Yeah, this. Yeah, okay. I was like, I'm trying to remember in the 80s. Yeah, Milosevic was late 2000s. But for instance, this this group, yeah, Optor, which always did all these crazy stunts uh, around 99, 2000, yeah, okay. to, to throw out Milosevic. Uh, the United States was the one that basically gave them the money to create like these big foam bridges and use satire effectively to deleverage Milosevic's rule. You know, so Bush did a lot of that when he was president. So as you had the Vaclav Havels of the world overthrowing their their particular countries, the the United States was helping fund the end of the Cold War and trying to bring about a more liberal order mm-hmm. in the United States. So but because we kicked ass so much in ninety one that gave Clinton and Bush too and Barack Obama the the idea that the American military just can't be defeated. Uh, so he is best known on the domestic side from read my lips, no new taxes, uh, and breaking that promise. Uh, in 1988, he promised that he'd, he'd not raise taxes. But in the 1990 budget deal that he did with Democrats, he um, promised spending cuts of $2 for every dollar in tax increases. Um, so the main provision increased the top marginal income tax rate from 28 to 31 percent, and even critics of the plan agree it generated of a, t- a total of about 137 billion in new revenue. And champions of the plan credit was setting the stage for the budget surpluses of the late 90s. So it's it's a w- w- right. So the reason that um, Clinton had such a good economy was basically they they started to cut the budget. And they raised taxes, and they tried to balance the budget. And we actually had a balanced budget under Clinton. Like, we had no deficit at one point. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, which is crazy to think that yeah. we had that in the 90s. Still had debt. Right. Still had debt. Just the right. deficit was... Exactly. ...went down. So we weren't... We weren't uh, explain the deficit. <clears throat> the deficit is basically the what you owe after taxes had... Um, what is it? Uh, taxes in versus what you've got to spend out with... with um, uh, compulsory spending and all your spending, so the money that you really have to borrow to make up for all the debt that you did not pay off. Right. And but it also is like so they did um, they raised taxes, cut spending. Then you at the exact same time you had the um, the internet really did at that time started to kick off. So you had a lot of different small businesses kick in too. Yeah. That came out of nowhere. That's you know, and they were all coming in, paying money and putting money and hiring people into the system. Yeah. Also, you also at that time you had a lot of companies who had a lot of like um, faux funny accounting, 
um, because this is all before Enron really started bring uh, really just you know bring you know really started bringing up everything down and right. then still continues to bring things down. What is it about? Like almost twenty years later. So yeah. So uh, 1990 in Reason Magazine, Charles Oliver. Uh, wrote that the need for a budget deal occurred because the government was overshooting mandated deficit reduction targets set in the mid-80s by about $60 billion out of a budget that was only $1.2 trillion. Um, and he asked, what happened if government were to spend too much money? And he writes, all that happens is that federal spending will automatically be cut across the board by that amount. Since the federal budget is over $1.2 trillion, it will only have to be cut by 5%. Does anyone really think that there isn't a 5% amount of fat in the federal budget? Of course, Congress can avoid automatic cuts by making reductions of its own. There are plenty of targets for the budget acts. The Bush administration already plans a 2 to 5% reduction in defense spending, which they did, and they actually cut the military. They were reducing what, um, what uh, Reagan had put in place to try and drive up the amount of spending that on the military that the USSR was spending to help collapse them quicker. Um, right. And Thomas Knapp, uh, from the great Rational, Re- no, Rational Review, News Digest, mm-hmm. wrote that he was let go out of the military at that time, and that was uh, fundamental to him being, becoming a libertarian. Um, oh, yeah, because that's supposed when everyone's complaining about the basis closes. Yes, like yes, exactly. Uh, so, and... It was David Stockman who actually wrote the book. I've got it over there. Uh, the Triumph of Politics, who was the budget director for Reagan. Mm-hmm. And he said they were all about cutting government spending. But then when he started advocating cutting defense spending, he was iced out of the White House <laughs> <laughs> by all the conservatives. Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman Colin Powell, he writes, uh, excuse me, there's a cat that will not get <laughs> off of me right now. Uh, she loved you. I know, but I have a show to do, and I can't have this cat climbing all over me while I'm doing it. Uh, Joint Chief of Staff Chairman Colin Powell has said that the Pentagon's spending could be cut by 25% without hurting America's defenses. Could you imagine a, a Joint Chiefs saying, yeah, let's cut the budget 25%. It'll be fine. In this day and age, some outside experts put the figure closer to 50%. Still taking Powell's estimate but speeding up his timetable slightly, we could cut defense spending by about $75 billion next year. That's $62 billion more than is currently planned. We could scale back domestic spending, too. Congress could cut farm subsidies, slow the cost of living rises and social programs, and even eliminate controversial government agencies such as the National Endowment for the Arts, which is still something we debate. Trump threatened to do that, and everybody lost their mind. It all depends upon Congress and the president agreeing to use the peace dividend to reduce the deficit, not spending that money on new social programs. We know how that turned out, Gillespie writes. It remains unclear whether Bush's breaking of his tax pledge was the reason he ended up losing to Clinton in 92. For some of 91, Bush basked in the post-Gulf War approval ratings above 90%. You heard that right, 90% approval ratings for a president. But a recession caught in part by tight money, fallout from the savings and loan scandal, fear of new taxes, and a tight money supply, and also Ross Perot, clearly drained support directly from him in the general direction. Bush will be remembered as a decent man, but the reverberations of his domestic and foreign policy failures leave little for libertarians to cheer. He also uh, was responsible for the Americans for Disabilities Act, um, 
Something that uh, I hate to criticize because I think that the ADA does make life easier for people who have different challenges, but it is fundamentally unlibertarian because it is the federal government saying to private property owners what they can, what they have to do uh, with their private property or Correct. else. Correct. Yeah, it does help a lot of different people out. But there are some industries that automatically go ahead and just do that anyways, and just just help standardize everything. Yes, it does does freaking suck to have that bill there. But it's just, but you know, for the people that that use some of that, it does it does help for them to help. So they know they're walking in, and they they know they're getting a standard. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying I support that. <laughs> I'm just saying like I can understand it. No, I think what you're saying yeah. is you're a decent person if you make it easier for yeah. everybody to come in your business, but you don't want the barrel of a gun pointed at your head if you don't do it. Yeah, correct. Um, like the I like doorknobs in my house. I have doorknobs in my house, correct? But I have the full function of all my hands, you know. So when you go into business and you don't see any doorknobs anywhere, there's all these like these ones that are to help people who don't have full function of their hands. They're there to help people out. It's also neat because also you know. But you've probably used that benefit too. Simple fact that if you ever carried in a bunch of stuff, you had to open the door with that. Right. You know, you've you've used these functions too. It's very very convenient. Yeah, so he had uh, he he was really the type of person who took all these ideas that were happening at the state level that uh, he he added to the federal government. He was all about bipartisanship, and that's why he's beloved by elites because he he grew he grew the size and scope of the federal government uh, while he was president of the United States and through his life. Um, but he also advocated for so. Here's the thing. As a libertarian, I love my country. That does not mean that I love my government. That doesn't mean that uh, I have to... Um, the pledge, for instance. I think making children say the pledge every morning before school is indoctrinating people into, into the ideas of patriotism. And I think that uh, it is everyone's right to opt out or, or have their kids opt out of saying the pledge every morning. It doesn't mean that I don't love America and the people that live within it and its founding ideals, but I think we get confused the idea of loving our country and loving our government. And I don't love the government, and I think when people try to tie those two things together, I think it, it becomes uh, a real problem. And, and I think that there is um, there are people that like George H.W. Bush, who were true believers, like John McCain, who were true believers in all of the mythology of America and how great it is and how great our government is and how the government is uh, us doing things together, doing big things together that are to solve big problems. And I think that they just have a completely different view of the role of government than we do. Um, you know, and But I go back and forth with... One question, but let, let me talk about George H.W. Bush's. I think this clip. What in the world is happening here? Oh, sorry, I hit the, hit the button on my sound machine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, one of the questions, and Harry, that I that I want to cover here after I play this clip is: Can you separate a person's political positions or their actions in office from their personal character and their level of decency? Um, but I want you to listen to a clip that um, I first heard on Ben Shapiro's recap, and I thought it was just a great example of why people like this guy and why people are going to 
crave what he brought to the table. This is in 1979. He ran in 1979 against Ronald Reagan, Bob Dole, and uh, several other conservatives. Um, John Connolly of the Kennedy assassination. And the issues director for that campaign for HW was our friend Rob Cortell, who is on the Swamp uh, program with me. He was the uh, person who ran the issues... Um, so the policy director in modern parlance for HW and also for Gerald Ford in his reelection campaign uh, in 76. So somebody who was really right at the, you know, in, in the bus with HW Bush. So I'm excited to hear what he has to say about him. But this is the man that he was working for in 1979. Uh, this is HW Bush in a debate and he's uh, being questioned about his toughness. Among uh, even your friends of the minority who know who you are and who admire you in the party, one of the things that is always comes up is that maybe George Bush is too nice a guy to be president. Maybe he's not tough enough. Yeah, uh, I've heard if that. you can't take out after, what about the tough enough question? And, and well, start tough out, enough is don't I don't equate, take out after I don't these equate other guys. toughness with just attacking some individual. I don't attack. I, I equate toughness with moral fiber, with character, with principle with demonstrated leadership in tough jobs where you emerge, not bullying somebody, but with the respect of the people you led. That's toughness. That's fiber. That's character. I've got it. And if I happen to be decent in the process, that should not be a liability. What was the second part? Mr. Bush, it's... uh, Well, I'll take the second part. Is Ronald Reagan too old? No. Let the voters determine it. Let the press determine it. Just like on the Democrat side, there's all these extraneous issues. Let the people decide it. Is is John Connolly too slippery? No. Is Bob Dole too mean? No. What's the difference? The difference is the breadth of record and that my overall performance and conviction about this country, about our ability to solve problems, our ability to restore the credibility in the United States has been diminished under President Carter. I believe I can do that better than anybody else. That's the difference. So that was George H.W. Bush. You can uh, see the video of that. It was kind of a cool setup. It is like a, an hour-long sit-down. Uh, I just have the, that little clip uh, in the show notes. But it, it's like three reporters, three old like whiskey-drinking, old-timey reporters sitting there just throwing questions like this mm-hmm. back and forth with, with Bush and the candidates. I'd love to see that. Yeah. I mean, because you're getting real responses from a candidate in that type of debate. But you'd never see a modern politician actually agree to do that. No. You know, that's the difference of the, the politics then versus now. Um, you know, but but it's like the Ross Perot debate when he brought out signs and stuff like that. You don't charts. see that. In, yeah, char- yeah right. charts and stuff. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, you don't see that anymore. I, I don't think that anybody can disagree with uh, that style of politics. Here's a guy who's like, yeah, I'm mean, but I'm effective and I know what I'm doing. And yep. I, I have uh, principles, but it doesn't mean that I'm going to be a jerk. And I think that's the direct opposite of Donald Trump. Donald Trump, you know, listen to just listen to the beginning of this again. Let me see if I can get it kind of. You know, I don't want to beat up on people. Always comes up is that maybe George? What about the tough enough question? And, and well, start tough out, enough is don't I don't equate, I don't equate toughness with just attacking some individual. I don't equate toughness with attacking some individual. That's complete opposite of where our politics are now. Right. You know, and uh, I think that's why people are looking back at this guy and going, eh, "I miss that time in politics. I, I miss when at least our politicians pretended." 
<laughs> like mm-hmm. pretended uh, to be like professionals and adults. I don't the think, adults. yeah, I don't think that that was BS with him. I think he was genuinely that person. But uh, yeah, I mean, he, he, it's 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 tough when you've got a politician who thinks toughness is just being a dick to everybody. I don't think someone you know thinks that way or could be president. But so, it, my first thought. And and it kind of ties into this. My first thought when Bush died was, oh yeah, that makes sense. He was ninety four, and he had Parkinson's, a, a variety of it. And he, you know, his wife passed away, and my great grandparents died within two weeks of each other. It is a an actual medical condition that you can die of a broken heart. Um, you know his his last words. You know, on the phone, Jim Baker talking about his last words with his kids and telling W that he loves him and like. You hear Jenna Bush on NBC or on Instagram or W or any of these, any of them talking about the Bush family. Like, mm-hmm. you kind of go, eh, I wish my family were like that, you know? So yeah. there, are, there are parts of it where you're just like, ah, that seems like a nice family. That's very sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it humanizes them where I don't think you have that same sort of vibe with a lot of politicians. Like, do you look at the, the Clinton family or the Trump family and go... Yeah, that seems like a really warm family I'd want to be a part of. <laughs> yeah, that's all calculated. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so I think that's one reason that the Obamas and the Bushes appeal to us a little bit is that they do seem somewhat human. Um, but my second thought was, my God, the libertarians are going to be dicks again. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I was right. I was proved right. By oh. <laughs> I know you're not on had, Facebook, but I, I was. I and bet you had to dig for it, though. <laughs> <laughs> Here's my thing. Um, even it, I made this. I made a status. Uh, I posted a little ditty on Facebook, and someone Good. was nice enough to share it to the Liberty Memes Facebook group, mm-hmm. which is much much larger than my group. Yeah. Um, which I'm angry about. Get to work, people. Invite your friends to our group. But it, it, it was basically this: a, a former co-host, um, Greg. Uh, used to say, I, I was very anti-Trump in 2016-2015. Um, and then one day he goes, you know, you're you're not helping. <laughs> you think by taking this strong, aggressive, personal stance towards Donald Trump, you think that you're you're helping your cause, but you're not. What you're doing is you're alienating all these people that are drawn to politics by Donald Trump because they see you acting this way and they go, I don't ever want to take a look at libertarians. They're all a-holes. And, and I think he was totally right about that. Uh, I would say the same sort of about Ocasio-Cortez. I think the joking goes too far. I think it gets too mean. I think you know when we talk about politicians – that our friends and family like in mm-hmm. a very negative, hateful way, they start to go, yeah, but I like that guy. Why are you being such a dick? Right. And it's something called the Libertarian Macho Flash. Mm. Uh, Michael Cloud, I've actually posted the article at WeAreLibertarians.com. We'll put it in the show notes. And it is the idea, this has been a problem from the very, very beginning, that you're just going to, it's this macho flash that you're just going to be as ag- as aggressive as possible with the message and they're going to be so overwhelmed by your passion or anger that they're going to change their mind when in reality they just think you're vulgar or they think that you're weak-minded or they think that you're unstable and they are also turned off because you were insulting them 
And so you actually, by macho flashing, completely turn off the audience you're trying to reach. And it, it it is very common when one of these guys dies, like McCain or Bush, to see that. I see a lot of people posting things that are very good at virtue signaling a certain purity to their fellow libertarians as opposed to realizing that their friends and family are going to read that and they've just been pushed further and further away from the libertarian party or the libertarian ideology or anarcho-capitalism or voluntarism. I, I think we have to think about the way that we talk about political figures, about the country, about these symbols, um, of which I think presidents are avatars, they're symbols for a certain thing. You have to remember, your friends and family still buy into this mythology. You know, you were, I was a Republican at one time, right? Yeah. And I liked George W. Bush at one time. (laughs) Right. And so there still is a piece of me that has some level of affinity for him. And I think there are people who were liberals or Democrats that are now libertarians have a certain affinity for Barack Obama mm. or and you know I think we we don't realize that when we go out there and we act tough and we um, we macho flash we're really turning people off because there's so many new people in politics now uh, I would also say that a lot of people do it about Gary Johnson or Bill Weld mm-hmm. and there are way more Gary Johnson libertarians than there probably are Rothbardians yes uh, good thank goodness <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but uh, and and here's why I say that. I think that it takes a certain level of dedication to sit down and read Mises or Rothbard or really get in depth into the philosophy and economics. I think that's a very narrow piece of the the world's population, and I'm glad those people do that and that they exist and that they encourage others like myself to like, hey, go read this. I'm about halfway through for New Liberty. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's great. Great read. Right. But most people are just kind of casually libertarian, and they liked Gary Johnson, and they voted for him. And so when you come out and you go, Gary Johnson's a fucking dick, they hear, I'm a fucking dick, or you're a fucking dick. And so they 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 are totally turned off by you as a messenger because you have decided to beat up on an individual that they like or a concept that they like exactly and you turn away the casual libertarians and right. the casual libertarians it's what helps bring in donors this helps brings your money in you may hate them you can hate their freaking guts but if you actually want to like win races and stuff like that they need things to be easy they need to be easy adoption to it right. but if you make this like nope if you want to get in our system, you got to read these ten books here. Be this pure to join to put that symbol next to your name. Well, you're not going to get an adoption. Just like you know, just like Bitcoin didn't really start getting adoption until it started becoming easier and easier and easier and easier. And the more easier to become, the more people can have cryptocurrency now. I mean, being friends with Harry, somebody who is an anarcho-capitalist. I mean, how, whoa, 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 whoa. All right, whoa, how would you label? Whoa, how would you label just, yourself? Just anarchist, just anarchist. Okay. Just, or anarcho-monarchist. Okay. Yeah, Afro. Sorry, Afro anarchist. <laughs> okay, but just anarchist is fine. Would you say voluntarist? No. Why not, not voluntarist? Because not. I'm not. That has a lot of strict rules to go with it. Okay. You know, like the, I couldn't be a, really could be very hard to be a voluntarist and be like on a political. Give care about the political spectrum. Then I couldn't vote or not vote or do a lot of different things in the system. Yeah. So by being. Um a radical person that is also my friend, Harry has taught me a lot about the more radical elements of 
libertarian thought of how we view the world. He's taught me to be better, uh, a better black man. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> it's fun, yeah. isn't it? And I think that you, somebody like yourself or like myself, we think of it in terms of the long game. I'm not here to get your scalp and head back to the camp and show all my friends that that we have another one. Mm-hmm. I've recruited them. It's not this immediate pressure. It's about the long game. It's about answering questions. It's about having a softer, more persuasive approach. And so, yes, George W. Bush or and George H.W. Bush both and Barack Obama and Donald Trump and all these people, Ocasio-Cortez and Sarah Palin and take your pick, Bernie yeah. Sanders. Right. They have millions and millions and millions more people liking them than that than like libertarians. Correct. It's a much bigger pool. And a lot of those people start out of casual Democrats, casual Republicans. Right. Oh, I'm Republican. And then Do you go to the meetings, are you actual voting are you party member? No. Right. Until they come and become one. Thomas Knapp was a Republican. Um he is one of my favorite I would say radical libertarians. I get the Rational Review di- News Digest every day in my email box. I think you should go to rationalreview.com and sign up uh, and get this great publication that Thomas Knapp puts out, K-N-A-P-P. And here's a guy who was a Republican who was serving in the military under George Bush who was really excited and voted for Bush because he said, read my lips, no new taxes. And then George Bush raised taxes. And then he said, wait a minute. Maybe, just maybe, and now here he is, 27 years later, one of the leaders of one of the, he's one of the more radical people that I follow in the libertarian movement, and it's, and it's because the Republicans, they didn't need, he didn't need some screeching libertarian Mm -hmm. picking on the guy that he liked, he just needed time (laughs) to let that person screw up, to let the Republicans and Democrats do what they always do, which is grow the size and scope of government. Mm -hmm. And then they need a friendly person to stand by them and go, did you see that? That's what I've been saying. Yep. Yep. It's the same thing like uh, with the LP here in Indiana, to go after the Republicans on raising the gas tax. Right. Raising the gas tax. Well, it's your local. Gas tax is here. And then, well, we won't open a toll roll in an I-70, I-65, even though we know it would make money. And this is how it's going to be going, going forward. So they're going to put a toll road on I-70 right. It's coming. So, you know, it's more of a, like, run on that issue, that they're going to raise this. This is what there's going to happen. Right. And let them, you know, all, you know, no matter what district you're in, make that their issue. Make, put it, make that an issue and hang them on it. The state is going to state. They're yeah, going to do state. what they do. Yeah. They took the survey. They understand exactly how much money they could bring in putting a toll road on I-70 and I-65. Right. So you just need to be a friendly voice that is sitting there going, you see that? I've been telling you this. Or, you know, I, I think yeah. most of us serve as the type of people in, uh, in our friends and family life, especially this time of year, you've got that uncle like, hey, what do you think about that? Yep. You know, and that's what this show's about. That's, mm-hmm. hey, what do you think about that? And I think, you know, and this got shared to the Liberty Memes group, mm-hmm. and it devolved into, oh, we can't talk about politicians now. Or, oh, you like George H.W. Bush? Or, don't you realize George H.W. Bush is the same as Stalin? Whoa. <sighs> no one yeah. is the same as Stalin every, except Mao. Every, every person who's ever been elected to office is an evil person because they use the force. And, and it just get, it got to a level of absurdity by the end of 100 comments that I couldn't take it anymore. I was ready to quit. Yeah. I was ready to change the name of the show so I wouldn't be associated with libertarians anymore because... It's not what I was saying. What I was saying was something very nuanced. 
and it was that, uh, hey, don't be a dick, because if you're a dick online, your friends may not want to be libertarians later down the line. Yeah, yeah. you lose the argument when you uh, compare you know, s- something to Hitler. When you compare something to, st- you know, to s- someone to Stalin, you just need to uninstall. Yeah. Just uninstall the internet. Just no, there, there is just no doubt off. that uh, I think what, what um, Nick Gillespie did was a very reasonable way to handle this, which is here's a guy who he, a lot of evil things happened under him. He was responsible for a lot of evil. Yes, lots of evil. Um, and here the, he didn't, but he didn't frame it that way. He framed it like, here's the reasons that he just wasn't a good libertarian politician. Mm-hmm. Here's where we disagreed. But he seemed like a good guy. Removed, the, removed his emotion, presented right. facts, and right. let you draw your own conclusion. Right. And so, uh, but that that leads me to the next thing that I see in these groups is there, there is a, I'm, I'm really worried about the libertarian movement. Uh, because I see what's happening to us is what's happening in other uh, movements as well. You see it in the conservative movement. It's a little more you know, visual there where you have the weekly standard National Review Republicans and then you've got your um, CRTV mm-hmm. conservatives or your Tommy yeah. Lawrence. You know? you've, got, you've got this split mm-hmm. in, in terms of substance and style. And uh, a lot of this is a style argument. I think that if you post something nice about George Bush but want to end the state, I don't think that that means that you're less of a libertarian. You know what I mean? Like, or it, it, it's it's about how you choose to go about it. Yeah, it's the aesthetics. It's uh, I don't know if you've seen the contrapoints video on aesthetics. I'll sh- share it to you in the uh, Omega chat room. Uh, I'll put it into send it to me, and I'll put it in the show notes. Show okay, notes. sorry. Yeah. People going to screech uh, sharing a contrapoints <laughs> video though. By the way, right. I don't care. I, I I will get to that point. I will get to the point where I uh, I'm done. I'm done with it. Uh, All right, be careful. It's contra points. I don't care. I, I also I like if anyone's like close to Natalie Wynn, I would love to have Natalie Wynn here on Wall. That'd be amazing. So, so I'm just I'm I'm worried that we're getting to a point where you can't have reasonable thought. Uh, you know, I, I, like this swamp episode. Um, Rob Cortell has become a good friend. I think he's an interesting person to talk to. I think the episodes with him are it make you it makes you think about things in a different way. Um, it humanizes people who work in Washington D.C. Uh, that these are these are rational people doing rational things to them, but maybe not to us. Uh, and you know, if I post a show where this guy is on a libertarian network praising H.W. Bush in these certain ways, uh, it. it it's it's technically bad for the brand, and it grieves me that we can't have discussion in the libertarian movement without somebody seeing just something as um, fleeting as a title, and then that just becomes their whole assumption about a brand. Uh, I want to present a lot of different sides and a lot of different points of view, and I'm just I'm just making the assumption that you're intelligent enough to sort out what you can consume or what you believe or not like having on someone who talks about George H.W. Bush who as a personal friend does that make the network less libertarian well in the eyes of some sure but I don't care anymore because there's a tension between um what is this oh, just a, time clock. a time clock where are you going okay all right there is a tension between what I want to uh, do on this program what I think is interesting to me, 
what I think is interesting to libertarians of a certain variety, what I think is good public discourse, and what is acceptable in certain Facebook groups or in the online Facebook world. And I think when these groups, and I, I, I'm, I'm really, I think Facebook is, it's when they introduce groups that they really started to develop the problem. Because it develops these little echo chambers where people use guilt and shame and these subtle little nudges to think like I do, think like I do, think like I do. Um, you know, and it it's groupthink, it's not individualism. And I, if you don't want to listen to something, don't listen to it. That's fine. But if you're going to tell people not to listen to something because you don't want them to hear it because you think they're actually stupid and you need to control what they think, you're not libertarian. Plain and simple. Um, so, um, and I think that's part of the problem with modern political analysis. It, it's it's black and white. It's anti-intellectual. It's anti-left or anti-right versus solutions. And I think our audiences want us to validate what they believe instead of validating what we believe, right? So let me explain that. I think audiences just want to listen to something that validates what they think. And that's not what I'm here to do. So if you're here just to have your thoughts validated, that's not what I want to do with this program. And it's not something I will ever do. And if it means I'm never popular in the libertarian movement, I just plain don't give a fuck. Because the libertarian movement is wrong for being anti-intellectual. And someone said recently that I don't understand the libertarian movement. I don't care. <laughs> I, have tens, I have tens of thousands of people in my audience, so I must be doing something right. Uh, and so I just want to say to you, if you find yourself contributing to this siloing of, of, of opinion and uh, this gang-like behavior of you know, misinterpreting what other, some other libertarian said, like, just stop. It's the same reason why you disagree with uh, the whole national anthem. Because it's not that you hate the country, not that you hate the songs or the pomp and circumstance that, you know, a lot of stuff that goes with being an American. It's the, when you're in it, you get that groupthink and you stop questioning your government. Right. That's the issue. And that's the exact same with issue you're seeing with liberty movement yeah. is that you're not questioning anything. You're just parroting things that are going on or... You know, all around just, you know, doing that group think, well, they all think this way, so this is what I'm doing. It's like, so like, you know, like, they all hate feminists, so I should hate a feminist too. Why? You right. ever listen to one? Ever listen to one that wasn't an asshole? You ever had a conversation with one? Yeah. I had a conversation with one last night, and sometimes it feels tense. Right. I wasn't necessarily tense. I don't know if they're tense, mm -hmm. but we're disagreeing, so it feels like, uh, I'm not people-pleasing right now. We're not agreeing, yeah. you know, but okay. at the end of the day, it's like, all right, I see your point of view and you're right. And mm -hmm. hopefully you see my point of view and you think that there's some valid arguments here. Yeah. And I think that Carly Jepsen, <laughs> that's Carly Rae Jepsen, um, she was on the Glenn Beck podcast, which is really good. And I'm going to recommend Glenn Beck to you because I don't give a fuck what you think because you're wrong. I've <laughs> never <laughs> seen I've never seen a difference in reality as to what the person says on the air versus what people's opinion of uh, of this personality are. Like it's amazing. Glenn Beck is uh, consistently having libertarians on. He is uh, moving in a libertarian direction and. Glenn Beck once said on air, I want to come to the Libertarian Party convention in 2016. 
And Libertarian Party leadership wrote him and said, no, don't come. And you know what? It was years before he ever he had somebody like an Austin Peterson or a Larry Sharp on because he was so pissed off by that. It was a dumb move. Right. Here's a guy who speaks to tens of millions of people and you don't eh, you're not libertarian enough because once you had this belief that I disagreed with. And who even cares? <laughs> who cares? It's media. You are you trying to fundraise? Do you want more than five thousand dollars in your right. campaign bank? We have people involved in We Are Libertarians who was like, yeah, I'm a libertarian because I heard Glenn Beck and I heard him say the word and then I looked up the beliefs and then I realized he wasn't as libertarian as he said and, oh, my God, I'm more libertarian than I think. and, and like Exactly. Conversation it, is what actually grows things. I think, like, um, like think of, like, sometimes I get upset when I do hear, like, uh, Crowder even calling himself a libertarian. I right. like some of his stuff, but not all of his stuff. I disagree with him more than I agree with him. But... And I get upset sometimes when he calls himself, look, I'm a libertarian conservative, stuff like that. Which, but the thing is, at first I get upset at him saying that, then I start saying to myself, how many people are think that him will say that term, oh, I'm this, and then eventually does, like, decides to duck, duck, go, you know, libertarianism and go, like, wait a minute, and stumble on a book and pick up a book and pick up something else. And right. And listen to, like, wait a minute, he's not really libertarian. Yeah. People, there are people who, who are obsessed with this show in 2014. Or 2013. And they don't listen anymore. And it's because they grew out of it. They changed. Happens all the time in media. Yep. You know, I was a huge um, Rush Limbaugh fan. Yeah, ditto heads checking in. I, I still will listen to Rush occasionally to see what he's saying, but I'm just like, ugh. And like, I feel that way about Ben Shapiro. Like, I think Ben Shapiro is right on a lot of stuff, but I think he's abysmal on things like immigration. I think when he does an immigration show, he is telling lie after lie after lie. Um, Sounds like an isolationist, and he may try to make libertarians sound like isolationists. Here's a guy who calls himself a libertarian, and Ben Shapiro, in the definition, the classic orthodox definition of libertarian, is not a libertarian. No. Um, And I don't want to pick on Ben Shapiro, because I think that, at the end of the day, I think he's an ally in a lot of ways. He is. You know, here's somebody who believes... Yeah, he believes in individualism. He believes in shrinking the size of government mm-hmm. and where we can agree and work together we ought to and where we disagree we ought to politely disagree right you know i think because he thinks different things than me i'm not so insecure about my own beliefs that i need him to believe and validate what i believe yes. and i think that's what it comes down to people are insecure in what they believe because they're not doing their homework and so they need to control other people's messages yes and it's it's it comes down to control you have to stop being controlling, um, you know. And, and I think there is uh, there's certainly something for purity and making sure that we're attentive to standards, that we're attentive to what we believe and uh, what we're saying, and measuring issues to you know that that classic orthodox libertarian line. But at the same time, you don't need everybody to agree with you. Yeah, and that's why, like this whole thing of a, this, it's a good you know moment to watch of how libertarians react for, like from Bush's death right. and doing all this going on it's right. you know you see that like division the unnecessary division right unnecessary you know because yep. uh, it's going to keep happening as more and more people because it's, it's you know get of that you know generation that 80 generation there you know it's going to happen more of them are going to go I, I want to kind of uh, so, like, take it as a learning moment and move on I want to kind of illustrate this with uh, with Ben Shapiro because I think our audience, a lot of our audience, probably listens to Ben Shapiro. 
Um, you know, another reason I don't want to beat up on the guy, uh, I listen to Ben Shapiro every single day. Um, I <laughs> There are days where I, I just can't do it, and there are days where I'm like, yeah, right on. Um, but I listen to him. I listen to Democracy Now. I try. I think Shapiro is good at articulating some things. But I think he is a good example, and I want you, when you listen to Ben Shapiro, to think about some things. And I, I would, uh, if Ben Shapiro were to ever listen to this program, I hope that he would take a lesson away from this. Because I think that he is sometimes part of the problem in that he is promoting anti-leftism as opposed to conservatism. I tune in because I want to hear what Ben Shapiro thinks about things and what solutions he has for certain problems. But a lot of times he just engages in straw men, which is creating the notion of this person elevating a person to, I, you know, this typifies what all people on the left believe, right. uh, you know, for instance. And so let me let me just play this clip because it was uh, very indicative. There's the points that he makes that I agree with. There's points that the person he's talking about makes uh, and there's things that I disagree with. But I think. In this episode about George W. Bush that I listened to, this typifies kind of what Ben Shapiro does that I think is hurtful to public discourse. George H.W. Bush is the kind of man who devoted his life to public service. Donald Trump is the kind of man who has devoted his life to, you know, to to business and and fame. None of that is specifically a rip on Donald Trump, but the contrast is not kind to Donald Trump between George H.W. Bush and Trump, which is, of course, exactly why the press is making that contrast in the first place. Don't trust the press when suddenly they start telling you that a Republican is wonderful. Because the only Republicans that, pres- that, that the left thinks are wonderful are ones who are out of office or dead. I mean, <laughs> it's not a bad point, but again, the press, the left. It's the basic rule of thumb here. And every so often, every so often, they sort of let the mask slip. Franklin Foer let the- they ask slip over at the Atlantic when he suggested that George H.W. Bush was not a man of courage, right? He actually did not. Here's how he concluded his eulogy of George H.W. Bush. And this is a rare example of honesty from the left on how they actually felt about George H.W. Bush. Well, all people on the left are not honest. (laughs) It's a rare example of people on the left being honest. It's alive. Here's what Franklin Fowler, who's disgusting, said over at The Atlantic. He's a disgusting person because he said something I disagree with. Obituaries present George H.W. Bush as the last of the Republican moderates. In reality, he's an archetypal representative of the modern party, a man whose sense of duty failed him when it came to resisting the rise of racially revanchist libertarian forces. He embodied an establishment that wrote a very nice thank you note. That's right. Uh, All libertarians are racist. The libertarian strain in the Republican movement is racist. Uh, So, yeah. A disgusting phrase, a disgusting thought. But good manners are hardly the same as moral courage. Prudence is sometimes hard-hearted. Those who are mourning the passing of the old establishment should mourn its many failures, too. That's how the left really felt about George H.W. All all members of the left felt this way about George H.W. Bush. (laughs) All of them. All. And I'm I'm assigning the word all, but that's in the mind of the hearers. What Ben doesn't understand is that people are hearing all. Uh, and so let's continue. Don't let them put on the mask of mourning in order to pretend that George H.W. Bush was something different for them than Donald Trump. You and I, we can see the differences between George H.W. Bush and Donald Trump, which were many and myriad, some in favor of Bush in terms of character, some not in favor of Bush, maybe in terms of policy. But for the left, the only reason that they are now donning the mask of mourning when it comes to George H.W. Bush is so that they can attempt to proclaim that Donald Trump is significantly worse by any sort of comparison. 
uh, and they did a study like it, the coverage of HW is paired to Bush at the same rate. Like it's all about Trump. Everything's about Trump. And uh, Ben Shapiro is right on the media a lot of times. Uh, and I do do that with the media. The media thinks. But there is a lot of groupthink in the media in, in these major publications. But I do try to specify. Um, you know, And I think it is difficult when you do a program like this to not straw man a lot of times. But I think Ben Shapiro does it a lot. And I think it is a dangerous temptation for any commentator to take their opponents and straw man them and say all statists think. All liberta- all libertarians think. All libertarian party members are X. All conservatives are this way. All liberals are this way. All Antifa members are this way. All state is going to state. All right. So we have to be careful and not lose the complexity of the world uh, through just what is easy and convenient to understand and convey. Is our brain kind of quickly folding things down to make it easily understandable because we've got a lot of information we're trying to process and it doesn't want to use a lot of energy because we don't want to die. Um, but I think that is that is a serious problem that I find with um, with a lot of different people. And I think he is, identif- he is exemplifying here what a lot of libertarians are doing. They're kind of saying all, you know, like... I, I, all, all anarchists are this way, or all uh, minarchists are this way, or all libsocks are doing that. You know, and we're just kind of strawmanning a lot, and we got to be careful with it. Are those dry, boring, run-of-the-mill political talk shows putting you to sleep on your commute or at work? Are you ready for some fun? With no further blast off with Johnny Rocket is a Seattle-based podcast expressing viewpoints of free markets, voluntary exchange, badass music, wicked banner, and of course, drinking. The Blast Off doesn't shy from the truth, but always brings the party. Let's rock and roll, Raylene. Bring it on, Johnny. You can check us out at thelaunchpadmedia.com forward slash Blast Off. Again, that's thelaunchpadmedia.com forward slash Blast Off. Launchpad Media. Always launching ideas in your direction. Mortality rate is like the average lifespan. So we'll explain it in a moment. But here's what Ben Shapiro thinks he's doing with his program. This is why you know, so much of my message is concentrated around what can you do in your life to make your life better. You want to make your life better? Go do it. And if there's an obstacle, then let's talk about the obstacle. But if you are spending all your life focused on everything around you and why it's bad, and you're doing that because you lack a sense of purpose, you're not going to be happy. You're going to despair. You're going to feel like there's no one there to pick you up. We all have to be together to pick ourselves up. And I don't mean through government. I mean through shared values and shared community and a social fabric built up over the course of 3,000 years of Judeo-Christian history. It's, it's, this is tragic, tragic stuff. I totally agree with him on the second part, but he thinks his show is picking people up. And a lot of times, I at the end of listening to a Ben Shapiro show, I'm angry, and I am mad at the left or the media. And uh, I, I don't think that his message a lot of time meets that mark of what he wants his show to be. And I am it's something that I want my show to be. I want you to be enriched and happy and more informed when you listen to my show, not angry or pissed off. Uh, I want you to be contemplative, contemplating life in a different way, um, you know. And I think that's what we all strive for. Uh, but I heard th- about the mortality rate story f- on 
that episode, and it's tragic, Harry. Um, life expect life expectancy has been going up since the Spanish flu, the great influenza, at right after World War One, and it, you know your average lifespan has continued to increase until the last three years, and two out of the last three years, the mortality rate has declined, and for a an Im- immensely wealthy capitalist country like this, uh, then. That that's pretty remarkable. I'm not surprised. Why are you not surprised? We um we live in the land of excess, um, not the land of uh, minimal food or just enough food, and leaving aloneism. So right, we're not gonna we're not forcing people not to do things. So yeah, they're gonna die early because you could eat all the cheeseburgers you want, and we're not gonna force you to work out. I feel personally attacked. <laughs> you know, uh, Chris Fit is not gonna force you to. <laughs> You know, put that Chick-fil-A and iced tea down, you know. Uh, lemonade. Oh, sorry, sorry. Chick-fil-A sorry. sandwich, number one, large large lemonade, pepper jack cheese. Uh, so here's the story. This is uh, from USA Today. Uh, suicide and drug overdoses continue to rise in 2017, helping drive the number of U.S. deaths to the highest total in more than 100 years, the CDC says. Uh, tragically, this troubling trend is largely driven by deaths and from drug overdoses and suicides. Life expectancy in the United States of America in 2017 fell to an average of 78.6 years for the total U.S. population, down from 78.7 in 2016. Is that white people or black people? Uh, that's just overall. So, so I don't is know. Is that white people or black people? Uh, it's people, Harry. Oh, We're so. all one color. I'm triggered. <laughs> uh, so overall, more than 2.8 million Americans died in 2017, 70,000 more than in 2016. Vietnam deaths of soldiers was 75,000, so 70,000 more died in 2016. Heart disease, cancer, and unintentional injuries, chronic lower respiratory diseases, and stroke are the leading causes of U.S. deaths. Uh, in 2008, suicide is ranked 10 and has grown at an alarming rate. In 2016, suicide became the second leading cause of death for ages 10 to 34, and the fourth leading causes cause for age 35 to 54. So in 2016, the second leading cause of death for 10 to 34-year-olds was suicide. Oh, yep. So uh, last year, 47,000 people committed suicide at a rate of 14 per 100,000 people. So think of it this way. A football stadium full of 100,000 people, 14 people of the, 14 of those people are going to commit suicide. Now... Divide that by 360 million. <laughs> okay, so that is up from 10.5 in 99 and 13.5 and from last year. So there is a, a, a serious problem with deaths of despair, drug overdoses, and suicide. Uh, that is the subject of Ben Sass's book, Them, and uh, why this is happening. And that is why we're reading this as our first selection in the We Are Libertarians book club, which you can join on Goodreads or at the website. And it's another way that we're trying to foster a community because we want to talk about why this is happening. You had something to say, Harry? Oh, just make sure you get all your smut off your Goodreads before you join up because people <laughs> like to stare at you. I almost joined up. I was like, whoa, I can't <laughs> see these books. Um, we're a close family. But, yeah, if you want to join the book club and read along with uh, your fellow uh, We Are Libertarians fans, then please do. Um, and that's going to be a, a recurring theme here on the show Create community, face-to-face community. This is unfortunately not something we can do face-to-face, but if we get enough people, we can spin it off into cities. 
Um, or you can create a local libertarian book club for your for your own community. We'll help you figure that out with our template. Um, but why are we miserable, Harry? Why do you think that deaths of despair are rising? Why are why are opioids and drug overdoses and suicides increasing in a world where we have access to everything? Everything, yeah. World of excess. Yeah. One thing is um, you've noticed the age group that it has in. So yeah. a lot of these groups are that uh, our millennial mindset of people. So a lot of them are hindered with all this debt, possible medical uh, possible medical death, and then school debt, then not be able to get work from that, and then seeing that possibility of everything they, they were told they could get with their degree and what they have, yeah, not having it. They right. aren't getting any of it. They aren't getting anywhere. They're not making their foothold that they're expected or the expectation they wanted to get, and no one's willing to help them. Some of them are a lot of the people who are the suicide rates or drug deaths are um, you can look into some of the figures and some of them are single fathers. A lot of them are uh, uh, are fathers who aren't able to see their kids and it's heartbreaking and they kill themselves. Aren't 75 percent of suicides men? Yeah. Majority. Yeah. Yeah. Majority of suicides are men. Women attempted probably more, but men finished the job. Don't look at me. I'm not going to make a joke. It's just the way it is. Yeah. Um, a lot of people like suicides that call for help, possibly when it comes to women, but men really do kill themselves. Not saying that women don't, but it's just this is suicide is more of a male problem than a female problem. Yeah, I think, and we've talked about it before. Like, if you're 35, if you're my age, mm-hmm. and you move to a new city, and you're not political and you're not religious, how do you make friends? Right. I don't like to go to bars. Yeah. How how would I make friends? What would I do? Volleyball. Oh, you're too short. Um, basketball. <laughs> oh, snaps. Um, what's what? What's a sport for short people? Right. The, <laughs> a meetup, I think, is a, a way. The, uh, um, yeah, but that's you can play, kind of you can play video games either because there's not right. really a male Bumble, so you can actually meet with guys to go hang out. And do there stuff. is now, yeah. You is can there? actually meet oh, nice. meet friends on Bumble, yeah. Um, for the for the uh, guys, guys can do that. Actually? Yeah, because our our I think about when I was kids, like my parents, um, their friends were made up of the people that were in our neighborhood. Yeah, you know, this was like 1995. <laughs> like this wasn't that long <laughs> ago. You know, they they were hanging out at the community pool making friends with neighbors, you know. And I think now people are going to the pool and reading on a device mm-hmm. and they're not wanting to talk to other people. Correct. I think – did you see the Buddha Box episode of South Park, This new, the newest one? No. Harry, it was art. I mean, if you have Hulu, you've got to go watch it. Um, it was amazing. Let me see if I can, let me see. I think I, I got it on Black Friday for ninety nine cents, but I still haven't used it. It is so good, um, but yeah, I see that. Um, but a lot of that, yes, male loneliness also drives a lot of guys to suicide. Um, the absentee father one—that one's the roughest. That's when the um, mother uh, uses the uh, kids as weapons and separates them from the father. Right. And they commit. Like, I was very upset at the SNL skit of, like, this is dad's Christmas. And they made fun of a lot of these dads who are trying hard and stuff like that to have a good Christmas, stuff like that. It's like, well, they're doing decorations, all this stuff like that. But you've got to understand, like, that that guy is probably, like, zapped of all, most of his income to pay for the house that you just left from. Yeah. So here, listen, listen to this uh, clip from the Buddha box. The premise is basically all right. Cartman can't get off his phone. And he wants to stand his phone, but people keep bothering him. So he gets this box. Can I take your order? Ignoring Excuse him. Excuse me. 
What would you like, sir? Can you wait? Isn't that your job? Aren't you a waiter? Hey, could you turn your phone down, kid? This is a restaurant. It just so happens I have anxiety. That means I have trouble being around assholes who won't leave me alone! So, so basically the premise is he just wants to be selfish and be on his phone all the time, so he uh, he becomes an asshole. And so I, I can't... And the doctor goes, just say you have anxiety. <laughs> so it, it's pretty interesting. Um, but I, I do. I think it's a lack of... It's an erosion of institutions. I think mm-hmm. the, the breakup of the family cannot be ignored. And I think we want to ignore it because it seems socially conservative. You know, like you, if you talk about the breakup of the family, then, oh, you're Jerry Falwell. And I think that's a very uh, sadistic rhetorical trick by society. The, the people that want to, I think, see the breakup of the family. Uh, well, yeah, but the family also helps with, like, the helps lift a lot of people out of, out of poverty. Right. Two low-income workers living together, you know, does, you know, make you one powerful, one middle-income person. Right. You know, two people making $25,000 a year combined together is a $50,000 worker. Yeah. I think economics can't be ignored in this. Yeah. I mean, if you're looking at the wage growth, like Mark Blythe, I posted it on WeirdLibertarians.com. You look at wage growth, and then they get to mm-hmm. 72 when they take us off the gold standard, and wages go flat, but mm-hmm. inflation goes way up, and uh, productivity goes way up, so we're working more. Right, which but, we shouldn't be. Yeah. Right, and we're getting paid the same as our, our parents. Like, millennials make 30% less than their parents at the same age, mm-hmm. which is tremendous. And so you've got student loans, you've got financial pressures, you've got the family issues that you either came from or you're in the midst of. Correct. You've got no institutions to really help you, no so, you know private institutions, cultural mm-hmm. institutions, the, the sense of community is completely gone. Um, I think we've got a real shitty soup. And then I think then you add on top of this, this anxiety-inducing device and social media attached to it. And I think it really just drives people mad. I yeah, think there are days – I think it drives people literally mad. There are days that I feel crazy when I'm on my phone. The podcast Sovereign Tech. Uh, references they call it the lead pipes of the internet um, back in the roman empire they used to uh, people would have to show of wealth to have indoor plumbing they had indoor plumbing but they used lead lead pipes which right. was of course lead poisoning lead to bring down and what they could but they wouldn't get rid of them because it's such a status symbol of what they were doing these the status this amazing thing of indoor plumbing is literally killing them yeah the lead pipe of the internet yeah it's literally killing you you know that's why a lot of people who invented this stuff don't use it they're yeah. not on Facebook. You think Mark Zuckerberg uses Facebook? Really, use it? Who's Mark Zuckerberg talking to? Yeah, he's not using Facebook. Right. A lot of them have flip phones. I don't, I don't care. There are no social networking site. Like, That's going to kill you. Well, <laughs> right. I think another issue is that we're looking to government and politics to solve every societal ill, and that just leads to chaos. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, that's a, and it's just chaos and mismanagement. Yes. And and it's sold a battle of lies because people are just going to sell something that's going to make them more money. It's the re- main reason why a lot of them you see like pushing everyone to go college because that was their stick. That's helped them kept them fundraising. That's their thing that kept them in office. Right. They didn't really care about you. What degree you got? So so what? You spent f- five five years in college and got out with your communications degree. You know what you're qualified for? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. 
You know, I got somebody who's like, well, I'm going to try to be a broadcaster. It's like, what's your communications degree? Yeah, I have more mic time than you. And I bet I, if I apply for a broadcaster job, they consider me over you. Yeah. <laughs> My mic skills suck. <laughs> uh, so let's move on to the Paris riots. Um, someone asked in the in the group here, what do I think of Jordan Peterson's book? I've only read the introduction, so I can't really say. Um, but maybe we'll make that a future selection in the book club. Lobster Daddy. <laughs> I've read part of the lobster thing, so I get that at least. Um <laughs> I, l- I like these uh, French riots. I used to read about a lot. They, they know how to riot. Yeah. Okay, so the Paris riots, uh, <laughs> the yellow vest, the gilets jaunes. I have no idea how you say it. <laughs> what are you laughing at? Your French is terrible. Of course my French is terrible. You should try my French kiss. Uh, so <laughs> No, because I see the food you eat. How dare you? What does that mean? I see your food. Yeah. I was eating a grape. Yeah. I had a grape before we started. Sure. sure what does yeah. that have to do yeah, with it? He was prunes. He was eating prunes. Probiotic prunes. I have some every morning. Great yep. source of fiber. B vitamins. Gets you ready for the day. Helps you go regularly. Is your gut biome good? Oh, it's the best. I take probiotics, too. Good. What does that even mean? That what, I see what you eat. Yeah, see what you eat. I what see, is that? I've seen that but fridge. The, that fridge is full of vegetables and fruit. Yeah, I see that fridge. You're making no sense. You've lost your damn mind. What are you? What do you even... All the things I've lost, I miss my mind the most. <laughs> what? I, I'm done with you. Uh, you know what? You're fired. Get out. Sweet. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> I already get the door on your way out. <laughs> it's time to shake up your podcast feed, folks, by subscribing to Lions of Liberty, the only libertarian variety show out there. Spend Mondays with me, Mark Clare, as I feature in-depth interviews with great names in the libertarian community and fun roundtable discussions. Electric Liberty Land with me, Brian McWilliams, every Wednesday, your weekly dose of comedy, culture, and liberty. And Felony Fridays with me, John Odermatt, where I expose injustice in the broken criminal justice system. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and at lionsofliberty.com. An overview of the of the Paris riots. Um, the And I'm going to butcher his name, but thanks to Brian Wolgamuth from, uh, for putting this prep together. Uh, I appreciate it. It's great prep. Um, So the overview, the popular protest initially against rising fuel prices in Paris has evolved from a tax protest against Macron and his policies, which appear to be elitist and business uh, driven. So uh, a lot of what's boiling down, you've got these guys in yellow vests because in did you know in France you are legally required to have a yellow vest? One of those safety vests in it's your high car. visibility vest. Yes, I know about it because Top Gear made fun of that. Yeah, yeah, when that came in a lot because it's it's stupid, right. stupid stuff. So you have to. I mean, it's a good idea to have one, but you shouldn't be forced to have one. Uh, and so people are wearing these vests to protest fuel prices, which are rising because of the um, because of the climate change um, battle against climate change, essentially. And so two major tax increases on diesel fuel, a new tax raised diesel to over $7 a gallon, and there's another planned increase in 2019, are affecting millions of French drivers, both personal and professional. And Macron actually came out today and said they're delaying the 2019 hike, tax hike for six months, essentially until they can figure out how to fool you into allowing you to do, them to do this. Yep. Uh, so we're going to delay to figure out how we can compromise on this means we're going to delay so we can figure out how to, uh, sell this to you. So Macron spearheaded the diesel tax campaign to make diesel or petrol, either way, gas prices similar 
to combat air pollution and global warming. And so the increased taxes and prices affect mostly rural drivers and companies which do not have access to subways or bus routes. So people in the country who are who are struggling uh, have almost no way to really afford. I mean, think about seven dollars a gallon of gas. That's yeah. a tremendous amount. It's two dollars right now in Indiana. So eventually, there's going to be food, food yeah. prices well, alone. It's like thirty eight dollars a pound for beef right now in Canada because of these because of climate change. Yeah, but let's set it up. Let's let's talk about the um, future shithole, which is France. Sorry, <laughs> did I say future? Current shithole, which is France. Um, France, for the longest time, has been a gigantic shithole in the EU, and it's just finally showing its ass because no one really wants to work in France. They don't want to. They haven't wanted to work for years. That's why they've imported so many different people to work for them for low, for low labor. Um, the other thing, to, this is not the first time they've raised gas taxes and stuff like this has happened. Uh, there's been in the 90s and early aughts, uh, the truck drivers would protest this type of stuff coming in, and they would literally take their trucks and block off traffic going down into Paris. Block right. it off. These uh, different, like, um, France have been losing their wealthiest uh, earners and big high earners for, you know, for decades now. As people, as they keep hot, entering higher and higher taxes and people are moving out. Right. So they're leaving only the massive sources who live into the city and the farmers who have nowhere else to go because this is their farm and they've been there for centuries. Right. It is disgusting what they're doing to France, but it's a good you know, thing to show like what the the type of disconnect you can get for people who live in a city and people who don't. It's the same thing that happens in Indiana. The people who live in the massive donut of Indiana four sixty five sometimes to forget that what they do here affects somebody out there in rural in the rural county. Especially if they use that diesel fuel or something like that for just getting to work, moving things for their job. They usually work with their cars or they use it to heat and turn things on. Right. And that's the biggest issue. Because if you live in this city, yeah, you can get around without using a car. It doesn't affect them that much. They get nuclear power, so they don't have to worry about a diesel generator or anything else getting them power. Yeah, so it, it comes down to the privileged person's favorite uh, mm-hmm. scheme, which is global uh, climate change. It used Correct. to be called global warming. Now, let me be yeah. clear. I believe it, that the oceans are rising, at the, that the... Um, Ice caps in the poles are melting. It is just indisputable that this is happening. Even Rush Limbaugh now says it's happening. Uh, and so the only way for this to really – I mean I saw an interview with Elon Musk once and he said the only way to combat climate change is a cap and trade system, which is you have to cap – you have to financially penalize people for doing uh, for you, doing behaviors that would affect the rise of climate change. So you have to have – uh, a financial penalty against companies or countries that um, then use too much CO2 or are polluters, and then you can make a market out of that so you can recover some of the money, but see... To do what with. Right, so the elites can have it. Yeah, to do what with. Uh, right, and so people who, talk, people who talk about climate change are really people who are the privileged in society. And I think most of us listening to this, I think we're, we're part of the American elite. What, if you can believe it or not. Yeah. I think yeah. most people You're who... are in the 1%. Right. Of the world, anyways. People who live in crushing poverty don't give a crap about climate change. Right. They don't... It's like, oh, the ice caps are melting. I'm trying to live. I will burn right. with everything I can get my hands on. Right. And so that's why 28,000 yellow vests took part in the first day of protests on November 16th, blocking roundabouts and motorway toll booths nationwide in France. 
On November 24th, they were about half the size, but they turned violent. And unlike Union-led demonstrations, the amorphous nature of the Gilets Juanes protest, the Yellow Vest protest. Juanes? That's what I heard. I Listen, I went on YouTube to watch pronunciations on this, and that's what they said, man. Gilets? Sounds just like that. Uh, protests also make it more difficult for the government to negotiate with them. Uh, so what do we have to do to calm you people down? And uh, the culprits of these violence do not want change, Macron says. He tweeted out, they want no improvement. They want chaos. They betray the causes they claim to serve and manipulate. They will be identified and held accountable for their actions before the court. Now, here's the problem with any use of any violence ever. When, when violence or vandalism or property destruction became, becomes the nature of the protest, that's what gets reported. If you had 240,000 people around the Eiffel Tower peacefully saying, we don't want this to happen, politicians would be scared. But the second somebody lights a car on fire, politicians are like, yes, we have an out. And so in the military. Right. So violence never, ever, ever, ever improves a situation in any way, shape, or form. Um, so we're all about nonviolent protests. So instead of learning the lesson here that Macron uh, is seeing – these these violent revolutionaries and the crazy thing about this yellow vest revolution is that it's people from the left, the far left, and people from the far right who are working together and coexisting in this uh, this um, what appears to be a violent overthrow. <laughs> um, so so yeah, diesel prices are already at, at an all time high. And the protest began when rising world oil prices combined with an increase this year of 7.6 cents per liter in taxes on diesel pushed prices at the pump up to record highs. Another increase of 6.5 cents a liter planned for early next year is designed over time to align diesel and petrol prices as part of an effort to reduce diesel consumption and thereby curb pollution. Mr. Macron explained, I'd prefer tax fuel to tax fuel than work. Those who complain about higher fuel prices also demand action against air pollution because their children get sick. And so he's saying, I'd rather tax fuel than to raise income taxes. So I'm raising the use taxes. Uh, But this is a very stupid uh, move by Macron because people don't like to pay taxes. So you take it out of their payroll so you never see it missing. Well, the other thing is, uh, if you really want to do climate change, you want to get them off using their diesel electric and moving to an electric or a different type of car, are these taxes going to do that? Is there a right. sunset clause? Did he explain it to them? Like, this tax will be on for 10 years when you project that by this time we can go to a ty- an entire electric grid and we can get rid of your diesel cars for you? Right. No, no, no. This is the tax. This is what we're going to bring the money in because we don't want you using your diesel. Right. Uh, so go ahead. Which, you know, like to these people in the rural counties, like, because even out here in Indiana, like they raised, right now gas prices are very, very low right now here in Indiana, and they did raise the gas tax. But you barely have to feel it that much because gas prices have been so low. But the moment the gas prices go back up, it's going to be the exact same way because everyone who uses a diesel truck, rotary owner, or anyone who enjoys a nice muscle car is going to be upset the, the moment gas goes back up. Right. You know, and forced like you've been totally being forced to drive smaller, smaller cars, which is the main reason. If you want to know why Ford and all these other manufacturers had to shut down all these plants, 
the cafe standards. You raise gas prices up, and but you force people into these smaller cars that they do not want. They want large cars, so it forces them to buy SUVs and trucks. Well, only a few plans need needed to make just SUVs and trucks. So guess what? We're closing the plants down. Hope you, I, like, hope you like your guess. I don't have a new. I have a 2014, and so the first time I got in a rental car and it shut off when I stopped, I was like, "What in the hell is, is going that cool? on?" That's no, cool tech. I hate it. That's awesome tech. That is an amazing piece of technology. I was so freaked out. Uh, thanks, Obama. Well, no, it, it it does it freaks you out, but it's a, but it is a really neat trick that someone made to get get past the cafe standards. Right. So. Let's here. Here's another couple of quotes from Macron and what he's saying. How can workers find their place in globalization, which has caused rampant inequality? France, like many other nations, is asking itself that question. So some say we should close ourselves off. We prefer to respond without abandoning our values to build even more. Uh, we need to build an even more common European identity made of dialogue between our imaginary uh, lines and uh, his his popularity has plummeted 20%. Uh, so who is actually protesting? Uh, thousands of police have been deployed, and Benjamin Vrignod, a 21-year-old protest- protester from Schartz, <laughs> I don't think that's how you say that, but that's how I'm going to say it, it is going to trigger, trigger a civil war, and me, like most other citizens, we're all ready. Uh, 21-year-old Laura Corandinier... They take everything from us. They steal everything from us. Uh, so uh, far-left leader Jean-Luc Malacon explained to the BFMVT uh, the historical importance on this issue in the Gallic mindset. We tax When tax is no longer agreed to, it's the start of revolutions in France. Uh-oh. So when people are, don't agree to pay their taxes, then revolutions start. The gallows are coming back up. Yeah. With 72% for the yellow vest, the attitude of the French is unchanged within 15 days. A Harris poll today, particularly interesting in that respect, says that uh, here are the different party breakdowns of party sympathy for the yellow vest protesters. Uh, The center, 26%. The center right, 54%. The center left, 85%. The Socialist Party. Uh, the far right, 90%. And the unsubmissive France Party, the left wing, 92%. So it's made up of a broad coalition of people. Seventy-five percent of cars have their yellow uh, their yellow jacket on the dashboard as a sign of solidarity, or possibility of having their car windows smashed, which is also true. Uh, so, so it's had a huge impact. Four people have died. Hundreds have been arrested. There's another protest planned for this weekend. Uh, it is uh, it's it's lit, fam. So yeah. uh, stick to. Uh, a lot of it, and you'll have to go watch that Mark Blythe thing that I posted. If you're a podcast person, Raw Audio Politics is one of our podcasts, and I put the audio of it in there, at least the first 40 minutes. I mean, he makes gr- he nails the problems. He nails what's wrong. And then in the last four to five minutes, he just is like, yeah, I'm a Bernie bro. And you're like, oh, man, Mark. <laughs> but uh, he nails it. And, and he, hold on, Harry, he basically just says... You you have income inequality where the rich keep getting richer and the poor keep getting richer, but the middle classes are not growing in Western countries. And then you have jobs leaving, you have wage stagnation, you have uh, you have people being jealous of things on social media, for instance, and, and people just there is a there is an anger within people, 
And uh, I think that's why Trump and Bernie Sanders and all these various groups around the world start to actually nail it. Uh, and I'll, I'll end with uh, a clip in just a moment, but you were about to say something, Harry. I'll just say, like, um, France is the socialist country that most, most people, uh, most socialists don't want to talk about or bring up about. Right. You know, there's a lot of examples of some nice things that happen in France, but it's all more bad than there is good. Right. And that's the, you know, and, it, and it's one where, like, they want to talk about Scandinavian countries. Like, okay, no, 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 let's leave it alone. Let's talk about an actual country that talks about socialism all the time. Let's talk right. about France. And we'll talk about what happened when they started the raising the taxes on, the one, on their 1% and what the hell happened. They yeah. left. And, you know, and it's showing itself. It's really showing itself. Well, people, and, I, and I've expressed this on the show, you know, like after the tires thing, it's just, it's like, you know, my car engine light went on today. And it's just like, fuck. I I I I'm not taking out credit to fix a thousand. How many thousand dollar expenses can one person have in a year? And why does this cost a thousand dollars? This shouldn't cost it. You know. And I was talking with my dad. And my dad finally relented and said, "Yeah, you guys are getting screwed." You know, because people don't get that. Like, uh, you look at the millennial generation. Uh, you know, there's an article today blaming us for the death of tuna, and there was this Fed report. Uh, that I posted on my personal Facebook that you can go find, where basically millennials make 30% of what their parents did. And they aren't killing these industries because they don't like this stuff or their patterns have or their tastes have changed. It's that they're broke. Yeah. And so I'm fortunate that I dropped out of college because I got into the workforce two years before the collapse. You know, like I know uh, people who quote unquote did it right and finished their degree. Um, you know, I was 18 on 9-11. You know, our generation went and fought two wars, one of them completely illegitimate, the other just sort of illegitimate. Uh, and then, uh, we're still there. A person who is 17 years old and can go serve in Afghanistan has no idea. He was not born on 9-11. A person who is 17 today can go serve in a war that was started by an event he was not alive for. Um, then people graduate in 2008 to no jobs, boomers don't retire, so their wages are lower. If they do get a job, they're underemployed. Yep. Uh, you know, right out of high school, there's a recession because of 9-11. Right out of college, there's a recession. And everybody just, I think at the millennial generation, we just feel screwed. And, mm-hmm. and it's kind of hopeless. And, it's, and, and then on top of that, you've got these $100,000 student loan payments. Yes. You know, everybody has ten to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of student loan debt. You don't, but that's because you're annoying. And so, <laughs> the the reality is that everybody is living off of credit right now to make it to make it stretch. I know because you're annoying. You're not, but everybody else in the real world is uh, living off of. Uh, uh, they're just stretched on credit. And so, what happens when the next crisis hits? And the credit bubble bursts, and the Fed can't inflate all those bad assets away. I mean, it's foolish for us to think that 2008, the Fed just bought all those bad assets, printed all that money, and nothing bad is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Silly. Yeah, it, it it is it is scary. Just like because if something like that happened again, a lot of people's finances has not recovered. Right, they haven't recovered. Or we work in it. A lot of people work in industries that are only bought up because the economy is good. Like. 
even my job, my job is only good as like because I work in mass customization because people have extra money they want something custom, right? You know, and you know, I have you know, there's I'm not kidding myself. Like a recession happens that I know something bad is going to happen at my company because of the way it's set up. Yeah, you know, we will have to tuck her down. You know, yeah. So I'm trying to make sure like I my department stays you know cash positive as best as possible. You know, and sure we keep value driven because hey. I can run this thing in the red and just keep doing thing and building and buying stupid stuff. But the, but the moment something bad happens in the economy, it's like, who's going to want custom T-shirts? The economy is softening. You have two generations now, which are the biggest in existence, the, the millennials and the Gen Z, the Zoomers, as they're now called. Zoomers. Zoomers, Zoomers is a nice, easy name. Uh, and so you've got Y and Z. Mm-hmm. Um, you know why they're all twenty one? Like these kids just want to riot and blow stuff up. You know they're not. They, they don't, don't have anything. They don't have anything. And that's not true because these Antifa kids. It's been it's been proven in study after study that these are all just kids. People on the far right and the far left who are fighting. These people are all middle class suburbanites. These mm-hmm. are people who just you you have the privilege. To go and protest like this when you're from a rich or middle class family, mm-hmm. uh, frankly, you know these Antifa kids are 21 and from wealthy families, um, so they're they're idiots. But <clears throat> um, can you please take this cat? Hipsters got to do something on the on their right. days off. But y- you have, I just look at the entire economy and I go, it's all fake. It's a house of cards. What does anybody do? what does anybody really do yeah you know i think people go to work and they just kind of sit and look at their screen and pretend they're working and we have millions of people in this country doing that Mm -hmm. and they're barely making money they're overextended on credit and when reality catches up to us and we have a real good wallop and we have a depression Mm -hmm. i I think it's we're not going to come back from it we're going to have more and more automation yeah and then you're going to have 50 percent unemployment in the millennial and Gen Z generation, mm-hmm. and men and and men specifically, and men are already upset, and men are violent, and it's it's. Uh, you look at the Arab Spring. Uh, Ten years ago, I remember Glenn Beck talking about the coming the book, the coming insurrection, mm-hmm. and then he said, "There's going to be violent protests from leftists. They're going to start these fires and and places. You're going to see the Middle East finally erupt." You're going to see a caliphate develop out of that. And everybody called him nuts. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, hmm, maybe he wasn't as nuts. And I, and I remember him saying when the Tunisian fruit vendor lit himself on fire, he goes, watch, this is the beginning of the end of the global, the global system that we have built because it's unsustainable. And I think he's exactly right. I think we're looking at the beginnings of Western countries starting to have their Arab Spring. Uh, it, it is... It, it is going to be a bumpy ride i think for the next 20 years I'm get co- your brass now <laughs> yeah right buy your guns and your your stuff now well yeah I, it is because you see so many different of these uh, silicon valley california companies that get start up and they don't produce they don't produce anything they don't have anything you're, you're telling me facebook has the same market cap as ge yeah or they, don't, te- they don't produce anything. Tesla has the same market yeah. cap as GM. Correct. And a lot of those dating apps and stuff like that. Like when I went out to California, I was seeing like, wow, why does Bumble have this shop here? 
It's just a dating app. You don't have anything. Why do you have this physical location? It's most one of the most expensive cities to be in. This is the dumb move. So they had like a storefront. Yeah, yeah. Oh, just their office. Just their office. Oh, it's like, okay. This is dumb. This is dumb. Facebook. You, Facebook that's goes. Dumb. To, Facebook goes down tomorrow. What do they have? A bunch of computers that you can't resell. Right. Bunch of computers you can't resell. Right. Because who's gonna? They could be reselled, but you you're not gonna get you're not gonna get crap for them. Right. You're not gonna get crap for them because there's so many. There's so no, many. There's no real no, supply chain. Right. No one needs right. any. And the person that really hurts from that from those going down, Dell, CDW, right? You know, whoever like sold those or sells those computers like that, and that type of bulkness, they get hurt, right? Uh, so they're going to make sure those don't stay in. They, those have to leave the country, right? Um, so they don't have any, but it's stuff like that. It's like, why are you in one of the most expensive places to be? You could be anywhere in the world. A lot of these vanity, like I was sitting there, like when I was in California, downtown San Francisco, I was like, there's so many people that have these headquarters here out of vanity reasons. And then it was, and I can make understand, makes complete and total sense that Salesforce, they actually have a product and got the hell out of San Francisco. Yeah, they're here in Indianapolis. Yeah. yeah. Now, the, do they still have a tower and stuff in there? Yeah, that thing is vacant. I rent that sucker out. <laughs> right. It's a vanity thing, and they're ready to jump ship at any moment. In San Francisco? Yeah, oh, yeah. They're ready to jump ship and come into India at any moment. They've ready to jump ship so fast that they have influenced the Indiana uh, tax system, so uh, software as a service is uh, not taxable here in Indiana. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Okay? They're ready to jump. When Mike Pence tried to do the religious freedom law, Mark Benioff was one of the few people who spanked him, mm-hmm. and one of the many people who spanked him, I should say. And uh, that was the one that everybody listened to. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're re- yeah. Salesforce is the, be the first ones to jump. They'll be like, "Oh no, sell that." Well, people think that um, Purdue and other countries. People think Purdue's an Ivy League school because it's it's up in La- West Lafayette and it's an, an engineering school. And mm-hmm. we have Rose Holman, yeah, which is another great engineering school. And mm-hmm. so there's a lot of intelligent talent here in the state, right? And so, right. and the type of talent that wants to stay in one spot, work at a company, and just do good code that wants to start a family, right. not just like I'm just doing code because I just fresh to college, just let me do code. Right. No, you want the coder that's going to like, hey, I've got bills to pay, I've got a family to feed, I need benefits, I'm just going to come in here and code for ten years. Right. Cool. That's what you need, and that's what a lot of like that's what Salesforce is finding out. You know, you right. need you need coders like that. Yeah. So. um Let's end this segment with the uh, a prophet, a prophet of the 20th century, Mr. George Carlin. But there's a reason. There's a reason. There's a reason for this. There's a reason education sucks, and it's the same reason that it will never, ever, ever be fixed. It's never going to get any better. Don't look for it. Be happy with what you got. Because the owners of this country don't want that. I'm talking about the real owners now. The real owners, the big wealthy business interests that control things and make all the important decisions. Forget the politicians. The politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. You have no choice. You have owners. They own you. They own everything. They own all the important land. They own and control the corporations. They've long since bought and paid for the Senate, the Congress, the state houses, the city halls. They've got the judges in their back pockets. And they own all the big media companies, so they control just about all of the news and information you get to hear. They got you by the balls. They, they spend billions of dollars every year lobbying, lobbying to get what they want. Well, we know what they want. They want more for themselves and less for everybody else. But I'll tell you what they don't want. They don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. 
That's against their interest. That's right. They don't want people who are smart enough to sit around the kitchen table to figure out how badly they're getting fucked by a system that threw them overboard 30 fucking years ago. They don't want that. You know what they want? They want obedient workers. Obedient workers. People who are just smart enough to run the machines and do the paperwork and just dumb enough to passively accept all these increasingly shittier jobs with the lower pay, the longer hours, the reduced benefits, the end of overtime, and the vanishing pension that disappears the minute you go to collect it. And now they're coming for your social security money. They want your fucking retirement money. They want it back so they can give it to their criminal friends on Wall Street. And you know something? They'll get it. They'll get it all from you sooner or later because they own this fucking place. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. (laughs) You and I are not in the big club. By the way, it's the same big club they use to beat you over the head with all day long when they tell you what to believe. All day long, beating you over the head in their media, telling you what to believe, what to think, and what to buy. The table is tilted, folks. The game is rigged. And nobody seems to notice. Nobody seems to care. Good, honest, hard-working people. White collar, blue collar, doesn't matter what color shirt you have on. Good, honest, hard-working people continue. These are people of modest means. Continue to elect these rich cocksuckers who don't give a fuck about them. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't care about you at all. At all. At all. Man. You know? And nobody seems to notice, nobody seems to care. That's what the owners count on, the fact that Americans will probably remain willfully ignorant of the big red, white, and blue dick that's being jammed up their assholes every day. Because the owners of this country know the truth. It's called the American dream, because you have to be asleep to believe it. That was 2008, believe it or not. And uh, that was George Carlin... I love comedians because I think comedians can tell, well, they used to be able to tell hard truths to people in a way that they would accept. And uh, George Carlin was way ahead of his time, and that is, um, uh, I think it just articulates the way that people feel 10 years. I mean, I remember the first time I saw it, I was just like, oh, man, that's that's a, that's crazy. But now you look at it and you go, shit, that is exactly how I feel. Uh, and so how do you combat it? How do you fight it? You have to be an independent thinking person and you have to pay attention because exactly what he said about media. Have you noticed that in the Arab Spring, uh, it is amazing the flowering of democracy that is taking place with the use of social media. People are using Twitter and tear gas to change the world more at 11 o'clock tonight. What a beautiful thing, uh, Wolf Blitzer screams as his tiny little pink nipples get hard as he's shouting about the flowering of democracy in the Middle East. Fast forward uh, six years to the Yellow Vest movement and the rise of uh, populism in Western countries, and it's, we need to shut down this fucking social media thing because it's killing democracy. (laughs) The elites in media, the elites in politics, the elites in government, the elites in the banking system, the elites in business want social media gone because it gives me and Harry the ability to talk to you, and they can't have that shit. So... How do we fight it? You continually spread the message about this show. You start your own projects. You be courageous in the face of feeling judged when you have a truth to say. You share information that you think is important. And if you get shut down, then so be it. You move to the next platform. You have to start creating the world that is sustainable for yourself. 
You have to focus on the individual, yourself. You have to focus on those around you. You have to focus on creating a world for those around you in your community that is sustainable and that is self-reliant. And we have to start taking care of each other. And we have to stop focusing on what 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 these... <laughs> you know who's ripping you off, so stop playing their game. And uh, I think that we have to start um, taking care of each other and building communities around not only our ideas, but we have to start living them out. Yes, exactly. So, uh, Harry, are you a prepper yet after that? <laughs> Um, Next question. All right. right. But yeah, it's yeah, and that's why they're very scared of all the other alternatives and going after different things and demonizing things. That's why when anything went too far, you know, it had to be shut down. You are correct because it did allow people to talk, understanding that like the Silk Road was a very very dangerous thing to the system. It under it showed people like whoa 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 if you just let commerce. It's nothing violent in the drug deal. It's nothing. Money is being changed hands. Who's bringing the violence? Right. The governments. Governments are bringing the violence. And the gangs are responding with the government's violence. Ross Ulbricht is running something called Silk Road, right? Was. Was running something called Silk Road. Yeah. It was a dark web trading post. And uh, the government just felt it had the authority to lock him up for doing something they didn't like. For li- uh, Yeah, double life sentence. Right. Um, for running a website. Never right. touched the drugs. He just took the money, ran the site. Right. Uh, a lot of people go like, well, he you know, did a murder for hire charge. Never been proven and it was actually thrown out and it wasn't even brought up in his case hearing, but was used to uh, for his sentencing. Right. But it was never got to defend himself against that charge. And the charge was eventually dropped with, with prejudice in his case. Yep. You know, But he's still serving a double I sentence based off of something that wasn't that he couldn't defend himself against. So the system is bull crap. If you want to know, like, it, uh, where somebody was like, where my faith in the system died, it died a long time ago, but it really died if you just look at it, what happened to the Ross Ulbricht case. Yeah. I, I mean, you look at what's going on with the Mueller stuff right now. Yeah. Uh, the These are all processed charges. Like, yeah. They, they have proven collusion. While we were sitting here, um, uh, Mueller recommended, after extensive cooperation with his investigation, no jail time for uh, Michael Flynn. But, you know, if you believe some of the stories about um, why uh, Michael Cohn just had to plead guilty mm-hmm. in court, it's that he basically said a flippant comment of, you know, when did you when did you end this Russia deal? He said, uh, I think it was January 2016. Right. And it happened to, and then they found emails and mm-hmm. communications after that. Right. And so I think it was turned into you're lying, and you're now going to plead guilty to this in court. Uh, so. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, this is your plea deal. Right. Because you, you lied to a federal agent. You lied to a federal agent. It was actually July. Yeah. Uh, okay, you made him. You know, and they tripped court, Jerome Corsi up, who's an idiot, who's mm-hmm. just stumbling his way and doesn't. Like, why is this guy on TV? He's the dumbest. Yeah. He must have the worst counsel if he has any. Uh, I mean, Roger Stone is doing it the right way where he's just, he's basically making the argument and he's right. Like, you're just going to criminalize politics? You're going to criminalize political gossip? Because that's what this is. Yeah, that's what you're doing. 
does it make any of it right? Mm, no, but it, it, everybody does it. So now everybody, there's a standard for everybody going to jail. It's just going to be used against people that the the, the system doesn't like. Uh, so that's why I'm generally against this entire investigation because I don't think there was any collusion. But I also think that there is a lot of precedents being set uh, that are criminalizing just standard parts of of politics. Um, I just think the whole thing is it's it's you, you have to just. All I can say is this: if the Russian government is so powerful that they could collude and get Trump elected, the heck are you going to stop anything else? <laughs> right. What what are you going to right. do? What are you going to do? Right. <laughs> like, Fool. really, really, what are you going to do? And if there was, okay, let's say, all right, let's, let's play a game. Let's say Russia did collude with, with them, right? How's If Mueller really did find something, Putin would just take him down. He already owns the president. Right. You could just get, you could get hit by a bus very easily. <laughs> Because and it's he not is, like the Russian government's not beyond poisoning someone outside. He is not like, saying that should happen. I'm he not is, saying that should happen. Right. I'm just saying I don't put it past Putin for taking out somebody who's you know is getting ready to open their mouth. Right. You know, Putin be like, oh, shouldn't open his damn mouth, or <laughs> should look, shouldn't open that door. Yeah. You know, that's why I said it's like it's, it's bullcrap. It's like because the United States we play these games, like we play this game of civility and not hurt anyone and do so like those are the games that we play inside the United States. Now, granted, it changes to some of the um, smaller um, races. They do some of that boss hog crap where they will like hurt people, like feed them the gators, yep, feed them or um, snapping turtles. Um, then there's, but over there in Russia, they, they do the poisoning and the invading of <laughs> territories, and yeah, they do it. Kinda, <laughs> they do it as a message. Yeah, yeah, or just I don't know, kill a you know. Uh, Journalists in an embassy. Yeah, that, uh, <laughs> yeah. <concern. laughs> Are you tired of banging your head against the proverbial wall of politics and getting nowhere toward actually making your life more free? Are you tired of interview podcasts that have the same guests as every other libertarian interview podcast out there? Are you tired of hearing the same news stories that you can hear on the mainstream media? then you need to listen to The Lava Flow, where we don't do politics and we don't do the major stories that exist only to divide you. We talk about news that affects you and your freedom, and we work to find solutions that can actually help you to be more free. Check us out at thelavaflow.com. Let's wrap up with a listener letter. Uh, we're not going to have time for the other two subjects I had planned or the Stone's fault. or the undercover news. Stone, uh, Stone's fault. I'll still put the undercover news uh, stories which is uh, the so. Indiana Solicitor General got laughed at by the Supreme Court over, um, it basically, here's the reason headline. It's constitutional to seize a car for driving five miles over the speed limit here in Indiana, according to the Solicitor General. And then a fake news alert. Like, Creighton brought this to my attention. Uh, phrases such as bringing home the bacon will be phased out as veganism awareness grows, academic claims. So one academic in England got an article written about his dumb ideas in the Standard, the Evening Standard in Britain. You're telling me that's not a fake news story, that they are trying to generate clicks by conservatives who are outraged for profit. So I want to see the New York Times start investigating them uh, for fake news. That so happen. They, uh, So the listener letter, hold on, I need to... Uh, 
say something here. Then don't listen. What? What? What happened? All right. So our listener letter, which you can send us a letter at editor at wearelibertarians.com. This letter is from Raquel, and she asks, what are the major differences between independent libertarians, conservative libertarians, and liberal libertarians, and how do these types of subcategories affect the party as a whole? Uh, so this is probably a more simple answer than you might like to hear. I think you may want more of a a complex answer, but I think when you start out in libertarianism, you think of things still the way that you thought of things as a Republican or a Democrat. You think in terms of issues. So I've got my big board of issues, uh, so they think this way about these certain issues, so this puts them in this category. And libertarianism isn't that way. Libertarianism is an ideology, and it focuses on one simple thing, the force of government. So what is the use of the government, and how is it used, and should it be used at all, and is it moral to use the government? And so once you really understand whether or not the government should be used or should exist or should be used for certain things. And help me, Harry. Uh, it's different than a set of issues. It's, is the government appropriate for this particular thing? Some days I feel that I would have to violate the net by taking the ring that you probably have and push you into the fire. Is that like one of your Harry Potter jokes? It's a Lord of the Ring reference. Oh, okay. of the, ring. Right. the ring shouldn't exist. We should toss the ring into the fire. Right. And it's a folly of man that we should right. push the ring in there. So like you look but, at the, the border, for instance. Like, sh- uh, should we have an open border or a closed border? Okay, well, let's look at government force. Do you <laughs> think it is appropriate to hire a bunch of people to build a, uh, a wall and then sit with guns on that wall and make sure that people aren't coming into the country or leaving the country because you want to restrict the free flow of labor. See, all right, so the government lands, and technically you can restrict people's movement on your own personal lands or um, protecting the interests of people who said lands. Technically, the United States government does have the ability to do that because you also have the ability to restrict access onto your own personal land. You can give someone the ability to do that to your own land. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it is a good thing or not, no, it's not a good thing. It's not a, it's not an, or I understand the argument of, because I'm for open borders. I think borders are silly because just like the ability that we can get from Illinois to Indiana makes everything awesome. It's awesome. It's amazing. Right. Even though I would love to border off South side of Chicago and Gary. Wow. That's racist. And Did you guys hear that? And racism? Hallville. And Beach Grove, you know, Beach Grove is bad when you turn into Beach Grove, Indiana, and there's like the one of the first billboards you see coming off the exit is get your record expunged so you can get your gun rights back. I'm like, what the heck is going on in Beach Grove? Sorry, sorry, you're you're screeching right now. Yes, (laughs) bring it really back. Bring it back to the border. Now who needs the big clock, Christy? (laughs) Where was I? Oh yeah, so yeah. Yeah, but like, but I also understand the argument is because it's you know the United States is considered just a club or a club of people. Clubs do have the ability to restrict who comes in and comes out. Right, you have the ability to do that, or just wanted to know someone like and be able to give a background check or know who's coming in and coming out. 
It right. makes kind of sense. As long as there's a process of there or like a sort of process. So, I mean, take something like taxation. Obviously, the the idea that in the individual, I can't sit here as an individual and say to Harry, I command you to give me $500 a month. That'd be theft. And if you don't, then I'm going to shoot you. So that's violent theft now. Right. And it doesn't. the morality doesn't change if I invite 10 people in and we vote on it. We're all going to take $500 a month from Harry. Right. Or else we're going to – well, because the group has voted on it and it's democratic. It doesn't change the morality of the equation. Correct. And so taxation fundamentally is something that the government should not do. So then – but you can't. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, but you can do something like a user fee. Like a user the, fee. Exactly. Yeah. The right. unit, uh, let's say, like the uh, the Indi- uh, state of Indiana imposes like this type of money they use to fix the potholes and just goes for the roads. Right. And if you use these roads, you know this is what we're going to go for the roads. Now, granted, you know I could go for crappier roads and just you know four by fours, but a, you know t- terrible life. But I really do love like super flat, smooth roads, and that's what I want. That's what I'm willing to pay for. That's what I'm getting though. Right. So then you have to negotiate how are you going to order society and you work your way backwards. So if you're not going to have government, then you, how are you going to order things like roads? You use user fees. How, what is the voluntary way to do this that everybody can buy in? And if you don't agree to whatever everyone else is agreeing to, then they can leave the system and start their own or move to a different one. Uh, so it, it's a completely different way of thinking as, a, as opposed to the way that we m- think about politics. And I, so you'll get left libertarians, and it's just because those people who are prominent mm-hmm. on the left or the right haven't necessarily given up um, certain pieces uh, or certain they're, – they're, they're not further down on the liberty train, let's say. So they don't fully understand the libertarian argument for X, Y, and Z. Um, but I do think that if you are going to run for office, then there is a – if you serve in government and you have to vote on things, you're dealing with in, in America 250 years of rules baggage. and regulations and baggage. And so it's not – you're not as a libertarian walking into the presidency overnight and transforming it into a libertarian system. You can roll it back, but you're going to have to have a plan to roll it back. You, Correct, you can't yeah. just say no all the time. You have to figure out, okay, I I think it, liberty can excel in this way. I can do this. I may have to trade this. So it is more pragmatic. Yeah, I think like the like the the biggest goal of any libertarian who became president would just be to chain down the executive branch themselves. Like, no, I'm chaining this down. I'm chaining this down. What are you doing? I'm trying to make it so that whoever comes in me after can't do anything that they aren't supposed to do anymore. Right. Give the power back, you know, back to Congress. Just start restripping the, you know, these, you know, things that the executive branch is not supposed to have or have power up. Right. You know, it's one of the best things they can do. And, you know, and the thing is, like, you, you know, because one of the things you do have the ability to get rid of some of these awful government agencies, which should be elected bodies. Yeah. Just sort of because some of the policies they do are basically laws or unvoted on laws. Right. Uh, now, I do think in terms of culture and uh, personal conduct, I, I would say that I'm more of a conservative libertarian um, in the way that I live my life. I live a very conservative lifestyle. I also uh, you know, am a Christian, so I think that shades my worldview about certain things and how I view culture and how I think things ought, ought to operate. Um, as a conservative leaning person, I believe in the, that institutions are important, that the family and 
cultural institutions, religious institutions. These things are important to order society and more so in a libertarian society. But then there are people who may be libertarians who are more on the left who say those institutions become overbearing and have too much power in a society and the individual should be free to choose for themselves, which I totally agree with. But uh, I think you know if you look at the the uh, state of the world today as the family has devolved, I think it's it's very clear that that's a big part of our problems. For instance, school shooters, absent father, abusive mother. That's this that's the special sauce for a serial killer. Yeah, and uh, and and you have more of those people because there's less fathers involved and there's more um, stressed out moms beating their kids and then yeah. they turn into serial killers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think you do have people lean one way or the other culturally, but the central question is, would you use force to take those beliefs and make other people live those beliefs out? And so I don't think that there is necessarily a conservative or a liberal libertarian. I think there's just a libertarian and then people who may not fully understand everything that's going on. I, I definitely... When I started identifying as a libertarian, thought in terms of if I just think libertarian on these certain issues and then compromise on these, then that'll make you know it's not a balance one way or the other. It's it's a it's a whole belief system, and it can sometimes feel complicated, but it really just comes down to: Are you using force to make someone do something that they don't want to do, or they may want to do it, but you're still forcing them to do it? Correct. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like uh, New Hampshire and the seatbelt laws. Most people wear their seatbelt. There's no law for it. You can drive around New Hampshire all you want without your seatbelt. Right. People do it. There's no law for it. Go ahead. Yeah. If you want to go, it's the only state you can. If you want to go New Hampshire and experience the freedom of taking your seatbelt off, you will. But the entire pain and panic that you get for understanding that if something happened, I'm going through the windshield. You put the seatbelt on very, very quickly. Right. Uh, all right, so and you can't get and if you're worried about that little dinger thing, they make a thing that you can put in your seatbelt <laughs> so you stop hearing that dingy. All right, Harry, final thoughts for the show. <clears throat> uh, shout out to uh, Toe Boater RS. Yes, this is not a new laptop. This is a new laptop for me. This is a uh, my work laptop. Uh, so that's why there's no stickers on this one. It's a work laptop. This makes me look working professional while I'm at work. And it, and as he reminded me, Christy, it's bigger and blacker than mine. Bigger, blacker, and I've got the bigger tip. She said in the, uh, if you're a Patreon member, $10 a month and above, you can join the live chat while the live stream's going on. And she just kept noting how much bigger and blacker your laptop is than mine. Yeah, full 1080p screen in this thing. <laughs> so, but it, it's how I use it. Uh, now, anything else? It's got the 10 key. Um, you know, 10, okay. Um, let's see. One thing I wanted to do is, uh, France is a great, uh, demonstration on the how long can you keep socialism afloat when you're you know like sucking dry of different economies it's really interesting to like really study and mm-hmm. understand like the background of what 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 france has gone through um, because right now majority majority of how they make the money is most of it's wine because a lot of the french want french wines and the tourism industry because these other people parts of the of europe loves the vacation this other part of france Right, you know, and they like to go in Paris. It's the majority of their money. So it's the industries right there, and they tax each of those heavily. Yeah, you know, but most of the rich people who own a lot of the wineries, eh, they don't live there anymore, <laughs> and they get the money. They get the money out of France as soon as possible. 
They make sure it doesn't get there. Or inside the EU, some of them stay inside the EU system, right? Mm-hmm. But they try to get the money out there too. It's so, like I said, like research France. It's re, it's very very interesting, you know. Pra- um, and practice your French. If it's all going to burn down, I'd like it to to happen in France, uh, not here. <laughs> Wait for me. Uh, Larry wants to know when Windows or Linux on that. This is actually sadly is a Windows 10 laptop uh, that I use for work. Oh wow, you sold out, man. Did sold out? Just use it for work. Sell out. I use yeah because I got because um, it's mostly I use Windows 10 here on this laptop, so it helps me troubleshoot other issues. Um, but I still keep I still at work actually have a Core i5 Linux Lenovo laptop, which is just like mimics the exact laptop that you see here on the show. But I've got another one just like it, which is a Core i5 that runs Linux. That's it. I'm now who running, needs a clock? I'm still running 1604, and I'm getting. I sh, I, I don't know. I feel like upgrading to 180. Um, what is it, 1806 LTS? Harry, Linux. I'm gonna kill myself if you keep going. I get this at work, okay? I got this really, really cool device at work, and no one wanted to. Ca- no one cared, <laughs> right? Because they don't. They're not nerds. It's called a Peplink 580. Now, okay, what did Harry? I swear to God, if you tell me about a Peplink 580, I'm I'm gonna end it. I'm gonna I'm gonna look like the kimchi. It's that's <laughs> it's boiling inside my gut right now. <laughs> right. Fine. The kimchi in about Fine. two hours. Fine. All right. Are you done? Oh, also the uh, first this week I'll be out in Scranton, Pennsylvania. I see you guys around. Go go see Brian uh, Brian Nichols. I think he lives near Scranton. I, I thought he was uh, near Philly. And then all letting, like by each other. I don't know. I'm landing in Philly and then taking a smaller, crappier plane up there to Scranton. Eww, okay, well then it's probably. Uh, I have lots of whiskey. Wow, lots of whiskey. That's La- the only thing I'm bringing in my little bag. Is Larry whiskey. just called you a script kitty for using a Windows machine. Ouch. I doubt he caught me a script kid. He did. It's what? in the chat. L- Larry Brown, former coach of the Pacers. <laughs> All right. My final thoughts are thank you for listening. Uh, I especially want to thank the lovely Christy Avery for uh, for being in the chat and being our, our main super fan. Uh, many have tried to come at her, but if you come at the queen, you best not miss. Uh, I'd like to thank Craig DaCosta, Jason Doolittle, and the Libertarian Coalition for being our $100 a month Patreon members. And you, too, can be a member at wearelibertarians.com. Join us. We would, uh, yeah, you can go see Christy's mom in Pittsburgh, or her brother in Pittsburgh. Uh, so there's an offer. Go hang out with Christy's brother. Hi, uh, I vaguely. Doubt he's as cool. I, I'm friends with your sister through a podcast. Uh, get off my lawn, you serial killer! Besides, I, I can't wait till the summer. And we all start hanging out at Christie's. Oh yeah, she got a hot tub. I know, right? Fecal soup. I don't get in hot tubs. I don't get in hot tubs. I'm sorry. Can't do it. There's lots of poop in there. I'm sure hers will be very clean, but it doesn't matter how. There's get- not a lot of poop in it. <laughs> that's that's not what the studies say. First, if you keep it clean. Okay? I am too much that's of a why, germaphobe. That's why I kind of like Jeremiah's pool, because it doesn't smell like a pool. And that's, yes. how, you know, that's how you know it's clean, keeps it clean. Yes, I agree. My my complex is like that. Yeah. yeah. It's, it yeah. doesn't feel like, you don't feel like you're in a pool. Yeah. But yeah. I've never been in a hot tub, and my my mom had a hot tub, and I know what I did in that hot tub. I don't want, I don't like getting in hot tubs. 
All right, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on this program. Uh, you too can join the uh, the debate over hot tubs in the Facebook group. Join us uh, or the Discord. I'd prefer you join the Discord, honestly, at wearelibertarians.com. And uh, guess what? We will see you tomorrow because we are the most giving podcast in all of the universe. So uh, please share those dailies and take a listen. All right. Thanks for listening. We'll uh, talk to you later. Uh, Christy says you have to be nude, so that's why you won't get in. She's got a nude-only hot dog. Are you getting in nude? Heck yeah. <laughs> Christy will be so... That is ulti- the ultimate fandom. You get to hang out nude with the cast of Weird Libertarians in a hot tub. <laughs> 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 All right, thanks. We'll see you tomorrow.